Yes, hello and very warm welcome to the new year and uh, to a year that is going to be exciting and hopefully better than last year. We are meeting at the 86th meeting of the Foundation Stiftung Corona Ausschuss and the fog is lifting is our title. We have our first surprise guest, Ernst Wolf, here in our studio with us. It's great to have you here. Rainer is still in Göttingen where he's tied down because he has important <coughs> things to take care of. He will appear uh, as a Zoom conference on our screen. And because we have a surprise guest, let's start, get started without much further ado. And it's wonderful to see, Ernst, that you could make it in such short notice. So what are the sentiments with which you ventured into the new year? Is the breakthrough imminent? Well, my feelings are mixed, really. I see the agenda is being sharpened that we had to put up with the last two years, but I see resistance is growing equally. And I see that the official narrative, which has been presented to us for two years is uh, melting away in front of the public and that the um, agenda is more difficult to put through and reason their measures. But uh, in the background, I think that Corona was never a health crisis, but only an excuse for a larger agenda. And I don't think that the other side is going to refrain from that agenda voluntarily. Well, well, there's a lot behind it, especially a financial aspect, and I think in, that became clear in September 2019, as early. So based on the Fed decisions, etc., it was imminent, that, or it was clear that uh, certain issues were on the horizon, and the situation has not really improved through the humongous debt that has been accumulated ever since. So that's like a fire accelerator, fire start for the entire breakdown which was on the cards anyway, I guess. Absolutely. What you've mentioned is important to understand everything. We have to know that between 2016, it was trying to bring back the system in the old rails. The Federal Reserve in America uh, started to raise the interests. The uh, financial politics was uh, tightened, and the uh, result was a catastrophe on the stock markets. And 2019, we had the next uh, problem in the repro markets. That's the markets where the Wall Street banks refinance. Massive problems there. And since autumn 2019, it was obvious that the system in its existing shape will not be able to exist any longer. And then the system was brought to collapse once again. 2020, 2020 in my eyes, was an orchestrated disaster, which was used to uh, organize the biggest change of ownership um, in all times. So and that wouldn't have been possible without the distraction. 2728, uh, 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 people noted that there was people who benefited from that agenda and it carried on after the Euro crisis, lots of restaging. And it was all good for the people who had assets and the normal um, workers and the uh, medium-sized companies drew down more and more and uh, so they needed a reason and the reason for this was the virus but it was a restructuring financially the start of the end phase of the system that we live in the financial phase is not bearable anymore we are in its final phase and this phase is used in order to plunder it by all means that are possible what we've seen here in the last two years is the complete exploitation of the 
of the system without any idea of the future. What's your take on countries which had already been pillaged, like Greece and Spain? Well, the problems are going to be magnified there because the starting situation is much worse than ours is, and the large and rich countries always try to put the problems to the poorer countries. That's one of the follows, the consequences of the crisis, that the difference between the assets or the rich and the poor countries is increasingly drastic. And we've seen a big gap between the ultra-rich and the normal population in the industrial countries, but the same gap between the industrial countries and the developing countries. And I think uh, in Germany was still fairly stable with a fairly robust backbone of SMEs and many incumbent companies. And now it becomes evident that many things are shaking now. Yes, what we see is a frontal attack to the medium-sized companies, which we have been assisting or watching over one and a half years. All the measures that are taken, also that which are apparently coming up again, force the medium-sized companies down. And the big profiter from this is online economics, platform economics, which has thrived in the last two and a half, uh, one and a half years. And that's like a tumor living off its host. The host is the medium-sized companies the big problem here is that if that process is coming to a comes to an end it's not only host that's going to die but the cancer as well and so this platform economy lives of the medium-sized companies and once they are gone the basis for the platform economics have vanished and people in millions will be out of work and they won't be consuming anything and if they fail as consumers the system won't work anymore and this is why in the background they're working on a new system this new system bases on digital central bank money and this digital central bank money will be used as a universal income and to have it as a benefit for the people but it's all other than a benefit this is not about helping people survive who don't have income or give them a good standard of life but it's only about uh, people who can't be offered work keep them as consumers in the system and uh, now uh, it won't will no longer be an unconditional basic income well you can say a lot of things about it but there have been positive findings that it may have positive effects on the human being but of course this will be a conditional income it will be tied to the vaccination status it allows further controls checks and balances and um, you know and that means uh, that we would be entirely at its prey. That's a consequence of what we've seen in the last one and a half years that the social credit system like in China is try to be introduced this is not about vaccination only it's about biometric uh, digitization of the people that's the dream of these platform economics and they want to make it possible that all seven uh, billion people on earth are biometrically registered and of course um, we are threatened by a social credit system like in china that means when the individual is uh, not uh, coherent to the uh, state that their account can be uh, shut down 
Easily. So digital central bank money is nothing than the full slavery enslavement of the people by the central banks, and the central banks are the most important financial organs of the state. Now, many people say the central banks are blameable, are culpable for this uh, situation, but that's not true. They have been captured by the digital financial complex. The central banks cannot act different than they do because the whole world economy and that means the whole world financial system is in the hand of a very few people, players, which is the digital financial complex at the top of the five digital companies, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, Meta today, and uh, Apple is the fifth one. And on the financial side, the big asset companies, BlackRock and Vanguard, and if you look at these five big IT group companies and uh, look at who's the big shareholders, in all five of them, the big shareholders are Vanguards and BlackRock. In one uh, case, it's Berkshire Hathaway, who have a close connection again to BlackRock. So it's incredible how much money and how much data power is collected there. And that's crucial. And that's what's changed the face of our world in the last weeks and months. In the past, it was one medium that decided who has power. That was money. And now data has become just as important as money. And data corporates are not just incredibly rich. The stock value of the five biggest companies is about $10 billion. Uh, so it's not just incredibly rich, but it's they have insight in all the data flow of all the other companies that's what what they digitize and that they is how they took more power than any other power in the history of mankind that's just crazy that's insane right now so what's your take on that well ernst uh, you know for weeks we have put much energy in building up an international uh, criminal court and we have agreed to the phase to the point that we'll do that according to the american grand jury investigation grand jury investigation is uh, used in the u.s if you have to do with very very severe crimes where you want to challenge and accuse individual people without them being informed up front this is done as a grand jury investigation. Um, no lawyers are informed. The involved people are not informed. That's what we're doing now. The um, It's only going to uh, be a few puppets, uh, first-hand uh, Drosten, Pedros, a couple of them. And uh, as they... Um, are uh, looked at are warranted uh, for genocide in their own country but Bill Gates is also going to be one of the defendants as well and the point is that this first step into criminal proceeding as the grand jury proceedings is due to the fact that now we are still trying to keep to parts of the old justice system so that people can find their way. But in the US and on the African continent, there is also a big, big uh, effort going on to create a parallel legal system. Just as elsewhere, we're going back to the roots for a parallel education system 
economic system specifically. So uh, legal systems are important because the uh, legal system has to be cleaned up, or what's left of it, has to clean up the rest. We won't be able to stop it uh, with the legal system that we have in place. It's too weak for that, but we send out a signal. And we all agree that towards the end now, looking at it and what we have found out over the past two years, we all agree and that uh, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz has uh, pointed this out to us specifically. The real problem is financial criminality. Uh, financial industry is a misnomer. Um, the financial industry never produces anything. They just exploit, they destroy. I know that this is the case because I've been working for one of the most criminal organizations myself, the Deutsche Bank. And if you look at how the power is concentrated here, uh, then you can't get around of knowing that this is still the so-called financial industry. Uh, the big players, BlackRock and Vanguard is what you mentioned, and the digital comp corporates that are controlled by them are just as important, and quite rightly so, the data has is the new gold of the time. And if we really want to get somewhere, we have to be clear that what is played out to us, this psychological terrorism, uh, the illusion that's been created of a, pan of a pandemic by Corona only is to destruct us from the crimes of the financial industry over the past decades. I think that it should have exploded in 2008 or 9 already. At the time, it would have been the right point in time. Possibly then one could have uh, pulled the rudder around and uh, revived the old system. I doubt it. Maybe it was too plundered. Uh, but at that time, it was possible to see that there's no restraint, whatever. Uh, the example that we have in Germany, Wirecard, Cumex, is so drastic. It's so much fraud that you wonder that in the end, the new chancellor is some of them who was massively involved in both of these scandals. So that is really what we have to keep an eye on. The activity in the financial industry, the people who use that to get into the big flow of data and tech groups and pharma groups investing into them, but the reins are held in the back in the financial industry. That's what we have to keep our eyes on. And this is what we have to get. We have got so much evidence. We're going to get more today by Mike Eden. Uh, that the facts tell us that, uh, amongst others, in these big illusion, the so-called vaccinations are used to directly test lethal doses. We can see that in the batches or lots that are traceable in the US where we see that certain lots appear to be harmless. Probably none of them are really, but uh, um, so there are some lots in two, three states and nothing happens. That's going to have consequences as well because we've learned that the mRNA vaccines are surely in all cases switch down the immune system. So this will lead to a catastrophe, but then there are other lots that are clearly traceable as well and that in certain amounts and dosages are played with. 
um, that are distributed in not two but 36 states and we see the result is lethal really so in the end you have thousand uh, fatalities in one batch and nothing in the next and another thousand again Mike Uden is going to explain this to us in the afternoon why do I tell you this these are facts facts that have to be legally assessed they have to be anal analyzed legally and Mike has taken this this is a very compelling evidence of premeditated mass murder and this is really what it's all about and if we have this intent then none of the people involved in the system neither the doctors nor the politicians nor the media and of course not the pharmaceutical countries have any means to flee into immunity whatever they signed in intent that's what we have there is no immunity and the next point is here that in intent there is a punitive damage that can be claimed and here we are getting two million in punitive damages for everyone involved worldwide uh, most of them are by pain and suffering existences have been uh, damaged or uh, so if we take a million for every person that's a lower bottom and then the 25th one uh, we can get up to a thousand fold the damage that's going to be enough to ruin these groups uh, financial groups corporates are uh, the pharmaceutical countries companies which are ruled by some psychopaths paths here and it's long long overdue that we claim back what has been stolen from us over the past decades or centuries and build up a new society with that money the financial industry has played a central role here and i'm very happy to have you on board here just as catherine and a other uh, a couple of others. This is the knowledge that we're going to need. Well, that's enormous. Well, let me just. Uh, we have a whistleblower, or a number of whistleblowers from the field of the public media, public broadcasters. That's quite interesting, and they're going to divulge further details in the near future but something that becomes clear here is very fascinating apparently they they try to um, include the public broadcasters as a public infrastructure critical public infrastructure into the 2g um, i.e tested or um, recovered um, policy and uh, this uh, takes place at the expense of very expensive um, collaborate co-workers and um, you don't want people to walk around maybe with a mobile phone and maybe also uh, have a broadcast etc so they actually want to dispense with the cameraman so they want to restructure the broadcasters it's very difficult to get rid of the cameraman and uh, people and the inc old incumbents and they don't they don't want to play ball they don't want to be vaccinated vaccinated maybe they don't want to do the pcr test and apparently 
um, they say all people are equal, some are more equal than others, and uh, therefore they are subject to different to different rules. Um, some have to be vaccinated or provide proof or that they have been recovered and others don't have to provide proof and that's just a thing. I mean, apparently with tax funds, you are penalizing people and uh, at the same time you try to optimize themselves economically. We're going to report this. Apparently people are um, kind, of put, kind of putting up their hackets and um, they're that's a good thing. Well, it depends what's going to happen. Apparently, the narrative is beginning to evaporate. There's what we can see everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of toing and froing. Lauterbach now announced that we need to expedite the vaccination route. That uh, otherwise, you don't no longer have a rationale. Otherwise, everybody has uh, an indirect vaccination with Omicron because. Um, you no longer have any justification. So how much air is there in the system? What's your take? I don't take too much. I think we are in a transition phase. I've talked about the digital central bank money before. That's the goal, introducing this digital uh, currency, possibly by a universal basic income. But the system has not yet developed it far enough. So they have to play for time, really, to make it public in the background. Uh, we know without the public uh, uh, knowing there is a race between the US and China. The US has a couple of tests going on, for example, on the Bahamas. 380,000 people have given the sand dollar on their wallets, on their hands, uh, cell phone wallets, a digital currency in Eastern Caribbean. There's a couple of small states, St. Lucia, Guadalupe, where they are testing this. I think. There is a couple of local trials in Nigeria. It's been introduced, but uh, the Chinese are uh, upfront. They have issued 140 million wallets to private people, companies, and so on, but with a limited budget only. It's only small sums yet. It's not so difficult to uh, introduce this digital currency because the bank system has to be restructured completely in the course of that and that means insurance systems have to be adjusted all of that is affected and that's a massive uh, change and that needs to be planned and this is uh, just coming up and i think before they can clearly say we can do it now with the digital money uh, as this is how long it'll take uh, to keep us um, with the narrative that we have, or I think possibly um, there's going to be another one coming up, the climate change, uh, that all the measures which are now reasoned with the ultra-risky uh, virus, that, that will be uh, reasoned by the climate change. But we are in the traditional phase, and uh, the point is that on the other side, the loose solution is not there because the other side never thinks so far ahead. They are happy if they make big money and can make more. And in the background, they have a couple of people that work for them. So it's important to know that that digital complex has created an army of organizations that work for them. The big private foundations, the World Economic Forum, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Open Society from George Soros, but they have captured a lot of uh, un um, organizations. The United Nations, for example, are on their side. They started their own organizations like Better Than Cash Alliance to do away with cash. Um, this is, has been done in the background, but uh, these things are not quite 
finished yet and this is why we are going to have massive um, economic and financial turmoil in the future now yes but if you just imagine this i mean this central bank money i mean how much money will they receive maybe 1000 2000 euros and uh, there will be many people who earn more or once the system or they have different obligation maybe they need to pay back their mortgage whatever and maybe this will create turmoil very we could very well imagine this so um, it's a different notion than what was uh, initially the idea of the basic income that you get it on top that you get like a basic income and then this provides a platform for further creative leeway but theoretically everything will break down and everybody will be left to 1000 or 2000 euros income and so how can you survive on that that is a very critical stage so uh, if you can no longer continue to ride this wave of angst that this is you know this is going to help you survive in this incredibly difficult stage in your life i mean right now you've got restrictions but it doesn't really go to the heart of the or the essence of your current life i mean you can still eat and you can meet and of course there are restrictions i could very well imagine that we are now entering a very critical stage where you get all the anger and all that now it becomes evident in the form of rallies i mean very many people show this regular activists regular citizens show blogs on the street so just imagine what Joe Blow and Jane Doe is going to do uh, if something like uh, probably the army has to come in or very drastic measures in order to contain this um, this unrest so um, you know quite right quite right this is the big problem that they are stuck with that this problem cannot simply be introduced by democratic means and uh, they know that money in the form that we have it cash or normal digital money that we've had in the last decades book money that this cannot be kept up and they know quite surely that the next money is going to be this digital central bank money and as soon as the people find out what it's about probably they will reject it because that leads us to slavery uh, every single financial transaction of each one of us is controllable by the man by the banks can be much manipulated we could be taxed differently and we could be cut off from all financial means that's the financial nightmare as such uh, there is no self-determination for every citizen but they have to find some ex uh, exceptions the ultra rich are not going to put up with this and so probably that's where they are working on at the moment one possibility maybe for them there would be cryptocurrencies or they will get the gold standards outside of the system i think there's no solution to that yet everybody tries to forward their own ideas but no good ideas has have come up yet and this is why we see this incredible unrest for two years and the sticking to the old narrative because what they want to what their aim is is total breakdown and it sounds horrible but i think that in the end um we are going to they want civil war because then they can appear as the beneficiaries say we save you from all that bad by introducing that uh, central bank money digital central bank money
But first, you have to create absolute and total chaos. That's what we see, all the actions that are taken, uh, the energy crisis, which is not fought against in any way. It is started and initiated and uh, accelerated everywhere. We see it in the faster and stronger attack on the medium-sized company that is, everything is done to break down all the structures. At the same time, we also see increasing resistance. And lot people are waking up, and we should not, you know, lay back and rest on our hands. But we can be fairly assured that a few good men and women will be sufficient in order to make this entire card house come down. And we are more than just a few men, brave men and women. I mean, but it becomes very clear in the U.S. Uh, this is where the polarization in the uh, population is much more pronounced than here. At least 50% in the U.S. no longer play ball. And these 50% are you know, they, they don't have single weapons, but uh, double and tenfold uh, weapons. Uh, I mean, people have a different take on that compared to the Second Amendment a few, two or three years ago. Also in Europe, uh, yesterday we spoke to the international colleagues. Also in Australia, people no longer um, can be kept off the streets by extremely high fines, $5,000, $16,000, because the administration cannot keep up. They cannot conduct the lawsuits. They don't have the wherewithal for enforcement. This is what people understand all over the globe. On the one hand, they people try to create this humongous uh, illusion, but on the other hand, they can't. They've got no way of walking the talk. So therefore, we need to continue what we we are doing right now. We need to spread the information, not just collect information, but disseminate information across the entire globe. And based on this, this can provide people with reassurance. And this is also an important goal, by the way, of the grand jury proceedings, which we will be starting in over the next 14 days. So we don't just want to get indictments. We want to show people these are the facts and the figures. And based on these facts and figures, you can make up your own mind. And we also provide you with our with the right legal analysis. In Germany, contrary to other countries, we have a rule in our constitution which explicitly gives us the right um, for resistance, 20 sec subsection 4, that is. This is nowhere found nowhere else. And I spoke to an important German uh, expert in constitutional law, and he said 20 subsection 4 does exist, but we need to be very careful. We should not rely on courts because they are corrupted. No way the constitutional court, one of the biggest criminals, is uh, at the head of our constitutional court, which was installed by the other hand, and we should make make sure that this is not misunderstood if we say we have the right for resistance. This should not be confused with the right to violence. This is not an option. Violence is, we can no way do, do with violence. Well, and um, we should not provoke it. I think peaceful resistance is the best solution. Peaceful resistance with words and with unveiling the truth, providing a true and fair um, picture, and everybody will have understood that the others are lying by their teeth. Rainer, I think uh, most the, the most aggressive um, 
counterattack we can do to the system is being non-violent. We have this uh, picture that I shared somewhere else where you see a couple of police cars and 20 policemen and uh, they say, look, you have all been arrested and there is about 100,000 people around them and you see how disproportional this is and there's no chance and this is really it. Um, stop down, stand back, don't play part and don't fall for the provocations of the uh, violence that the others want to initialize because they need that excuse in order to uh, be violent and I think that's the point here and this is going to be possible because the people here are peaceful, they are peaceful but that doesn't mean that they accept everything and uh, um, they can be quite clear in saying what they think but no violence, um, that is not necessary at all. Yes, peaceful and friendly, that is uh, right, but we should not, not believe, especially the other side should not believe for, uh, for subject to this fallacy that friendliness is meek. Parts of our society are structured in a different way. They went through the tougher things. Uh, I mean, India, for instance, we just heard it from our colleague Dibai. This is where we've got a very punitive uh, legal court case with it, which is prosecuted by the um, counterpart of the American FBI in India, and they are um, attacking Bill Gates due to murder. And I mean, if his uh, cards um, are not right, I think the auspices are not right, uh, then uh, at the end of the day, maybe the lethal punishment will wait for him. I mean, you can uh, be of different opinions here, but I mean, the Indians, uh, based on their history, they won't you know, take any prisoners, but the, basically this means that we need to adopt a peaceful approach. We, we may also have to strike up contact with the security forces of the police, and this is what's happened right, happening right now, Juliana, an Australian colleague, very um, experienced criminal law expert, uh, got together with people from the UK and New Zealand and also from the US and struck up an alliance uh, with policemen former and current policemen and who try to reach out to the population and try to enter this resistance together as brothers in arms with the general population. Fascinating. I hear th similar things from Austria. So how long have they been doing this in the Bahamas, this exper experiment? I think slightly more than one year. <coughs> so they started in crisis. Uh, I think the central um, digital currency is being discussed for many, many years, over five years, and of course the public is not involved here uh, because they know that the public will not like this very much um, as it's being uh, introduced, it's always um, advertised for as being very secure and safe and so on. And I think all that wave of cryptocurrencies was allowed because people do not know the difference between digital central currencies and cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies work outside the banking system on blockchains. Uh, digital currency will probably also work on uh, blockchain, but it is the opposite of cryptocurrencies because it's centrally controlled by a single 
regulator, and that's a massive difference. So, but if you sum this all up, what's going on, then there has never been a time where it was better, easier to awaken the people of what's going on behind the scenes. Because for many years I've been holding lectures in front of a few people only. They all said it's not so interesting what uh, is going on in the financial system. I always said there's other people who had thousands of uh, listeners talking about uh, the uh, 2001 New York um, attack. And I have been talking about credit uh, insurances and uh, nobody was uh, attracted but now it's changed many people wake up and see what the pre the public is presented is just uh, an illusion and that a completely different agenda is behind this and this is directly connected with the financial and the digital system and i think uh, you can't really rest assured anymore that um, the small house you built or you inherited will be protected against this seizure i mean for quite some time we've noticed that even super rich the super rich uh, took refuge in the in real estate bill gates is supposed to be the biggest landowner maybe worldwide or maybe in the us i don't know and this was something that we could observe everywhere so big concentrations um big takeovers and uh, but on the other hand if you've got your small little cabin etc and you think everything's nice and well and you can have a bit of uh, cattle and grow something then you should not succumb to illusions that is sustainable in the long run because um I didn't look into it yet, but I think there's something that as a compulsory mortgage, etc., and um, in order to fund uh, potential vaccination uh, damage, etc., or to buffer the, the financial collateral damage of the crisis. So we can really brace ourselves that homeowners will be held to task. Well, there's no security on the side uh, in this situation anyway. <clears throat> the other side is fighting back. They're desperate. Uh, but it's like in a boxing fight. If a boxer gets desperate, uh, they're easy to knock down. And uh, we see this worldwide. Uh, we see that the narrative is uh, failing and we see that the other side is getting more and more furious, trying to stick to power and keep to power. But if we look back in history, it has never worked in the past. Liliana, we need to be careful <coughs> because we have a you guests who are waiting we have a tight uh, tight time budget uh, we should stay on course uh, so the thing is uh, the financial crime is something that people want to paper over and uh, at the same time the financial crime is white collar crime is what is most uh, you know dangerous for us so with the into together with the introduction of the passport it's not a passport it's a tracking pass which makes you completely controllable and allows you, uh, people to introduce the chinese uh, social credit system together with the introduction of the digital currency luckily the criminals are not quite as advanced yet and this is why they're putting up such a big fight because the time window of opportunity is closing on them and more and more people are get uh, you know coming to terms 
terms or understanding what's going on and this is why they're creating such a lot of pressure and i think it's wonderful that this really happened now and that we adopted this new approach here and that we're digging in the right holes right now and that we pay attention to what's going on here so it's really important to understand the narrative that is underlying there or to keep an eye on the actual agenda because if you know your opponent of course you know better how to defend yourselves thank you for the invitation Yes, thank you, thank you for coming. Right, so on to the next item, Professor Werner Bergholz on the agenda. And Professor Werner Bergholz is going to share a few salient points with us. Werner. Following to what Cynthia Chong has told us last week, probably you heard this, uh, Werner, we got massive feedback. Uh, that looks very, very nice or uh, illustrative. <coughs> yes, uh, that was... That was my uh, impression as well. Let me share my screen. I, I can't uh, share my screen. Let me briefly introduce you. Um, professor Werner Werkholz is a professor for electromechanics um, with a focus on quality and risk management at the Jakobs University in Bremen. That is where you worked. And before you were called to a professorship, you have been 17 years in uh, chip production with Siemens and uh, the organizational uh, issues that are coming up if you want to build new worlds is something that you are well acquainted with. Yes, uh, I had another focus which was renewable energies uh, focusing on uh, photovoltaic and when uh, last time I heard Cynthia Chung, I thought, well, I could follow her to some part of the way and then we kind of split up she turned left to atomic power uh, nuclear power i want to point out why this may not be the best way i go to the renewables and hope that i can uh, have a convincing argument that this is a good way to go but not with all force but in a sensible pace Otherwise, we'll get uh, into problems and we'll not get to the target. Okay, I can share my screen now. I think so, at least. I can't see anything yet. <clears throat> so as I've said, Cynthia had very convincing had a very convincing start in my point of view. You should see uh, my screen, energy as a non-limited resource. And quite rightly, she had said that under certain conditions, the energy is not limited she said the earth is a limited system and uh, with that of course its resources are limited 
and uh, that's why it was said that we have to restrict ourselves and we can't grow that has the aspect of are we too many people on earth and she said by no means and especially what she has shown us is that the energy the power creation generation is a very good indicator of the level of um, well-being that the states have what she said then is that in reality energy is unlimited so we could have all countries um, uh, the same energy as uh, the industrialized countries have China is picking up and uh, India China and the other Af African countries could get there as well we have uh, <clears throat> heard a lot of time this is not possible too much co2 will be emitted and so on i don't want to focus on that and since you said <clears throat> that nuclear power is a co2 free unlimited resource that sounds great 300 gram of uranium cover the lifelong uh, energy demand for a single person in their life and it'll only cost uh, $60 per kilogram. That sounds good, but I'll have to put some water in the wine. Um, following a research by the um, scientific services of the German Bundestag, um, the uranium reserves will only last 50 to 150 years and uh, as she said we could build another power plant nuclear power plant every uh, couple of days of course this would reduce this time span would reduce substantially but she had the answer ready which is the breeder technology with a reconditioning then this could be extended by the factor 10 or 100 that would all be quite nice but as always the uh devil is in the details and i've been i've spent 15 years of working with radioactive um materials i've uh, trained been trained in karlsruhe and as someone who is acquainted with this um is a horror scenario why we all remember uh, the Chernobyl disaster and you have to be clear that only 1% of the radioactive inventory of that block 4 actually escaped to the environment and Chernobyl is uh, widely not inhabitable anymore and even in Bavaria where I lived at the time the radioactive fallout was so strong that you couldn't uh, pick mushrooms uh, 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 milk had to be um, poured away and many agricultural products were unedible so we only came away with a part of the project of the disaster D japan had a massive strike of luck in their disaster 
at the time because at the time when it happened the wind was blowing from the west and a large part of the Fukushima fallout dropped to the Pacific. If the wind at the time had blown from the other side, northwest, um, as is common in that time, Tokyo and the 15 million inhabitants in the land behind it would have been radioactively um, contaminated. And I don't want to think of the catastrophe that would have meant. But we don't have to go um, looking at the coffins here. I think the costs are prohibitive. The cost structure, looking at that uh, from the document of the um, science of, uh, of the research department of the federal uh, government of the federal parliament, large of it, a large part shows its uh, investment. Atomic waste, nuclear waste, with five percent is massively underestimated because the final storage and the uh, refusal um, which um, comes from uh, tearing down the plants is much more. So we are talking about hundreds of billions of euros here. And um, uh, handling the fuel rods is not free either. We see that concrete in England, a new power plant is built, which is Hinkley Point, and which is only economic if they charge 11 cents per uh, kilowatt hour. I think that is in the contractual conditions, and it has to be compared to what the uh, power of from a coal power plant is with 4% and what uh, large um, photovoltaic uh, systems uh, is is about four cents per kilowatt hour if i build that on my rooftop then we talk about eight cents but that is still much less than we pay which is 30 cent per kilowatt hour in germany and if we look to spain or north africa we talk about 1.5 to 2 cents per kilowatt hour. So that is the cheapest way to produce um, electric power at all. And it's going down still. That's the trend. And all these technologies are well controlled and only need to be implemented. So my state is that energy is unlimited but from renewable sources and uh, the sun doesn't care uh, whether we use uh, wind or photovoltaic of course there are some challenges here as well the uh, first question of course is what will it cost uh, in material to uh, consider CO2, how long does it take? Uh, with wind, we are at six months. Photovoltaics, we are probably uh, below 18 months by now in the payback period uh, because the efficiency increases. And the good thing is all materials for silicium-based photovoltaic, uh, that is 95% of the materials are recyclable. And there is no material problem. Silicium 
is the fourth most frequent um, element in the uh, surface of the Earth. Uh, though wind turbines have a problem, they are glass fiber reinforced uh, uh, plastics. Um, but if that can only be disposed of, it's not a big problem compared to what uh, nuclear power plants produce and the conventional materials uh, like concrete, steel, and so on can be recycled or disposed of without problems. There is trials to do timber towers for um, uh, w uh, wind turbines as well. So the biggest problem at the moment is the volatility of energy creation with renewables. But that doesn't mean that it can't be forecast, at least for a couple of days ahead. It can be up to in the levels of a couple of percent. And we've got lots of photovoltaics and wind all over Germany that it's no, no problem to adjust the conventional power plants to cover the basic load and if we have not enough renewable energy uh, to give them a headway to start them up. But um, there is something missing to do that self-regulatory, but we'll come back to that in a minute. The risk that is very real at the moment is uh, if we force it too fast now and we phase out the existing coal and nuclear power plants, then we will surely have problems. As far as I have the figure in my heart, the nuclear power plants do about 10% of our capacity and coal, I don't know the figure, but that's uh, substantially more. But if we phase out 10%, the risk of an overload of the system, of course, is going to be more real, and that may uh, then lead to a blackout. That's the consequence. So what is missing? Well, that is hydrogen. Hydrogen is a topic here, and we can take the excess energy from renewables, solar, and how much we'll need is what we're going to see, and convert it into hydrogen. And that can be stored in gas storages in any quantities by now. So how much will we need is the question. We'll need only enough to do to go for a month only. Uh, because the sum of photovoltaics and wind in Germany over the months is quite constant. So if we have a bad weather period, we have a lot of wind, and if then we have enough wind power. If the weather is good, we have not so much wind, but more photovoltaic. And we have November as a month where both can coincide. Uh, or overwhelm with high probability and for that we'll have to help out with hydrogen. This technology, however, is fully developed. I have um, I joined a an experts meeting to 
promote research projects. And there was one of the Karlsruhe Institute of uh, Technology who has led this hydrogen technology development. And they said it's already, we only have to industrialize it. So what does that mean? We need electrolysis and we need fuel cells. Electrolysis to convert electricity into hydrogen and fuel cells to turn it back into power and heat. And we need 100% more, 100-fold more capacity. And from my industrial experience, I can say if we have um, to increase over 40% of the existing capacities, that's a massive challenge. And so that would mean if we do a concentrated action now, sticking to the 40%, it'll take us 15 to 20 years to fully industrialize that technology. But if we phase out the coal plants in the next 10 years, we won't be able to cover that gap. So in other words, we can do it until 2040 if we want to, and at reasonable costs, what we need, and here I look for a repeated analysis of the Institute for Solar Energy in Freiburg, ISE. That's a Fraunhofer Institute, and I can understand and fully follow what they have simulated for the hydrogen economy. The goal is that we not only generate f uh, power, but all other uh, energy needs, buildings, industrial heat and energy and traffic as well to at least 90%. And for that, we'll have to extend the photovoltaic systems from 60 to 240 gigawatts. That wouldn't be any issue at all. And the wind from 60 gigawatts at the moment to 180 gigawatts. And of course, have the respective capacities uh, for the hydrogen. <coughs> and this is doable. <coughs> and the good point is, and that's been scientifically proven, it will be possible at the same cost as we face today. Uh, contrary to this, it was simulated as we do it today, if we carry on the way we have gone down, costs are going to double at least. And we would have to spend 100 million euros uh, per year to uh, save energy. <clears throat> we would save 100 million euros because we don't have to import energy and we would have no political dependency. Just think of North Stream gas pipeline and so on. And the residual capacity, 10%, would be conventional energy uh, to provide a certain robustness of the system. <clears throat> okay, so let me sum this up. The point I wanted to make is that with renewables, 
we can really generate unlimited energy sources. A missing link is the production capacity for fuel cells and electrolyzing systems, which will take 15 to 20 years to industrialize this capacity-wise. And this could be done at the same cost as of today. And there's one more aspect which I haven't mentioned so far, but that is crucially important, which is the power production until today is big technology, centrally controlled. And I call this new aspect democratization of electric power supply. <clears throat> the good thing about photovoltaics is that everyone, independent of whether they live in a house or a flat, can produce a certain amount of their own energy, electric energy. And today there's six times of photo, six types of photovoltaic systems which are listed here. Um, I'll just uh, quickly go through this. This is worth an extra contribution. A normal rooftop system as we have it on a house is about 5,000 to 8,000 euros depending on the size. And from that, uh, we can calculate the cost uh, of the Energy uh, Act is 8 cents. Uh, for that, I get maybe 9% for kilowatt hour that I feed to the system and I save 30% if I use my own power. So the payback period for this is seven to ten years. Our system is ten years old, so it has reached that payback point in three years because we can use a lot of our own energy. If you live in a flat only, you can have, you can get a so-called uh, plug-in or balcony um, system. That's just a couple of modules one meter fifty by a meter, they have an included um, transceiver. That means you can simply plug it to your mains outlet in the wall <coughs> and it'll feed into your system without anybody having to install anything. And this is quite price efficiently 600 to 1200 euros and if i want to do more i can put up a rooftop system with a battery and an emergency system of course that'll be substantially more expensive but for some time i will have a possibility to cover a, a blackout for a couple of days, which um, I can extend by uh, reducing my power consumption. But that's less uh, expensively possible with uh, DC current PV and a battery, all sizes. You can start with 100 euros, giving you light uh, with LEDs and charging your cell phone, operating your computer. <laughs> if it's big enough, 
<coughs> or I do that with a little compact uh, um, uh, inverter. I can use that. Uh, which will be about a thousand or two thousand euros and that means I take a load of the grid and if you have money on the bank I can only recommend just after hearing what Ernst Wolf has told us invest into this kind of uh, rooftop system uh, at least one without a battery if you can and if you look at the uh, payback periods, looking at the interest rates, it's a good investment. It'll last longer than 20 years. It'll do 30 years probably. And uh, that means you get about 10% interest rates on your money. So uh, that is uh, what I wanted to say. I think it's really important to see that we have umpteen possibilities uh, to take a closer if you take a closer look at this. And you presented this uh, very interestingly. And I have a friend, I think they even hold a patent on an ever. Um, ever stronger uh, efficiency with PV photovoltaics and I think there's a further scope for development than contrary to what we have available in the market in terms of methods so I think uh, there's more scope for increasing the efficiency in the future could I come in if we stay with DC and uh, anything that uh, includes DC, I mean illumination, all electrical devices, etc. And if you get thermal pumps that are DC co compatible, unfortunately they are still not available. So with our DC system, I'm working with um, people who um, are called uh, DC GBR and uh, they have a 30% better efficiency at the point of use and all of this is not rocket science you just need to do your maths you just need to you know for a regular house it's not quite as banal you need an additional electrical grid for DC but um, partly I have this at home because I'm an expert and I realize it it does work indeed great I do think it's important that we look into the various options here and I think this is the right approach that uh, we adopt decentralized solutions both politically and perhaps also technically speaking and there's also other options I mean somebody told me about this also when you have water treatment I think I was really impressed somebody told me I think uh, in that purification system you can enter a bale of straw and then you get especially clean and wonderfully smelling water out at the other side at the at the other end I think that's very in 
interesting developments and we should keep an eye on that so watch that space in the future maybe if this exchange at a decentralized level will continue then all of the many um, diy experts which we have in germany and across the entire globe will get together will pool their brain power and this will create a huge momentum we um, we are noticing, I mean, many things are backshaved right now. You mentioned hydrogen technology a minute, a minute ago. I think there's a few students in southern Germany who wanted to convert an engine for hydrogen uh, uh, consumption. And uh, they developed it and they got an award for young uh, scientists. And um, I know about friends who looked into hydrogen technology for cars. They already conducted first very promising talks with automotive manufacturers. But as soon as they, the level reached the uh, technical points of uh, contact, and as soon as it reached the board level, um, it was an end to the technology. And uh, people uh, started talking about how you could prevent this technology from entering the modern uh, Well, that was quite some time ago. Maybe things have changed in the meantime. I think you can buy a Toyota and Hyundai model. And you need to bear in mind Mercedes uh, back in 20, uh, in 2000, uh, tried to launch a Mercedes A-Class on the market. And it, however, there were still a couple of technical hiccups back then. But I'm sure right from the word go, right now, Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, etc., can offer that kind of uh, car. But it's a matter of the chicken and the egg dilemma, because right now we don't have enough hydrogen filling stations fuel stations and I read a report an article somewhere where it was proven that for trucks it is not feasible to realize this hydrogen um, drive and I did the maths and I came to the conclusion that it's absolute ru rubbish uh, so short-term um, cars I mean um, battery cars 100 200 kilometers and the long haul is um, you know, is the area where hydrogen uh, cars make best sense, make most sense. At the Fraunhofer Institute, the IFA, there is an interesting development. Uh, they developed the so-called power button from uh, from some kind of material which uh, is more or less low cost, and it has the same and even higher energy density than petrol. So it would be possible if it were to be developed that you get this box, maybe you put this box in your car or have it installed in your car, have it inserted, and then you, you know, hand the other car, hand it back when, it, when you've driven 500 kilometers. And the same thing for home, for your home, you get a small container with this core paste and it's sufficient for the generation of power and hydrogen. Something that's available already now is a complete uh, system for houses where which allows you to generate to create your hydrogen yourself in a, a big pressurized vessel or container so which you which allows you to generate uh, power in winter 
and uh, you can also no no power in summer and uh, heat in winter and you could decouple yourself altogether from the grid but it's lo and behold 50k mind you 50,000 euros it's it's still very challenging I spoke to an economic engineer who I met whom I met on the train and he did the maths this summer and he said well all of this is valid and it would be even recommendable from that point of view all right thank you that was extremely interesting actually this was like a follow-up to the meeting which we had at the end of the year Werner now I think you brought something along in matters corona you had a look at the weekly report of the RKI Institute so what is your takeaway well in that weekly report of the RKA RKI I don't know what to start with I'll start with the most important things first of all the report of the 30th of December was changed without this being notable and uh, for me this uh, as a layman looks a bit like fraud of course you have to show that you changed the documentation and if I have a so-called control document which is what what this is um, and I change it it has to be uh, has to have a revision history and a history that tells us what was changed and when and why and it has to be republished has to be uh, made clear who authorized the change but that even went to the main press as a notable process and the second thing I'd like to note is that the latest figures of the um, weekly report on the Omicron variant if we can believe these figures and I'll do so for the time being it's not as in the past we have 10% or 5% of the positively tested hospitalized but only one percent so that means what we have heard from Canada and Denmark other countries England as well where this has been seen that this Omicron variant is much much harm more harmless and even the top panic uh, guy Neil Ferguson in England uh, opened uh, published a document where he said that Omicron is only 30% as dangerous uh, to send people to hospital and current data of um, mortality for, um, by Omicron is 0.05% so another magnitude less and the study from Canada did match pair studies with people who had Omicron or Delta positive tests, six to eight thousand people. And there the finding was that the Delta people, uh, seven people died and Omicron none. 
So these are extremely good news, really. So these are the two major points that I would like to mention as well. That's incredible. Wow. So if you kind of try to sync this with the way Omicron is treated in the mainstream media and uh, the alleged breakdowns that are supposed to, supposed to occur in this context is absolutely fascinating. It's complete nonsense. It's a gigantic fake. Um, uh, uh, um, your, your layman uh, assessment of falsification of documents is quite clear. We can only uh, confirm for this. And we see the desperation on how that panic mode is to be kept up here with these kind of things. Well, you could, uh, you know, document um, where, where people are doing a shoddy mm. job. Uh, Wolfgang Budak is in charge of that. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that presentation. I'm getting sick of these weekly reports, really, but they have been important, of course, because um, they are a uh, fraction of a serious monitoring which did take place in the past to monitor influenza where they wanted to sell vaccines for as well. That was the idea of the monitoring in the first place. Um, with all the uh, monitoring of the acute respiratory diseases, we have this uh, pinning down on individual agents and uh, now it's coronavirus, but it's always a distorted picture. We've always got 200 different types of pathogens in the respiratory, and we can test for 40 of them. And um, they are never alone. They only come like like a, a crowd, like like the herbs on the on the on the lawn, and whether they make us sick depends on uh, what the competition is amongst them, how strong they are, what we have been through in the years before, and so on. So we don't have to be afraid at all, because it's all been going on for thousands of years. And our immune system and the viruses play well. There is a back and forth movement. But what we see is being named as COVID-19 in our hospitals. It's always said that these are the people who didn't get their vaccines. They are all unvaccinated and so on. And we've got these data that they didn't find. They don't even look whether the people are vaccinated or not and just uh, count them as unvaccinated when they didn't look. And what's even worse, I think that you only are counted as vaccinated if the jab is more than a fortnight ago. And we know that the PCR test is positive after the vaccination, as well as the acute complications uh, come up in the first uh, couple of uh, in the first uh, fortnight after the vaccination. So people come to hospitals by the intoxication of the vaccines with myocarditis or other immunologic um, <clears throat> conditions. And they are counted as unvaccinated, although it, well, they are vaccinated because the first uh, 14 days are uh, shut out. And this is something that must be um, in the awareness of Robert Koch Institute as well to create that narrative of fear on us. And that the journalists 
who used to be critical and scrutinizing in the past, they all blow the same horn now in the big media. It's just getting ridiculous. I don't watch TV anymore, and I didn't even before, but when I did in the past, I uh, found things. But what's going on now uh, from uh, dusk to dawn is Corona, and it's fear, 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 all that bullshit all the time, and that journalists, uh, what do they think they are when they go home at night? I think uh, this is, uh, they can't be as stupid as that, uh, apparently they aren't. So, you know, sooner or later it's all going to come out, and Ernst just said this, I mean, this entire building of lies, this House of Cards is going to break down, because there's too many people who no longer accept blindly what they're being presented, for instance, the figures of the RKI, and they finally start to gradually begin to think, even the vaccinated. So, Anna, you had something else that you wanted to tell us about, because we have Squares and somebody in uh, our Slovenian guest, Ethylene Oxide. Tell us about it. Yes. Actually, by accident, I stumbled on these uh, smear sticks um, that it says EU on them, and I looked into this, and I found uh, Ethylene Oxide, which is anything else but a harmless gas. As I have been working with vacuum systems, I thought if they are gassed, then it is sure that residues of ethylene oxides, oxide are on the test, uh, on the sample uh, sticks and um, on the swabs. And <clears throat> I found this um, on the normal ear cleaning sticks, even months after production and I created a little document for that which has been spread quite widely apart from all the other problems um, with the health issues with these tests and since a month we even have got measured measured values on the initiative of the Klagerparten who funded this and another parent initiative for North Rhine-Westphalia, they called the round table. And the outcome is, yes, definitely, we have ethylene oxide on it, on the swabs. Luckily, not as much as feared, but there is a simple rule for food stuff, anything that gets into the body, ethylene oxide, there is no limit value. As soon as it is, present and it is proven to be present this has to be thrown away <coughs> food stuff is uh, thrown away as we've seen in the past months a couple of times um, if it's found that's a requirement of the federal institute for risk assessment foodstuffs and everything that is inserted into the body and partly these uh, swabs uh, uh, break off. They um, clearly have leave parts in the body that is absolutely unacceptable. And I'm in contact with a journalist, and this is again hard to understand that the, the um, authorities um, push the rod along, really, and don't do anything. 
And I have been pointing this out for a couple of months, for half a year already, that there is a risk and nothing is undertaken so far. And the reaction is that we have swabs now that says A, R for radiation used as deliration, that will be okay. But if we know how laborious um, the radiation with cobalt 60 is, you need massive institutions and they have not all the capacity because that's not done in a minute only. You, they have to have a certain dosage. Um, it is not very credible for me if it marks R, it is R. Um, so the request I have for all the authorities, whoever they are, uh, the Federal Drug Association or the ministries, uh, the school ministries that request this, they would have the duty to follow up on this. And until now, I don't see anything being happened. What does the R stand for? So it has to be approved medical products and uh, it's being used an awful lot for diagnostic purposes. It has to be medical products and BFA has to approve them BFA. That's right, BFA is what they're called. And, and how does that stuff enter food stuff? Well, you can only guess that um, the um, ethylene oxide is used illegally to gas the food stuff because it's uh, less expensive. It's well, you do that in order to increase the sell-by date. And uh, f we know that there's bacteria contamination in spices very often, and uh, it's a way of attempting to sterilize spice. Or um, partly you use gamma rays to do that, and probably also illegally with chemicals. And uh, it's very difficult to prove, but well, it's a matter of checks and of controls. And one more thing, ethylene oxide is extremely cancerous and uh, causes damages to uh, the DNA. So a data sheet uh, from Linde, who is the largest uh, gas supplier for all technical gases, uh, that safety data sheet uh, states this. So it's 100% sure. <coughs> so this applies to all these substances, there's no limit, so absolute zero tolerance. That's crazy if you think that uh, children at school are tested twice or three times a week and tested if they want to go shopping and only have 2G or with test or whatever, 3G, it's, uh, it's too much, it's too much. 
So the place where the swabs are being used is extremely sensitive, so the, the location. This is where the lymphatic tissue is based, and this is where highly reactive and very sensitive tissue can be found. And if you do this at the front of your nose with a Q-tip, perhaps, maybe the skin barrier is much more robust. So is not as uh, you know susceptible as I think, especially in the back in the nasopharyngeal area, it's a very delicate field because this is the link through the various cells and through this extremely um, thin layer to the brain. And I mean, entering something uh, something toxic here. Uh, is highly risky, uh, highly risky, and uh, um, you know also the mechanical damage, etc. And we don't have trained people doing that. It's laymen who are released, and they usually don't know that the nose doesn't go to the top, but they, they that it goes horizontally. Um, so hardly anyone knows this. <clears throat> We keep thinking that the nose goes from the bottom to the top, but that's like you know when you pick your nose. But usually, but actually, it's it's horizontal, and therefore people put the swab up too high. Uh, some, somebody said once, the only thing that gets in my nose is my finger. <laughs> well, the thing is, the bottom line is it's highly toxic stuff, cancerogenous. And it's, it damages the DNA, and it shouldn't be long on the swabs, but this is where it can be found on the test swabs. And secondly, we can all even prove it on, this is what you're saying, food stuff. Well, bon appetit, my guys. Anyway, I think we should not let the others wait for any longer. Thank you very much for that uh, presentation and the clear picture. I th I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back. By the way, Hermann Scheer's book is something I would like to uh, shamelessly plug here. So my old friend and comrade Hermann Scheer um, uh, wrote something, Energy Addict, and uh, he provided such a succinct picture of these matters, and it's wonderful uh, illustration of the power interrelations and the uh, political backgrounds and the feasibility of what Professor Bergholz uh, reported to us can be read up in a very detailed, very compelling way in his book. Maybe we could uh, mention Professor Eike Weber as well in this context, who has <coughs> been the director of the ESA Institute in Freiburg for six, five, six years. And he's retired now, and he has clearly promoted these things that I have uh, said. I think we have to be grateful to him. If we hadn't forced this as far, our findings wouldn't have gone so far of what's possible. What's important is that we have sounded the alarm bells once again, because most people were not really aware of that. I know that this uh, topic, ethylene oxide, kept popping up, but it's very important that people should know that it doesn't belong on the swabs, let alone on foodstuffs. So it's cancerogenous and it harms your DNA. 
and uh, they reach their goal if we play ball so we should not play ball here but Werner thank you very much you'll stay here we'll get a few more medical professionals here medical professionals in but first of all uh, over to our Slovenian guest Clara Wusem is a professor and uh, studied German letters and uh, she's the founder of the Slovenian uh, lawyers for um for 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 clarification sorry yeah, no, I, I can explain my story how i came to be what i am uh, i'm a linguist german linguist i've studied linguistics and literature and i did my ma I, well, I haven't finished it yet. Maybe I'll do one day. And I looked into education in my studies. So I have to start by praising you. Today, you call the session The Fog is Rising. That's very symbolic. And the fog is lifting is what they called it and i very much appreciate the titles i don't know who comes up with these titles um a great praise viviana and corvin do them okay great very nice work so how did i get to the activists that is a, a longer story i'll keep it short though i um, follow the German lawyers, Markus Heinz and, and Beate Wange, uh, who say that uh, if a law is misused, resistance becomes a duty, and I could never stand um, inequalities. My parents can tell you stories of that, but that's my nature. And in the first part, I would like to talk about our activist groups in Slovenia. So I am member in many groups right from the start. And that means since 2020, in April or May, when all of this started, that's the first part. And then the second part, I would like to talk a bit about our group lawyers for enlightenment uh, that has been working for quite a while if that is okay with you yes yes it is okay <clears throat> so in slovenia the political situation may be a bit different from what it is in other european countries which is that here protests started already in april end of april or in may but as it turned out these rallies and this resistance was only against the current government with janus jansha at the top probably heard that name janus jansha was not elected by the public before him we had marian charitz but immediately after the return of Marian Charitz from Davos, his, he, he resigned 
That was on the 29th of January 2020, and he was replaced by Yanis Yancha. Why? Well, that is easy to guess because Yanis Yancha, uh, probably you know that we have a reckless and strong and fascist front and because this is a characteristic that unfortunately characterize our prime minister uh, he is reckless and mean i have to say so he has immediately introduced strict measures so months of um, house arrests uh, lockdowns mask mask uh, wearing and immediately after taking office he had which is normal but he had did done very good work in explain exchanging everybody at important posts for his people even in the statistical um, office which is quite telling and here I have um, explained about the protests that evolved in April and May against Janusz Janczak, but immediately it came out that they were not against vaccinations or other things, but focused against the taking power of him. And this is why immediately other protests started to take place. So the protests against youngsters were always on Fridays, um, which were done with uh, bicycles. They were called the bicycle protests. And then there were other protests. And these were against the measures and also again the um, the, the actions and these started in September but unfortunately within these groups uh, a number of different groups organized themselves of course they all were unified in the target to stop the measures and to get back the liberties the civil rights and so on but unfortunately there some of these groups also pursued other political goals or other goals and as i am observing now the common sense prevailed at least i believe it does um, I think we have never heard in these hearings that because in the activists' groups there is a lot of splitting going on. Uh, some activists deny the virus, other things, uh, the earth is flat, and these are things that do not belong here, in my opinion and that there is no hearings 
um, is is not good because this kind of statements are not good for us. And I think uh, the expert, experts have to look into these questions after this corona war that's going on. So the governments and everything else um, watch every word that we say and want us uh, to discredit. And uh, with that, we give them opportunity to do so. So this is one thing that I need to address here. So where is he coming from? Where is he from? What's his background, Yasha? Is he from the Young Global Leaders Program? What's his background, Janusz Jankcza? No, no, he isn't. He is the former communist. Ah, okay. So he is very active. He was very active in communism, but then suddenly he changed sides, apparently. And now he is a right-wing extremist. Strange, but things do happen like this. Maybe um, Magister Kurz could explain the political discussion, uh, discuss, uh, the situation in detail. He has studied political science and he's surely the better person to comment on this. What I wanted to say is that in this war and the protests, uh, amongst the activists, it would be very good if we could focus on the main points, which is lifting of all measures, reinstalling civil rights and civil liberties. I don't know what the situation in Germany is like. Are there splittings in the activists' groups? Here, this is a major problem. Although, as I've said, I do observe that the common sense is prevailing, and I hope it will do in the long run as well. I think that's so interesting, but we need to ask ourselves whether the people who deal with more remote issues and uh, eventually, you know, jump on the measures issues and link them with exotic topics which are rather extraneous. So you should actually wonder whether they are authentic or whether they are fake. Uh, yesterday I spoke to somebody who who looked a lot at social movements and cathartic uh, events, maybe in the terrorist area, etc., and uh, focal points where sooner or later decisions were adopted, uh, laws, rulings were passed. And suddenly you get uh, people cropping up who pretend to be very left-wing, but who don't, who are not. And this is apparently the case also here, or that uh, suddenly they are very interesting links to the Secret Service area. I mean, that was very prevalent in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and we have proof of that, like the RAF in Germany in the old days or a couple of years ago, I thought they, the RAF was authentic authentic or maybe misguided and became a violent organization. But apparently, right from the word go, this was co-orchestrated or maybe also co-initialized with the by the uh, secret by the German secret services or intelligence agencies. And it also or what uh, Ernst Wolf told us um, 
it is also clear that we have different lobbies behind this and that this tends to go into a completely different area. And then it becomes very difficult point when the corona narratives are critically uh, put to the test. And if I wanted to push this, maybe I would infiltrate uh, a couple of people who then at the same time deal with more exotic topic or extraneous topics and uh, suddenly add a flavor that uh, taints the entire cause for the broad masses. We are well aware that resistance here differentiates. There are a couple of people amongst these, we don't live name anybody here who have we've become aware of and we keep our distance to them we don't want to build up any fronts publicly but we are well aware and we personally are attacked again and again by these people i'm always nice and friendly but i don't react to it because i'm convinced after all what we've learned that some of these groups are nothing else than trying to damage us by contacts uh, for example it's not going to happen to us <clears throat> because we have got a tight network that uh, makes sure that we don't get too close to these groups but tell us what how how was uh, the uh, lawyers for enlightenment founded in slovenia well, what was the cause for founding uh, lawyers for enlightenment that's a strange story behind that actually um at one point, I think it was August 2020, uh, I listened to your address, your speech in Berlin. If you recollect, if you remember, I think uh, the, uh, I think Kennedy also spoke in Berlin at one point in the past. And um, what came to my mind uh, were words such as class action lawsuit. And then I asked a whistleblower, an activist at a rally, and asked him, what does this mean, class action lawsuit? And he actually was also unaware of what it really meant. And back then, I did not did a lot of translations, and there was a group which are funded of interpreters, translators, and um, we had a lot of evidence, many documents. At one point, I got a call from a lawyer, from a law firm, a rather large law firm, and the lawyer asked me whether I would like to work with him. Of course, I said yes immediately. And I brought all, brought along a wonderful friend, Ramila, and sister-in-arm, and uh, invited her. She studied functional medicine in the US, and she is very familiar with this area. This was the early beginnings. This is how we started, and then, we filed many punitive uh, damages uh, suits. Uh, that was as early as at the end of December 2020. So we already started in September. Of course, that wasn't good enough that you only have one law firm working. Therefore, 
I started contacting other law firms. At the end of the day, I brought together a group of lawyers, legal experts, and judges, as barristers, judges in our group. And uh, this was the beginning of this group at the beginning of 2021. How do the proceedings, what do the proceedings look like? What's going on in the courts? Okay, what's going on at court? Oh, well, quite something is happening here. The Federal Constitutional Court is not quite as active. Same applies to all other countries, Austria and Germany as a parallel. So the Constitutional Court, unfortunately, is um, of the same opinion as the politicians. But in June 2021, our Supreme Court, COPA, took the decision or ruled that the mandatory wearing of masks is not a criminal offense. But people still wear masks voluntarily. And I need to point out that all our injunctions or measures were to know or are not based on any legal foundation. There is no legal foundation for our action in the infection law. So they wanted to amend the infection protection law in June, July 2021. And at that point, we really put our foot on the ground and protested strongly and contacted the National Council and our MPs. And then finally, we made sure that this law amendment did not take place. Because the amendment could also pave the way towards compulsory vaccinations. Now, they not abandoned the project for the time being. But let me do the math. When was it? But a PKP, this is a, an act that was passed, but we feel that it's harmless. Um, you know, the various expert opinions, however, vary in uh, to vary, uh, but we don't see any avenue towards compulsory vaccinations as a result of this act. But at bottom line, one will have to find that your courts are working just as well as the German courts are and the Austrian courts are. Definitely, yes. definitely. Yes, you're right. So there's not much going on there. That was my impression right from the start and my conviction, conviction that we have to do an international cooperation and select the best uh, lawyers and uh, select courts where we have a chance to change something and not waste our time elsewhere. We've got the same problem here in Germany. If you're very, very lucky, you get to a court with a judge who still has the courage. You have to consider the courage uh, <clears throat> to uh, actually use their 
independency, which is apparently only on paper. Apart from that, we take only the court courses to unveil the corruption in the legal systems. Yes. 90%, 80, 90% are vaccinated. So all judges in our country and also the constitutional court judges or the judges at the con constitutional court. So basically it's very, very difficult. We try to do something with various small um, um, court cases which we bring to court and um, maybe sooner or later we'll be successful, but we will not stop. We will continue to file complaints and uh, um, yes, and we will not stop. Something else I found very interesting, well, not exactly interesting, but it's a parallel to many other countries. I spoke to MPs and to members in the National Council and wanted to explain to them what was going on. I must say that they live in a completely different world, <laughs> different universe, which is miles apart from us. They don't understand that what we're dealing with right now is war and that Corona is just a pretext for something entirely different. Let me also point out, in Parliament, we have no support. There is no single party that is on our side, contrary to our Germany, the basis. Um, this is your party, congrats, and also AFD is on your side, and FPÖ in Austria, and the newly founded MFD. Something else that's very important in Bosnia, we have POS, the POS party, and that party was founded by a lawyer, Ms. Ayanovic, and I spoke about it already a couple of days ago. On the 20th of December, he was successful and he could hold the vac compulsory vaccination. That was in the canton of Sarajevo. In Bosnia, we have 10 different cantons. And Mr. Yavnovic, I spoke to him yesterday on the phone. Mr. Yavnovic said that in the parliament, as recent as one hour ago, uh, there a decision was taken that as of tomorrow, i.e. as of today, all people, all 60 plus and um, health professionals will have to have had the vaccination. So what is that? Is that a mixed picture? So it's a mixed picture. There are some successes apparently and some uh, areas that reveal the vaccine ma vaccination mandates are stopped and other ways it's uh, going forward. Yes, I think you may see it like that. And something else, because we're a very small country, 2.1 million inhabitants, maybe that we can start in our country, since it's so small. Germany is large, and France, obviously, also. So if we get international support or strike up an international alliance, maybe it's not such a crazy idea. Why not? If people 
come to Slovenia from abroad in order to protest, like one million in Berlin? Well, just think, what can we do with one million? Then we have one plot which has been liberated. Uh, you know, this is how it happened in the Second World War. Not, not such a bad idea. We should think on how to put this. Exporting a revolution, yes. <laughs> exactly. So, peaceful occupation of Slovenia or Switzerland. Switzerland's fairly small, too. So, you may want to think about that. <laughs> well, uh, should we perhaps move on to Gregor Kosh? Hello, Mr. Kosh. Yeah, vielen Dank. That's fine with us. Go ahead. You want so, to tell us a little about the economic situation in Slovenia, right? Um, I would so the political situation in Slovenia, right? Yeah. Also, I concentrate myself on the political situation. Capital of Slovenia, Ljubljana. And just to understand uh, the current political situation in Slovenia, I have to make these uh, few steps uh, in the history just to understand where and why we are here now um, as in the situation we are. So um, some people might know that uh, in the history, in the relatively recent history, we were part of the country which was called Yugoslavia. And don't worry, I'm not um, either Tito nostalgic or communism nostalgic. Why I'm bringing this to you, because um, there we learned some very important values, which were solidarity and comradeship. Um, for example, just to give you a glimpse, um, the public roads and public uh, in, uh, institutions were built by the so-called uh, voluntary brigades, uh, youth brigades, um, and things like that. Um, also, during the Second World War, um, Yugoslavia were organized the so-called Avnoi, and what is that? It was the anti-fascist council for the national liberation of Yugoslavia. So very close to this, what we are now doing globally against uh, Mr. Global and the uh, pandemic. So we are very close to that. But most importantly, what I would really like to stress about that times were uh, the year 1961, when um, Yugoslavia together with 120 states globally formed the non-alignment movement. And why is that so important? First of all, this is the second largest state um, union um, on the world. Only the United Nations had has more uh, state members. Uh, but most importantly, they found that decision-making power, which is something we are still, uh, we have the lack of this in our movements around the globe. And they were able to position themselves actually at the highest level of the game. And I call this as a, some kind of a old school politics where they knew what to do, where to do and how to do it. Now, coming from this to Slovenia, uh, Slovenia was the first country which proclaimed independence in 1991. Uh, we only have two million inhabitants. Um, we are the only country in the world with word love in our name, and we are very proud of it. Uh, our language has duality, so it's not only singularity and plurality, we have also duality. It's much easier to express love between two living beings. Uh, we are proud of this. Um, more recently, I would also like to point out that we were the first country 
in the whole world uh, where the official minister of the government uh, for the public affairs declared the so-called precautionary principle for the de deployment of the 5G technology. Um, unfortunately, in only, it only lasted for a few weeks because as Professor Wusem explained, we had this relatively unexpected um, end of the government when our previous prime minister went to the World Economic Forum in Davos and came back and said, okay, sorry, I'm not going this game anymore. And then we got this uh, government, which is now. But where exactly are we now? We are, we have, let's say, some kind of apparent uh, independence and some kind of apparent uh, constitution. Why apparent? We think we are independent, but at the same time, in this apparent constitution, it's written that um, a lot of our sovereignty we have um, surrendered to, first of all, international organizations, but more importantly, in 2018, to um, um, corporations such as the Inter-American Corporation, which is something which we as people would never agree on if we would be asked. Um, How did that happen? Uh, it happened almost uh, similarly, like uh, this pandemic happened, it was one hidden end of December. Uh, they had this um, public uh, hearing of the parliament and they said, okay, now we will discuss the agreement with Inter-America Corporation. Nothing about it was ever in the mass media. Uh, and at that time we were, as a citizens, we were not so much awakened that we would uh, see every article and every decision they would like to adopt in the parliament. Uh, so they adopted it in the last days of December and the president of the Republic proclaimed it on 27th of December, where it's very likely that everybody in the so-called normal times was occupied with the Christmas, New Year, with families and everything else. So uh, it did Is happen. in 2020? Yeah, it was in 2018, December 2018. 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at that time, they adopted this um, uh, agreement with the uh, Inter-American Corporation. What uh, is that? What does it stand for? Yeah. Does it mean it was, you're owned by American corporations? It was exactly, our uh, response was exactly like yours now. What is that and what does it mean to us? And it was very scary when we were starting reading the articles of this agreement because anything for this corporation has no legal consequences either to the staff of the corporation or the corporation itself, neither in Slovenia nor internationally. They are exempt from any laws, any uh, uh, obligations. They are more VIP than the diplomats used to be. Um, with no particular reason, reason why. Why exactly would this fit to Slovenia? What would be the benefits for Slovenian citizens or Slovenia? Nothing. So just how they are exempt. For example, I believe this is something which happened to the so-called Gates uh, Foundation in Switzerland or something like that. that they are yeah. exempt from everything. They can come and go whenever. They don't need to pay taxes. They, they... Full immunity. Full immunity. Full immunity. Who are they? I have no idea. There is <laughs> there is some uh, there is some uh, website. Uh, it call, it says Inter-American Corporation. Uh, um, they say they are kind of a bank, uh, and then it's only written who are the representatives of each 
country. And the representative of Slovenia is officially the Minister for Finance and he is deputy and that's it. So it's no public record on what they are doing, why they are doing, um, what is the purpose of their constitution, nothing, zero. That is very strange. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is very strange and it's something which already happened to us 218. Uh, at the beginning, um, I didn't mention that um, my uh, field of study were uh, political science and already in 2009 I wrote the uh, Master of Science uh, thesis on the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on the politics of the US. So uh, I didn't, I, I never knew how important this topic would be uh, 10 or 12 or 13 years from that uh, time, but uh, we are now in the very middle of this process. Um, in 2018, uh, when the previous elections were held in Slovenia, we had this political party, which was called for healthy society. And even then we started to, to promote topics as a freedom of choice for a vaccination and against any um, obligatory things to us. Um, unfortunately, we didn't succeed. But it was a test to see how actually to enter to this political system. Why? Why is this important? Because for any of us focusing this political or electoral system, it's like entering the or wanting to open the, the casino in Las Vegas in 1970s. We just don't have these tools which they have. We don't have this, what they say, like um, uh, uh, um, the offer one can't uh, refuse. Uh, so this was this. Uh, pragmatic or, or, or optimistic approach. Let's enter into the decision-making process. Let's go there where the decisions are taken. But frankly, what is actually the point? Um, now, in the political or electoral system, we have political parties. And when the elections are held, we believe that we go on elections to elect a person. But unfortunately, we go to elections to elect the political party which is definitely something which is not suitable for us and will never represent us in the field of the... And the political parties, of course, have been stacked by, with the puppets that the World Economic Forum has chosen for you. It makes perfect sense. This is what's happening all over the and world. They have the media and the money, yeah. the tools, everything. But, but now... What I don't understand is, yeah. I mean, it is obvious that probably no country is really sovereign because most of our countries are, are being um, totally corrupted by the international global corporations and their owners who are staying in the shades. Uh, but it is so blatant. Now you're telling us there is an agreement with an inter-American corporation, which is totally immune. They can do anything they want. Yep. Do yes. they own your country? Um, I hope not, because uh, as a political science student, I will always believe that country are the citizens and country can never be a, a corporation yeah. or whatever. And this is something I will probably die fighting for this. And, and I will always say this. Um, but um, what we found in the electoral law is something which is now a huge challenge for us, because the next parliamentary elections are scheduled for the end of April this year. Um, and what we found is something which we could call the basis of democracy, because 
to enter the political and electoral game, we don't need a political party. The law allows us just to form the so-called citizens list. So we on our own can actually nominate people on elections without any need to, to form the political parties and to enter this game which they are conducting in their field with their forces of power and everything. So this is exactly now what we are doing for the past year and a half. We are um, um, visiting all the towns and, and cities around Slovenia and presenting this idea because we believe that this could be a change. Why? Because normally and typically in Slovenia, only 50% of voters attend the elections. So whoever says that uh, he or she wins the elections by, let's say, 20%, it's only 20% out of 50% of voters which goes there. If we rise this to 60, 70, 80, they will, their percent will actually decline to 18, 15, 10. And this is the formula. And this is why it's relatively hard to, to get people away from the so-called bad habits they, 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 they always think, yeah, but you need the political party, you need the president, you need somebody to run it. But on the other hand, they are still waiting for this prince on a white horse who will come and rescue you. Nobody will come. No Only one will come. The change. We are the change. And this is the most exactly. difficult exactly. part to, to, to explain to, to normal people in normal towns, villages, because they just say, yeah, but who are you? Do you have the money? Do you have the tools? And I said, no, because we don't need it, because we need you. We need all exactly. of us to go there and to do the job and out no. them. So do people understand this or are they just sitting there complacently waiting for the next shoe to drop? It's actually both of them. They come. They are extremely uh, curious. Um, mm -hmm. For example, three years ago, when we started this debate in public how to make change, for example, three or four people would come and then we would sit, have coffee and say, where are the others? Mm -hmm. Now we can fool the halls of the fireplace, uh, the fire homes and, and I don't know, cultural uh, 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 places, everything. They are full with people who come and listen. And they are full of enthusiasm because they are very happy that at least something is going on. Is this a general? Is this a general feeling in Slovenia uh, that things were better when you still had the uh, when you still had the state of Yugoslavia? I wouldn't say general, but it's still there. It, yeah. It's still there. People still remember it. People still like this feeling that you need, you didn't need so much money to feel good, to feel relaxed, to have your freedom. That there were even then we were within without internal borders. We had one currency. We had one official language and several other languages. So we were EU ages before EU with internal market with uh, everything, and that's probably the reason why they collapsed it from abroad. And it's always about the money, and it's always against the good will uh, and, and the good forces who would like to make some changes. What happened? Um, I, I didn't quite understand what you mentioned when you said in 1961, Yugoslavia, and I think 160 other states, I think that's the number you mentioned. 120. What kind of an agreement was that? Um, uh, it was actually the uh, intergovernmental agreement called non-alignment movement. Ah, okay. They, the, the, the short version is NAM. N-A-M, 
Um, and it was the presidents like Tito, Nehru, Yasser, uh, I don't know, from all, let's say, non uh, very developed, especially African, South American states, Yugoslavia. And they were actually positioned themselves against the two blocks. So yeah. against the tensions between the US and the former uh, 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 USSR. So, and they formed this non alignment movement to outvote them in the General Assembly of the United Nations. So it was one of the cleverest things to do because they had all the natural materials, natural resources. They didn't have the money, but they had the mankind, they had the resources, and they mm -hmm. it. And of course, after a while, it was the main target to destroy it. First destroyed, they destroyed Yugoslavia. Subsequently, they destroyed a uh, 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 non-alignment movement. They made fun of it like, yeah, it's something like uh, a Tito's playground or Castro's playground or things like that. But actually, again, that was the decision-making power we lacked now in the process of fighting the Mr. Global. Can I ask you the this person, the uh, you're the president that stepped back after the um, the yeah. um, you know the visit after, to Davos? After he returned from Davos. So what has happened to him? Has he come out like with criticism, or do you have any further information about his motives? Look, I studied political science, and I have never seen something like this before. He went on one nice sunny Thursday, end of January, to Davos. He came back on Friday morning, and on Monday, he went to the press and said, I'm resigning. So nobody, no analytics, nobody had a clue. Even his closest uh, friends, allies, nobody knew. It was a What's his name? What's his name? Um, uh, now you got me. <laughs> um, Marian Sharitz. Marian Sharitz, thank you very much. Yes, sorry. So he, he, he used to be a former comedian, an actor. So, um, but also after this career in, in the stages, he used to be the um, mayor of one of the cities in Slovenia. And then all of a sudden he was the chosen one. But I have to say, I believe he is not part of this uh, youth, uh, young globalist uh, program, which you mentioned before, Dr. Fulmich. But there is one rather important person in Slovenia who was part of that program. And she is now the head of the cabinet of the president of the Republic. Her name is Alia Burgles. She was part of that uh, globalist program. And also we have to say that our president of the Republic, Borut Pahor, when he went for the European um, um, parliamentary uh, um, representative a few years ago, when he came back, back from Brussels, he was a completely different person. We don't know officially if he entered any globalist, uh, I don't know, um, courses or whatever, but we noticed immediately how he changed considerably. That's really crazy. And uh, but nothing has come out. I mean, since you're a small country, there's no um, sort of, uh, you know, behind the scenes information about the motives of this this cabaretist or, you know, comedian or. Officially, they were just spinning on the bad uh, connections in the coalition that they are not strong enough and that he would prefer the um, elections as soon as possible. But what was most more important was what happened afterwards, that all of a sudden, this right wing 
party president, its coalition was ready immediately. It is, again, something which has never happened before in Slovenia. I finally understand what went on. Okay. It, it, was, it was ready. It was tailor-made. And maybe some of you even remember those first photos of the first session of the new Slovenian government in the March 2020. It was the first government session in the world where all the cabinet ministers wore masks. And that was their first agenda to make a huge PR. Now we are protecting us, we are protecting you. Uh, don't worry, we will be there for you to fight against the virus and everything. We are here, we are strong, we will do it. What a bunch of blatant luck. But, 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 but again, I have to say, the other side, the so-called left or left-middle uh, parties, they did nothing to end this. They have the tools. They could prevent any time. They could, they could uh, run over it, outvote them. They could buy votes. They know how to buy votes. They, they, they did it many times in the... Well, you know, uh, what this tells us is that the entire system is corrupt. Completely. Not just in your country, in all of our countries. That's why it's so important to start a parallel society and have our own system. Um, everyone agrees on this in the meantime. We shouldn't waste our time uh, on the old system. All of the people who are part of this old system are completely obsolete. Most of them are stupider than hell. Most of them have either no biographies or fake biographies. We shouldn't waste our time with them, but we should use the, the people who we have on our side because we have the really good people on our side and start with a completely new system, both um, a holistic or a whole system of uh, education, of judiciary, economics, uh, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. We can do it. And then we can connect with each other, but we have to do it in our regions, in our communities, and disconnect from these global corporations and global NGOs. I would anyway, I, I definitely agree uh, uh, fully with what you said, but um, I would still say something about our uh, elections end of April. Why? Because we were always told we are not big enough for the economy, for the market, for we were always too small. And now to make a change, we are just small enough. And it's much, much easier to perform the change in a small country like with only 2 million inhabitants and not like in systems like Germany or France or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, I completely agree not to enter their games in the field of the political parties. But by this tool of the citizens list, we can surprise them there because actually we don't need the money, we don't need the, the connections, we don't need anything. And we can come there relatively unexpectedly only if we awaken enough people to go there and outvote them. So this is basically what we are now advocating for and where I believe personally that the, the support of uh, all the partners around the globe, which would mean very much for us, for, for all of us, basically. It's, it's the connection. We yeah. have to connect with each other, but we have to do everything we can in our own regions, in our own yeah. communities. Exactly. Start, this is what, what grassroots democracy is all about. That's why we joined this party here in Germany, whose name is Die Basis, the yeah. base, because yeah. yeah, that's 
That's what it's all about. We have to start setting up our own systems, supply lines, for example, energy uh, supply, agricultural supplies. We have to do it in our regions. And then we can connect with and exchange the best ideas between the separate regions and communities. I think that makes the most sense. Um, yeah, Wolfgang. Yes, hello. I think uh, you have to watch out when you have the elections because they try to cheat us. They try to establish election systems which they can influence, where they can falsify the results. And you have to choose an election system which is very transparent, mm -hmm. where you're counting the votes and everyone can, can follow this counting. And everyone now can follow where the votes come from. So it's very important because we observe that it's very it's getting more and more transparent. The more you, you put it into computers and you, the, the more you do it with, with the letters sending somewhere and so, so be, it's in a small country, it's much easier to have a transparent election and you should pay a lot of attention, I think, to not to not to be cheated there. So this is the only thing. Thank you very much for your for your for your explanations. And I, I enjoyed it very much. I listened all the time. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. OK, we have to because we're under a lot of pressure. We have to let you go now um, because uh, Robin Minotti has been waiting. Um, we have to um, listen to what he has to tell us. It's it's a it's a completely different view of uh, what we're seeing, or maybe not so different. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Mr. Koz and uh, Tiasha. We'll be in touch. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Bye. Robin, um, how have you been? You you gained um, a lot of uh, fame uh, because everyone knows you from an interview with Eric Clapton, I think. Yeah, um, good to be here. Good to talk to you. Um, this time, I think we tried before a few months ago, but I wasn't yeah. able to do that. Um, I believe that you may be interested in me mentioning the midazolam situation in the UK. Absolutely. Um, now, I will talk to it in um, just so things happening i will just talk to a bit from let's say the hat of being someone who runs a channel mm -hmm. a channel with about almost eighty-five thousand subscribers and a lot of people who send things to the channel so that's that's the that's the direction i will address it from everything i know about this subject of midazolam has been published in the channel there is no uh, further information that I am holding on to secretly. And the channel can be used as a search engine. So if you go on uh, Telegram or t.me forward slash Robin MG, which are my initials, you can then press the three red dots on the top right, enter a search for midazolam, and you will find uh, quite a number of different posts uh, on this subject. Uh, Robin, um, can you explain, because you're an architect and a film producer, how did you get into this? Um, well, I was um, alerted by the direction that this was taken early on. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I felt that I had more information than anybody else is that in my own family, we had a very out of the ordinary 
respiratory infections, a crossover be between December 2019 and January 2020, which turned into um, two cases, including me, of bilateral lung infection, uh, almost unprecedented high temperature that uh, I have not uh, had since maybe the, since being a child, perhaps. Um, and so that, um, that drew me to uh, having a look at what we were given. Uh, at least the most severe case was given in our family at the time before we knew or before we were told so much about this um, alleged coronavirus. And when I looked at the prescription, there was azithromycin in it, which was part of the, by then, uh, developing later the Zelenko protocol, which included this substance. And so I realized that actually there was existing knowledge of how to treat a generic respiratory infection with a viral matrix, let's say, a vi viral beginning, which, as happens in pretty much all severe respiratory infections, then becomes a co-infection with a number of different um, pathogens, which may be viruses or bacteria or, or usually all at the same time. And that's what a pneumonia generally is. It's not a virus, it's not SARS or, or the, the only element that leads to the pneumonia, it's actually a co-infection of a number of different things. And that, that would make sense with the, with the introduction of this azithromycin in what we were given at the time, which changed the course of the disease pretty much um, dramatically in the sense that about one day and a half after that, after this administration, the temperature started to steadily go down until we recovered. And so there was a, a, a clear indication that, that this type of antibiotic clearly works with this type of, um, I would say, unusual uh, respiratory infection. Um, at the same time, there were calls by governments uh, about staying home. And there, you know, my not basic knowledge of vitamin D, I started looking into it and realized that actually it's what you need for your T cells to actually fight these in, in infections. Therefore, if you want to reduce both the personal um, severity and also the immunological sense of the spread of this disease, because obviously if every individual body is an immune system, if you, if you uh, heighten that immune system, you will stop the so-called epidemic. So the idea that you lock yourself at home and that's how you stop it, it was actually in the spring of the Northern Hemisphere, it was actually the other way around. Everyone going out would stop it in the fastest possible way because it would boost vitamin D, it would boost T cells. Most people would end up with possibly asymptomatic or, or slightly symptomatic and recover very quickly and the, the whole thing was over. So a combination of these elements got me to look into it and, and got me to look at the scientific articles. Having a background in academia, I was quite versed in research. And that's when I started using my Twitter account, again, as a search engine. So whatever I would found, find that was not being shown, let's say, by official media, I would publish on my account and link to it. Uh, and, so, and so that's what, what my Twitter account became. It became a search engine. At some stage, it was clear through me presenting it at a search engine and also the, the data that I was uh, starting to share information that what we were told were 
vaccines, in fact, did not work as what we conventionally know as what a vaccine should do. Therefore, the, the clear conclusion was um, to do with language. If these do not work as vaccines, then we should not call them vaccines. They are not vaccines. The moment I started saying that, uh, I started being subjected to continuous bans, maybe about, I don't know, 10, 20 bans, until at some stage with the with no justification, the accounts were off online. And then we started the, uh, I already was on a Telegram channel at the same time, and then moved on to all of that. So that's how it all happened. Basically, that is as a citizen uh, participating in civic society. Uh, and I chose to participate in civic society through this, this technology. Um, going back to that aspect at the beginning, uh, the aspect of um, the issue of midazolam is, in, in brief, from what I have understood through what has been shared on the Telegram channel, is that there has been, um, and this probably you, you know it already, but I'll just go very quickly through it, there's been an unprecedented acquisition of doses of midazolam around March 2020. This is um, proved in videos and government documents videos showing government officials and government uh, documents on the Telegram channel that show this uh, effort at uh, buying this midazolam, justifying it uh, to do with, um, with facilitating a painless death. That was general, the, generally the logic that was given, but this was unprecedented. And uh, at the same time, uh, documents have been published through articles that came on the channel showing that um, and this is actually, it's common knowledge whenever you look into it, that a combination of midazolam with morphine-based uh, products leads to respiratory suppression, including death. Therefore, at some stage, if, if you are trying to say that there is a respiratory epidemic and you um, indicate to maybe staff that don't know um, much better, uh, because obviously there is a new a so-called new virus and therefore the protocol is new and if the new protocol includes includes an administration of both midazolam and a morphine based product in quantities and doses which again seem to be unprecedented through the documents that have been published on the channel it seems clear that it be, without an autopsy it is pretty much impossible to attribute any death that was given of covid-19 to covid-19 as opposed to midazolam and morphine-based product, and unless you have a clinical file of the person who was in the care home of the hospital, an up-to-date, a precise clinical file, and if you can exclude from that that these, um, these uh, drugs have been given, then maybe perhaps you start to privilege that there was another nature of the possible death, which wasn't, but until you do that, until you do the autopsy, all of these uh, deaths that we are told are COVID-19 are in a huge question. Um, the other um, reason for the possible death is, as we all know by now, is the withdrawal of treatment. As I said, I have personally witnessed on my own skin the effect of pretty much straightforward antibiotic on um, a bilateral pneumonia uh, with very, very high temperature, which was called at the time when there were no tests at the time it was said you know the doctor said this is a viral infection i cannot confirm what virus it is 
Since then, I've looked into coronaviruses in general, and it, um, the data says that 49%, well, so almost 50% of all coronavirus infections are uh, co-infections of different viruses. So it starts to matter less and less whatever virus makes you ill, because it can be many. So at that stage, I thought, what can we do to address this uh, in a very basic uh, way that people can understand uh, in order to prevent something like this from happening again? Because if they can do it once, they can do it again. So as a start, I said, well, let's, let's sort of write a different protocol for society to keep it open. And I called it with my name. I said, let's, I'll just call it the Monotti Protocol for keeping society open. Point one would be we absolutely have to stop any asymptomatic tests for any respiratory infection. Either you have the, um, the symptoms or the, this is a hugely dangerous path to tread to start testing randomly for a lot of different reasons, including Bayes theory, probability theory, and all of that. Number two was uh, in uh, when you are subject to respiratory infection, season take vitamin D, uh, but not what the UK government said, which was 400 IUs per day. A minimum of 2,000 are used per day, otherwise it will make no difference. Step three was avoid hospitals, because that's where diseased people are, so that's where the highest viral loads, the biggest chances of being infected by anything, not only this virus, but other viruses, bacteria, superbugs. Hospitals are the places where these things um, are, because six people who are sick enough to go to hospital end up there. So avoid hospitals and just dispense uh, treatments in pharmacies for such things, as, as happened pretty much to us uh, at Curie. Uh, so that's how I, I got to all of that. Um, at the same time, um, I've been thinking about the language that we use in general. And when you talk to people about all of this, you are faced with a lot of resistance. And um, one of the questions that is being given is, oh, but you know, there was a pandemic uh, there was a public health emergency. So there I suggest that actually we all need to make an effort to uh, say things as they are in the most honest way possible, regardless of the brutality of the truth. So in that sense, I would, I would encourage people to start, whenever they hear, oh, there's a pandemic or public health emergency, just say, oh, you mean the crimes against humanity? Because that's what we are talking about. And if only I say it, um, people may laugh at it. If I say it to people, may be shocked. If we all say it, if we all start saying it very, very clearly in day-to-day -day conversation, but in a normal way, it's just an, in a normal way because for us, it, there actually is no doubt about this. And why I think there is no doubt about it, about it is because it's they admitted to it when Bill Gates says, you think you have a choice, but you don't have a choice to get a medical intervention. That is a systematic call for violation of human rights. And from coming from someone who's so involved with world governments and pharmaceutical companies, um, there is no doubt that that's, it, it, that is a systematic incitement uh, to a crime against humanity. Uh, at the same time, when Macron says, I want to piss off the, those who exercise informed consent, that is again a systematic call to a violation of human rights, because you as a government official cannot violate this informed consent without committing a, a human right violation, therefore a crime. And if, if you as a president of a, of a country say it, you are effectively, again, inciting for a systematic mass violation of human rights, therefore 
for a crime against humanity. And I could write a PhD on the amount of crimes against humanity that are being committed right now. And, and a, a number of different sort of covenants and agreements. The, the most obvious one for me is the UNESCO uh, Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights, 2000, 2005 Article 6, because it uses clearly the words preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic. Therefore, with preventive, we mean tests, we mean masks. With diagnostic, we mean tests. With therapeutic, we mean any form of injection. Requires an informed consent, not just a consent, an informed consent. And therefore, without that information, it is already a human rights violation. Without that consent, it is a further human rights violation. At the same time, I find that people are not aware of these rights that they have. So it's, it's a lot of it, our work to, again, bring this into daily public conversation and remind people that they are not walking vectors of a disease. They are human beings with human rights that need to be respected with, with dignity. And these rights need to be acknowledged. If they're not acknowledged, if they're violated, then this is what leads to, um, in a systematic way, a crime against humanity. And the fact that governments throughout the West, at least, and in some cases, uh, the East, are uh, all involved in systematic crimes against humanity does, it, does not mean that this is uh, acceptable, does not mean that these rights have been stripped up and that they are no longer relevant. It actually means that they are all criminals. And as they are all criminals, we need to call them out. And, uh, and it is um, pretty much our job to remind people that they can withdraw any consent, even to a simple uh, face mask, at any time without suffering any disadvantage or prejudice. Now, obviously, this shifts the whole debate elsewhere from the efficacy and the, the toxicity of vaccines to a discourse of human rights. At that debate, the other side will claim such things like public health emergencies um, and uh, will claim that under such public health emergencies, some of these human rights can be suspended. But I think I welcome uh, any debate on that level because I think on that level we will win, would win any form of debate because they have really no argument in the sense that if we forget about the beginning, let's say March 2020, and we talk about, about it today, um, if you compare any data that they provide, which we know is vitiated by all sorts of methodological problems, it is, not, it is significantly better than the same data last year. Um, and therefore, the notion of emergency would not be proportional anyway. At the same time, we have had enough time to establish an infection fatality rate for this uh, pathogen, which is in the same order as seasonal flu, 0.1%. So even on that term, there is no basis for a public health emergency on the basis that there is not enough staff, and therefore that is how we base the emergency. Well, then we have the evidence everywhere that staff are losing their jobs because they, their um, human right to, to not give consent is being violated, and they are told they need to leave their jobs unless they, um, they submit to this. So on that uh, premise as well, they have no ground to claim that there is any 
a public health emergency which would justify any proportional measure to such an extreme extent, such as suspension of Article 6 of this UNESCO. So I don't think they have anything to stand, uh, no ground to stand on. At the same time, uh, um, I was uh, posting yesterday something by Alexander Redko, who was the head doctor of St. Petersburg, Petersburg Hospital, who has uh, apparently 200 research articles under his names. And he basically said, look, you know, if we understand the pandemic as a widespread epidemic, um, in his numbers, an epidemic would require 5% of the population sick all at the same time. And his claim is that COVID was 7% over two years, therefore 3.5% um, per year average. And therefore, even according to his numbers, you know, this does not qualify as a pandemic or epidemic. And on, we all know the fact that the original term pandemic required a lot of difference, um, you know, huge number of deaths all at the same time. And um, they removed that and they turned it into sort of things like case numbers for, um, again, a whole methodological aspect, which is you cannot suddenly say there is a public health emergency and base it on numbers of mass testing when this mass testing was not happening the year before, because you don't have anything to compare it to. Um, apart from the UNESCO, we have, and these are all things that you know very well, uh, uh, Rainer, but I think it's important for people to know, there's the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights 1966, which has been enforced since 1976, an Article 7 that says no one should be subjected to any medical experimentation without, without their consent. Article 26 says the law shall prohibit any discrimination on any ground or opinion or status. Um, which obviously therefore uh, applies to vaccinated or whatever you may call it injected status at the same time. So, um, then we have of course other um, agreements, the Health Second Declaration, the Nuremberg Code. So I think we've got, we've got a lot of confirmation that this is our um, human right to, um, to uh, inform consent and to have no disadvantage or prejudice. So it's clear that this is being violated and this is, uh, these are crimes against humanity. At the same time, when it comes to new rights, uh, an aspect that I started going back into my own uh, original uh, professional uh, hat, which is to do with architecture and urbanism, which is the aspect of surveillance. And because it's quite new, this aspect of surveillance, uh, the question I have is, not only I believe we need to hold on to our existing human rights, I think we need to consider further ones uh, in order to try and defend ourselves from the onslaught of what is called the smart city and the surveillance capitalism that we are living under. Um, now, why I say this is because we are talking about vaccine passports here, but this is just one of the myriad of possibilities that they have in order to control the population. We may even end up winning this one on vaccine passports in some countries and it may snowball to other countries. I believe that will happen sooner or later. But even if we do that, the moment the infrastructure is ready around the city uh, to do with both surveillance, facial recognition, uh, QR codes on entry of most places, um, the moment that is ready, they can uh, you know, engineer any form of, again, uh, shock um, emergency. And almost over a weekend, say, you have to do this again to sort of protect the population. And, you know, it can come in any, you know, for some examples, maybe um, some scaremongering about, you know, te world temperatures and 
and that, that needs a carbon a carbon passport to go in and only if you don't use enough carbon dioxide then you can uh, go to certain shops and at the same time it could be you know there could be a number of terrorist attacks and they say it becomes too unsafe for anyone with a you know with a coat or anything can go into a shop unless they have a qr code and then the qr code proves they're not terrorists so i think that is a bit of an issue um, that we should be uh, already addressing in 2013 boris johnson rolled out the Sm smart london plan in 2018 Sadiq can launch the smarter london together a roadmap to make london the smartest city in the world the current state that we are in is that um, in London, if you look at CCTV cameras per square mile, it's only second to Delhi, and we've got 1,138. Uh, if you look at cameras per, per person, it's number three after Taiwan and walks in China, and London is at 73 cameras per 1,000 people. Uh, yeah. Um, at the end of August, the mayor of London said he can approve a proposal allowing the London Metropolitan Police to start using retrospective facial recognition as part of a three million four-year deal with the Japanese NEC Corporation. Um, Ella Yakubowska from European Digital Rights said, those deploying it can in effect turn back the clock to see who you are, where you've been, what you have done, and with whom for many months or even years uh, prior. So this is a retrospective tool, which if you consider this coming in force in addition to live facial recognition, Let's say that, you know, as we have already talked about, this is happening in the context of an ongoing crime against humanity being carried out by governments against their citizens. And if you add this element, I think it becomes very dangerous to let this go on uh, unchallenged in the sense that let's say they decide that they don't like someone. They can go look, uh, they can go backwards in time with all this surveillance and decide to also maybe engineer some kind of uh, you know event through some kind of cctv camera and then say that you are guilty for this this event at the same time they can then use a pcr form of the uh, dna dna testing or or, or or equivalent to then say that you know it has been found that your uh, genetic material has been found uh, at this location um, but all of this we know can be totally engineered if it has been done at, at a, such a high level scale, which means that, uh, that unfortunately this is um, a system is, is entirely open to abuse uh, and to, to uh, perpetrate further uh, potential crimes against humanity. Which brings us to the question of the, what is the so-called smart city. Now, what it actually is, is the opposite of what politicians and tech giants are saying it is in the sense of it's not as smart in, in any shape or form for their citizens because it's a tool of social and hierarchical control. And paraphrasing um, who coined the word um, bio-urbanism, um, and this is my own quote, but it's sort of inspired from him, smart cities are for stupid people. Smart cities are for gullible citizens. That is the reality of the smart city. It is not smart in any shape or form. The better word that we want to look at, if we want to look at an alternative direction, is wise. So wise in the sense of look, having a human purpose, dignity, meaningfulness, and a wise city despite this technology, because this technology is not neutral. This smartness, uh, so-called smartness, is not an innocent addition to the city. 
and this idea that knowledge is data as opposed to critical thinking is completely on the wrong track when it comes to the interests of the citizens which would actually be the, the sort of the wise city that we are interested in would be a city that does not uh, that uh, that encourages critical thinking uh, and therefore action which comes from critical thinking but not uh, not only uh, data related to passive consumptions obedience and control by authority which leads me into the subject again of language we have been using a lot of words which relate to the history of uh, systems which have oppressed um, individuals and citizens we use use the word very often uh, totalitarianism now uh, there is um, an interesting discussion in this book um, which is um, the age of surveillance capitalism by Shosanna Dubov. An interesting aspect of this book is that the, it is a Barack Obama pick of 2019. Therefore, uh, as far if you know if Barack Obama had any interest in informing us of of anything that is happening at certain levels of the United States, I think this is as close as we we got to it. Um, in this book, a new category is introduced, and it's the category of instrumentarianism. Uh, instrumentarianism as a market project that converges with the digital to achieve its own unique brand of social domination. Essentially, it substitutes smart, so-called smart machines and also smart cities um, for social relations. In that respect, if you think about what the, the lockdowns actually were, the lockdown is in many ways the triumph of instrumentarianism. The social relations carried out in a physical way are substituted through smart, in the sense of the use of AI to decide what information you receive uh, and what, whether you will be cancelled or not, uh, substitutes your uh, social relations and filters them through machines. So, um, in, in, in the whole plethora of reasoning of what control mechanisms and what also disease-inducing um, capabilities the lockdown had, entirely counterproductive on all, on all sorts of elements, I actually see it primarily as um, an instrumentarian tool. Um, now, if uh, you know, I, I, I like to encourage this book for people to go and do further research if they're interested in this subject. Uh, and I uh, would ask people to look at chapter 15 of uh, Shosanna Zubov's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Chapter 15 is called The Instrumentarian Collective, and it, it mentions one particular name. It mentions um, Alex Pentland, the director of Human Dynamics Lab, interesting words, Human Dynamics Lab, at MIT's Media Lab. The book claims that Alex Pentland advises the World Economic Forum, Google, and the UN Secretary General. At the same time, the book claims that he is funded by Google, Twitter, the EU Commission, the US government, and the Chinese government. Um, he is, I believe, the author of a book 
which is um, again going down the rabbit hole further. It's called Social Physics, and that I believe is a book by Alex Pentland himself. Again, interesting words, social physics. Uh, if we remember what we were told at the beginning of the alleged um, pandemic, which, which we should re re rename as the beginning of the crimes against humanity, uh, we were talked uh, to in terms of social distancing. Now, what, something that Agamben, Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher noticed, a philosopher of biopolitics noticed, was that this word, why social? Why not physical distancing? Why not, you know, sort of viral distancing? The word social was, in a way, um, very honest on their side, in the sense that the instrumentarian substitution of smart machines for social relations is integrated already in the word social distancing, and it has a recall in this title of this book by Pentland called Social Physics. Um, and quoting her, she says, Pentland understands instrumentarian society as a historical turning point comparable to the invention of the printing press or the internet. This new collective intelligence operates to serve the greater good. Again, this word has is was already floating around in 2019 in this book, and obviously pro probably floating around long before in this social physics uh, book, but it's clearly one of these trigger keywords that has been used specifically to achieve this desired social physics, but it is used in this book, this idea of the greater good. As we learn to act in a coordinated manner, based on, and this is also another two interesting words, social universals. So for me, this is uh, giving it away that there is a coordinated effort to not only strip away the human rights that I mentioned under UNESCO, but to replace them with the new concept, which comes straight from this hierarchical control, of so-called social universals, but you know, these are basically created in a media lab in a, in a, in a US university funded by um, big tech and uh, big government. So this is not something that we have achieved you know, after a world war like the Nuremberg Code, after sort of you know, debates on human rights uh, and bioethics like UNESCO. This is basically someone saying, I've got a plan here, I am stripping away your human rights, and I am telling you what the social universals are. Uh, now, he's also, also aware that this will not be a, a walk in the park, because people like, like me and, and you and many others will say, hold on a minute. Um, so he's starting to look, he started to look at, at barriers, and so he thought, hmm, how do we overcome these barriers? And uh, quoting again the book, he says, the main barriers are Privacy concerns. This is why I mentioned the smart city and surveillance, because I think we need to, in a way, double down on our human rights and actually ask for more human rights than we already have. And I would like to uh, encourage and ask that if uh, we manage uh, through the Corona Investigative Committee to set up a group that is able to hold some kind of accountability or evidence, that we also uh, create a new form of code, not only hold on to the Nuremberg Code, but we, we create a new form of, of code to do 
with privacy and surveillance and living in a smart city and to make sure that it cannot happen either now or ever again in the future that a government that is controlled by an, let's say oligarchic or other interests is able to implement um, such a um, systematic violation of human rights through technology. So I encourage that we look, we don't only um, defend our human rights, but we start a conversation to have a new document of human rights that deals with the surveillance on the smart city. So he says the fact that we don't yet have, have any consensus around the trade-off between personal and social values. So this is sort of a, you know, an interesting way to start to claim a moral high horse as to uh, what the oligarchic interests are, to say that they are our new social values. Here they are, and they are for you know they are for you to be more altruistic. But in reality, I am thinking them up together with uh, big tech and government and various agencies uh, in, involved. So the main tool, um, so, the, so uh, Zuboff in that respect is honest enough because she says, uh, Pentland avoids the question, who's greater good? Because obviously the question is here, it's not our greater good, it's not our social values for us. Um, the element that is used that we have witnessed in the last few years uh, in an unprecedented way is social pressure. Um, so the, you know, from this uh, interpretation of Pentland, the social physics approach to getting everyone to cooperate um, to Pentland's greater good is um, social network incentives. So what we see as, um, um, you know, likes, reposts, comments, you know, these are all small incentives that if they are able to manipulate those, uh, then we, they are able to direct people in certain directions. It's when people put their images of being in, uh, you know, having had the, um, the, the injections and put a poster photo on Instagram saying, you know, I got injected, you got a lot of likes and you feel great. So these are all obviously calculated. And that's why in one respect, I prefer the, the Telegram uh, option, which does not have likes. I think the more we can strip away these uh, social network incentives, the better it is. I mean, reposts have a purpose, comments have a purpose, but I think likes is, is pure dopamine uh, addiction and it, it will be used against us in the long term. Um, and so they looked at how can we, how could they leverage those exchanges to generate social pressure, pressure for change? Um, and, you know, they uh, obviously looked at what people do on Facebook. People love to put their uh, holiday pictures up and they say, okay, we're going to take their holidays away off until they conform to what, um, what we, they want to do. What we want to do. Um, so, um, Penland subscribes to the, to the label homo, homo imitants. So, not homo sapiens, but homo imitants. So, this new category of human being, you know, uh, some people call it a transhumanist that they're trying to, to create, which is based on social universals, which can be molded through social physics. Um, this this uh, particular uh, person is called homo imitants, and he works through imitating others. 
they've been extremely successful at this. I mean, we must admit they've been extremely successful. Um, and so he subscribes to this label to convey that it is mimicry, not empathy. So it is not empathy, and we have noticed because every time we have uh, shown any form of um, uh, injuries for these uh, injections, uh, the last thing we got from the people who got the injection is any empathy whatsoever for all the victims that now are in the millions of these injections. Millions of victims, zero empathy. Why? Because it is easier to imitate through the social media what the majority of the people on your network who are also controlled through AI uh, are doing rather than show any empathy which may make you look as a sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, social misfit. Uh, and certainly not e politics either, uh, which defines human existence anymore. Uh, the, the largest single factor driving adoption of the new behaviors, you know, this, what, this is essentially the new normal. What is it? Is the new behavior that is molded through the social physics of the instrumentarian collective is the behavior of peers. Now, obviously, this leads to the question of a form of social physics tyranny, which also Zubov does not shy away from using. And she writes, tyranny is not a word that I choose lightly. Um, like the instrumentarian hive, like the beehive, tyranny is the obliteration of politics. Um, Hannah Arendt observed that the tyranny is a perversion of egalitarianism. That's also so an interesting view of seeing it, and we have seen it in the last few years, a perversion of egalitarianism, because it treats all others as equally insignificant. Um, now, the, in terms of architecture, there's someone in, uh, in England that has been uh, speaking as well as I have, who, uh, who are architects for social housing, and Simon Elmer, who wrote a number of books, uh, one of them is called Virtue and Terror, he has an interview here with Frida Wiesel, and he writes something which I find interesting to do with the city and where we're going, because he says, I think we are undoubtedly going through a, a revolution, or what Kennedy calls a coup. Um, and he talks about the Industrial Revolution, and he says they had to drive a primarily rural population off the land and into the cities to provide the workforce for the Industrial Revolution. And the only way they could really do that was to simply impoverish them so that the working class had to go to the cities. Now, if you think about that, and you think about what the lockdowns did to, to the middle classes and to people with small businesses who maybe were running it from outside the city through, the, through some kind of internet business or maybe even local farming businesses um, and selling to, to shops. And the lockdown is clearly a tool to impoverish people. Social uh, upheaval, you know, like maybe now we're witnessing in, 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 in Kazakhstan or uh, possibly other countries, is also once, it, once a private property gets damaged, set on fire, it's also a tool to impoverish people. You, people cannot draw cash from machines. Now, if you hold that thought for a second and look at the way the city is being set up, the so-called smart city, uh, it's clearly a trap. The impoverishment drives people to where they, per they perceive there is the only work left, uh, which can be corporations or can be governments. Ultimately, that's what they want, everyone to be dependent on government. And the only place where you can work for the government, ultimately, 
uh, is the smart city. And in that smart city, you are under total control, retrospective control, uh, facial recognition, QR codes. Um, and you have no other option because what we uh, suggested uh, in a group, again, this uh, idea, this word coined by my colleague Stefano Serafino, this word of bio-urbanism, is a counter movement to all of this. Now, they are trying to make it impossible for us to uh, have a counter movement because they are trying to impoverish anyone who could survive on this counter movement. Uh, so the, the surveillance city, the smart city is the trap and in a way the lockdown impoverishment is the tool to lead everyone into that. Uh, the, the wise thing to do would be to resist that and until we can actually resist it to probably um, live in a, a safe distance from the city but it's very difficult for a lot of us, including uh, including me at present. I'm, I live in the city, and so we you know we have no option, I think, than to fight it. And that's why I think people who uh, who see this only in terms of oh, you know, the people will realize that the, the corona issue was um, a fraud, and they will wake up. Yes, but if that happens, once the smart city implement is implemented, it's too late. We need to fight on at least that uh, that area as well. So that. Yeah, very important points, you know, like also what you like when you talk about this, um, the, um, you know, the social uh, physics, it's it's really a question also that people like doing these two years have been like kind of um, almost like like animals, you know, trained to function in that sort of sense. So it's become like sort of a habit for a lot of people to act in that way and like to to always kind of um, like um, withdraw themselves um, from from understanding what their own needs are you know because it's for the greater good that you make all these compromises in and accept these things that usually you wouldn't have or even you think it's necessary so i think it's also like really some intense kind of conditioning maybe in order to then get people into this ever smarter cities um, with like less and less um, options. Like I saw a, um, a little clip in, in about the situation in China where you have to like, you always have to present your QR code if you want to go there and to other places. And then they even have um, areas that you cannot travel to anymore because there's maybe a, uh, a red zone with regards to coronavirus, you know, or then it might be other things like uh, climate problems or whatever. But it's like really stepping back, like, from from your own needs from your own you know uh inalienable um basic rights you know and accepting that for the greater good so i think it's it's a kind of clever uh, cleverly set up but more and more people are also starting to resist that and are starting to realize what's going on I think this is what what this boils down to what all of us are looking at from different angle angles and what we're beginning to see clearer and clearer because Last night in an interview, I said, well, if we have if we have a puzzle with a thousand pieces over the last two years, we I think we have uh, collected at least 990 of these pieces. So despite the fact that there's still a few pieces missing, we can very clearly see now that this is us against the oligarch. Um, you're describing the same thing, Robin. Um, and what we have done over the last, <clears throat> let's say, two months or three months now is we have joined a group of international lawyers 
we have collected all the evidence that we have, and we're going to show this in a grand jury proceeding. Um, we're going to show this to the jury. The jury is the people. We want the people to see what has been going on. And uh, we want them to be able to, to make up their own minds based on the real truth, on the, on the actual truth, because there is a truth out there. Most people have understood in the meantime that, that they've been lied to by their uh, governments, <clears throat> which are not their governments anymore, by the mainstream media. We want to provide them with the facts. We also want to give them a legal analysis of what these facts mean. You probably have heard of the, Mike Eden is going to explain to us a little later on uh, how he has come across, as this is what he calls it, compelling evidence for premeditated, premeditated mass murder. That's what it is. This is what it boils down to. We're going to give them the facts. We're going to give them the legal analysis, not just because we want indictments against these four um, defendants, Dresden, Fauci, Tedros, and Gates, but much more importantly is the fact that we want the people to have a basis, legal and factual basis, on which they can decide this is our time. We have to rise up because that's the only way to turn this thing around. Of course, our legal institutions will have to do the cleanup work. Uh, we do have serious doubts that the, that the uh, current legal institutions are capable of doing this. But we're going to go forward. We're going to take the first step. And then I think there's going to be another, um, I, I wouldn't call it Nuremberg 2.0, because Nuremberg didn't really work. As, as we all know, um, through Operation Paperclip, all of the, all the real criminals got away. Uh, they started the space program in the United States, but they also started the MKUltra program in the United States. Absolutely. So, this time is going to be different. That's why we need all this input. And your view from a completely different perspective is extremely helpful here. We have to connect. We have to exchange all these views, get them all into the open, expose what's going on, give the people an opportunity to understand that it's not just, um, it's not just reasonable, but it's necessary for us to rise up and fight these bastards and send them back to hell where they came from. Um, I don't want to be rude, Robin, but uh, Dr. Lee Merritt has been waiting. Um, I don't want to cut you off, so please. I, I actually, uh, remarkable timing because I had just finished my presentation. Perfect. Robin, it's a real pleasure. We're going to be in touch because I know we're going to want to hear more from you. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, and I look forward to listening to Lee Merritt. Thank you very much. Dr. Lee Merritt. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's morning here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I saw Lee. I saw a video. Uh, I think everyone has seen it uh, with you um, explaining something about the armed forces and the so-called vaccinations. Um, please tell us a little about your background. Well. Um, you know, I uh, I I trained I'm trained as a civilian in medical school when medical school was seventy five hundred dollars a year. We thought that was outrageously expensive. It's a joke now, <laughs> and took a scholarship. Ended up uh, spending almost ten years in the Navy, and after I got out of the Navy, I did I did an orthopedic surgery residency. After I got out of the Navy, uh, I served on the. I just happened to be in Washington D.C. with my husband at the time, and just served on the NRAC, which is the Navy Research Advisory Committee, where we look at defense 
technologies for the Navy. And by law, they had to have a physician on it. Kind of opened up my mind to some of what was happening in the defense world. And it's just been an interest of mine forever. You know, after 9-11, I really started studying bioweapons because of that anthrax and the anthrax vaccine. And just one thing led to another. And I feel like, you know, part, everything, everything has been a stepstone to somehow end up in this war right now. Yeah. You know, I came across 9-11 um, when it first happened. I thought it was real, of course. Yeah. I didn't have any doubt it was we real. We all did. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, I've been in touch with a group of uh, lawyers in the U.S. from the East Coast. Uh, they've been looking into 9-11. They've been looking into the anthrax attacks. And <laughs> the picture now is a completely different one. Absolutely. It looks as though this was used, 9-11 uh, was used uh, in order to uh, keep up the justification for the, let's put it this way, military-industrial complex. Um, right. The truth will come out. I'm absolutely convinced it'll come out. More and more people are catching on to what was, what was going on back then. And it all plays into what we're seeing right now. Uh, it is maybe the backdrop of what we're seeing right now. How do you see that? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely it. And and if you go back in time to September of twenty of two thousand, rather just before nine eleven next year, you know there was a there was a um, a defense contractor. These are the inside Beltway boys that always look at defense issues, and they wrote a thing called the PNAC. We call it the PNAC, the Policy for the New American Century. And the idea was to look at how we can be in America the predominant military going into the next century. And one of the direct quotes from that, that, that policy brochure that I, I found um, was this, and it's pretty shocking when you think what they're saying. They say that, quote, advanced forms of biologic warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Wow. Now, these are not you know, foreign terrorists, these are our guys. This is Wolfowitz and Kagan and Abrams and all the guys that sit on these boards and routinely, you know, you know, pontificate about defense issues. And they're suggesting using, you know, genetic racially targeted bioweapons as, an, as a realm of political uh, influence. I, I think that's got to sink into people what, what may be going on here. Um, and, and I think in general, you know, my other favorite quote is by J. Edgar Hoover said, the individual is handicapped by coming face to face with a conspiracy so monstrous that he cannot believe it exists. And that's, I guess I believe it. I, I think my only, uh, you know, going into this, I might have been a little open-minded because, uh, you know, as a, as a friend, as a fellow spine surgeon said to me one time, I think I'm going to start believing all conspiracies because statistically I'm more apt to be right than if I believe none. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean... But, you know, and, and for, for me, the facts of the matter are that we have an international pharmaceutical company or com cartel, essentially. These guys are the biggest financial supporters of politicians and of the media. So, so they fund, and, and then what people also don't realize is they may think the FDA is there to make them safer, but these guys fund the FDA. The FDA doesn't do studies. What, what happens is the big pharma companies develop a medicine or a so-called vaccine, and then they push it to big pharma with a big chunk of money that they pay them to use to do the oversight of their own research. 
you know, the, the pharmaceutical company does the research, sends it to big pharma, sends it to the FDA with a big check. And then, by the way, about 70% of the FDA, uh, this was a study done by a couple doctors a number of years ago, are in rotating the revolving door so that they're going to or from big jobs at the pharmaceutical industry, six digit figures, maybe seven digit figures. So these guys know that if they if they don't regulate right, they're not going to get this plum job at the FDA. I mean, it's just so incestuous. And then to make the matters even worse, the CDC uh, doesn't make money by really protecting the American public or the world against infectious disease. They really make money through their patents. You know, when I was a medical student in 1976 at the University of Rochester, New York, um, I was interested in becoming an internist in those days instead of an orthopedic spine surgeon. But I used to subscribe to the MMWR, which was the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report that came out of the CDC. And it really taught you things. It taught you what diseases were out there, what the antibiotic sensitivities were in your area. I mean, it gave you useful information. This is before computers. It came on a little paper brochure. But now, you know, I was shocked that, you know, Five, six years ago, when I would go to the CDC to look up anything, it turned out it was just a nonstop ad for flu vaccine. And it turns out that's what the patents for flu vaccine and other vaccines, I think they own over 56 of them, is what funds the CDC. So this is all about money. And the pharmaceutical companies are the biggest funder of the government, of the, of the politicians. So essentially, what they've gotten this is a beautiful. I mean, I would love to have a business where the government forces you to buy my product. So they now have a business where they have gotten government to force the whole world to buy their products and to indemnify them against any damage from their products. And that's the world we are in right now. And 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 that they own their own regulatory body and their own cheerleading organization in the form of the CDC. Could you just give us that's what's bit, happening? What is the, the legal constellation again, uh, like with regards to the CDC, when you say they are funded by these people? So um, is this like, a, could you just explain to the audience uh, what's the what's the legal structure? So that's not a government entity, as one would think. Um, I will tell you, I'm not a lawyer and uh, my eyes glaze over looking to try and follow the money. But I have read that the CDC is on Dun and Bat Brad Street and that is actually a private corporation. We don't think of it that way, but it, it does have its own funding source through these patents. So whether, you know, I'm not sure it matters whether it's a government agency on paper or not, but what I can tell you is there is a big incestuous relationship where money comes in for for pushing vaccines. And when you're the, when you're, that, that should be if I did that as a physician in America, I'd be accused. In fact, we have a star clause. I would be accused of conflict of interest. They'd, they'd throw the book at me. We can't even, as an orthopedic surgeon, we can't even own a, a, a like a physical therapy um, practice yeah. separate from our own practice because that's considered a conflict of interest. I might send people to my own physical therapy or my own MRI business. So, you know, it's completely, it's completely, uh, not ethical, I think. And, and it does, it does certainly should raise people's understanding that this is not about disease prevention. This is about profit for a lot of people and about jobs. I mean, uh, I think her name was Julie Girling, Girlingham or Burling, Girling, Girlingham, something like that. She was the head of the CDC when they pushed like the HPV vaccine on our young girls and on young boys, in fact, which mm -hmm. turned out to be a pre pretty good disaster. 
And where did she go after that? She became the head of the Merck vaccine, uh, you know, research arm. So that's that's what happens. We have the same we have the same thing in Europe. The uh, the EMA, EMA is financed right. by the fee. In, even the European Patent Office is financed by those who claim for the patents, and they even earn money. If you contradict the patent, they earn again. So they have their own system. It's an own, it's an island where, where they earn a lot of money, and it's run by pharmaceutical companies and bond and other industries, and the the ministers of justice they just said yes we should have it because in us they have it too we have to be competitive this is what they how they founded the european patent office it's about money right. and has there is no political control there is no um, politician who can see the files or who may enter this and you have the same the who where i where right. i was when there was the swine flu there was this there was uh, the, the the boss of this of this uh, epidemiological task force. He afterwards he 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 went on and was the head of, of the development of, of vaccines with Novartis. So right. it's, it's the same everywhere. You have the revolving doors, but you have it in military too. You have revolving doors. You told it, and it's it's not only in pharmaceutical companies. Oh no, I know that. But there is a bigger. I, I don't want people to walk away and say this is all about money. I keep hearing that it's not all about money. There's a huge agenda here that, that, that transcends uh, the issue of money, because ultimately, I think mostly thanks to you guys, I think when this all comes down, some of these pharmaceutical industries are not going to be around, I, I, and I think that would be for the better, but I think um, they don't mean maybe realize it because you know every every totalitarian regime tends to eat the people that put them in power and i think that's going to happen here so you have to say what's this really all about it's not just about money i think if you look back in time and you can go back to plato the idea of depopulation that there are too many of us little people that are waking up and that um even i mean in ancient greece there weren't that many people but tyrants always think there are many people too many people and they yeah. get nervous and we're besides being nervous about the number of people that could be uh you know actually exercise people power we've got the issue of a world financial system that's on the brink of collapse and i think that they see that the that the the answer to this is a is a depopulation agenda and I stumbled, I don't know if you've seen it, and, and I don't know if you've talked about it, but um, there was a, in America, there was a, a brochure that was created. It was, a, it was a, a written document out of a meeting that was done by these, I call them the Uber Lords, whoever they are in the shadows that are running this show. In 1954, they met somewhere and they discussed the problems. And these guys, um, again, we don't know who they are, but they, they somebody took notes. And it got stuck in a in a copier that was found in a federal federal um, uh, recycle bin or something, and it it was called and it was and somebody made it into a book and 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 G Edward Griffin that that's fairly famous you know about the the, the uh, creature of Jekyll Island and various different research projects he's done, he told me he knows the guy that found this that that's a real story, um, but it was it was written up and he made it into a book called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, and I actually had this on my bookshelf for years and i i thought they were talking about directed energy weapons which are an issue and i thought well that's a, that's a fight for another day right now i got to read other things but i pulled it out and read it on a plane not too long ago and i realized oh my god that's really what's going on here because what these guys talk about is what are we going to do about the fact that we have 
these people are greedy and there are too many of them. What are we, what are we the Uber lords, going to do about this? And they said, well, um, we have to have the silent weapons are not, not something we think of as weapons. They're weapons of social control. So in 1954, for example, they were talking about merging the data from credit cards, which who had a credit card in 1954, with the data from universal barcodes, UBC, those codes that we now go to the grocery store and they scan things. Well, I used to work in a grocery store in high school in 1969, and I can tell you, not only do we not have barcodes, we didn't have computers. So who knew about this stuff, right? And they're talking about metadata. Who knew about all this stuff? Well, apparently somebody did. And what they were saying is we can merge this data and we can figure out, we can, we can stress the economy like by raise, artificially raising gas prices, and then through their purchasing, we can find out what all these little people are doing. I mean, it's that kind of thing. And they say that once they release these weapons on us, that the, that the public will not be able to comprehend the weapon, that they won't believe that they're being attacked. They'll sense that something is wrong, but they're not technically able to respond because they don't know, and, and because it's complicated, it's highly technical, okay? This sounds a lot like this PSYOP, you know, pseudo-viral COVID, whatever we want to call this we're in right now, that we're not, the, pub, the general public is not technically able to understand it and respond, and they don't know how to associate for defense. And ultimately, end of, at the end of this document, they say they're, you know, we tried depopulating through wars, and that was messy and kind of screwed up the environment. Eh, we don't want to do that again. What? Let's just do, there's two options. There's um, uh, benevolent slavery and genocide. I don't think they were kidding. I mean, I think this is the kind of psychopaths we're dealing with. And, and I might, and I'm, and I admit, I might sound, sound a little kooky, but I've decided I don't care at this point because I think we're in an, uh, a really <laughs> crux for humanity. And, um, you know, and Dr. Wardog, I heard you early on talk about the problems of the, you know, the possibility of this vaccine damaging the placenta. And here we are now looking at our children being murdered and, and our, um, you know, the numbers that are coming out of that we can see, the numbers that honest physicians can look at and understand the VAERS and, and, and reports out of all sorts of, of databases and all sorts of places, it's just undeniable if you have your eyes open and your heart open and you actually read these stories and listen to people. It's only deniable if you sit in some academic bubble and are being told by the CDC what to do. But if you go back in time, there's some evidence of how we got here and that's that's also i think important for people to realize is that that because i had heard about this and i hadn't really looked into it we all know about the the history in world war ii of the the t4 euthanasia program and i i have a, a thing on my website about the lessons of carl brandt who was hitler's chief medical doctor and quite frankly um, Carl Brandt was a good guy. He, he, you know, the idea that these guys were monsters just denies what really happened. He was a good guy. It was an excellent surgeon and actually saved a lot of lives personally. But he went to the gallows because he signed the documents that allowed people to be experimented on without under coercion and without informed consent. And I would say that's exactly what's happening now. And when and if you go back to like 2000, it was 2003 or 2004 that the, the Royal Euthanasia Program really started. It was uh, what, we, what we've heard about as the Liverpool Pathway in England. And it was funded by the King's Fund. It's an official agency. And they are, this is, a, this is their, you know, 
euthanasia, we, you know, we're the experts in America in the 1920s, you know, the whole euthanasia movement, and it, and it then went to Germany, and it went all over the world. But this whole idea of, you know, compassionately, you know, we, we always sell it, it was under, and in England, I think it was the Marie Curie cancer care program and something like that. So we always sell it under the idea that, oh, there's these, you wouldn't deny these poor sick cancer patients in pain the chance to have a gentle death. And that's exactly, by the way, what they called it in Germany years ago. Well, so they started funding this program and um, it became implemented early on. And the idea in 2000, so the last that H1N1, I think that was 2008, 2009. So what they did was, this was the Liverpool pathway and it got to be generally accepted and pushed through the National Health Service. And it was, it was the idea basically was to kill the elderly and the infirm. Um, and and, and, and they, they, uh, there was a Dr. Clive Seal who he was involved in this and he was, uh, he said, and he wasn't involved in this, I'm sorry, he reviewed this and he said that, this pathway accounted for one sixth of the deaths in 2008 or nine, whenever that H1N1 came out. And what they would do is very much what we're seeing now. They would isolate these people and they would, um, if they look like they might be dying, they might have some of the signs of pre-death, you know, they would then sedate them, kind of chronically sedate them and withdraw nutrition and fluids. Now, I can tell you um, that's happening in our hospitals today. And what happens is if you have somebody with a mnemonic process that goes, especially elderly, that they're, they're, they're not able to completely oxygenate well and their, 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 their energy levels down, their immune systems down, and then you sedate them, you isolate them, them from their family and friends, this is a, this is a magnification of the, of the death curve purposefully. I can't come up with another reason. And, you know, it's not just happening in our nursing homes, it's happening everywhere. And, you know, and so I think that's the big world picture is that this is a depopulation agenda. And the fact people I always hear that the argument against what we're saying is true is that, and I hear this from, you know, friends that are in medicine that, that are on kind of the, the academic, you know, blind side, I think. And they say, oh, you guys talking about all these deaths. It's a very small number compared to the number vaccinated. That's, it's always a, a numbers game like that. They're not looking at the, the implications that we're in. You know, anytime you have a bad drug of any kind, it's like a little avalanche, like thalidomide. You know, it starts as a few, you start seeing a few. And then as it rolls down the hill, that snowball gains up weight and mass. And pretty soon you've got an avalanche at the bottom. And we're not there yet. But to not, but to not look at what's happening as we're, killing people like now through this these vaccines we're in the we're in the, the pre-avalanche stage and we've got all these kids now with myocarditis you know in the military i've got a friend in the military who can get to the epidemiologic database and what i was told was that in 2019 and 2018 2017 we went back five years the average number of myocarditis patients were about 800 it was at 800, yeah, 800 per year, okay? Now, myocarditis carries a five-year 50 to 60% mortality. You don't die right away necessarily, but your chance of living a long life goes way, way down. The year of the vaccine, and, and by the way, it didn't go up the year of COVID. 
So they can't say that the myocarditis was caused by COVID. Only 20 people in the year 2020 in the military died of COVID. 20 people in all the military services in the US. But in 2021, we now have, in, in the first seven months, I haven't looked at the data recently, but in the first seven months, we had 600 excess myocarditis cases. So we had 1,400 cases, and the year was not was just barely half over. Those numbers mean we've we've at seven months into that we've killed more of our troops, 20 times more of our troops than COVID did statistically. Now you know NPR beat me up for for claiming that, but I defy them to go and get these numbers and then look at it. It's it's they should be able to get it. So. That's what I think is going on in general, and it's you know you guys have have really looked at the science of this. I've been in one of the things I've been talking about over the last year are the lies that have allowed this to go on. Um, I got into this because somebody asked me one time to go down and talk about the mask mandate, and I said, "Oh, this will be a piece of cake." Three minutes we got. Oh, no problem because everybody knows masks don't work for this kind of disease. It's never been shown to work, and we—it's not like science woke up in 2020. We've had OSHA, we've had environmental services, we've had you know big big studies of masks. Yes. We know they don't work. Well, that turned out to be a falsehood because the entire University of Nebraska was stacked against me. One doctor on one side and the entire university boys on the other side because they were following the CDC guidelines of what they're being told to say. I think. I would love to have one of them look me in the eye and really some of these epidemiologists and smart infectious disease guys look me in the eye and tell me that this idea you wear a mask because you're dangerous the first six feet of walking into a restaurant. But then when you realize you see the bar seat you're going to, you can take off your mask, go sit at the bar or go sit at a table and eat your dinner without a mask. Now you've put your dirty mask that you've been wearing all day on the table, put your phone on it, touched all the stuff and touched other people's plates. That's okay. <laughs> but the minute you stand up, you're dangerous again. And then you have to walk, put your mask on to go to the restroom, walking by tables of unmasked people. I want one of them to look me in the eye and tell me that's contagion control. Are you kidding me? You know, I think a seventh grader in basic biology knows that is not going to control, if you believe it exists, a, a an airborne disease. Okay, that, we can just, let's just go on that right away. Now, the other part that I wasn't so uh, understanding of, because this isn't my field, I mean, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, we're not known for looking into this stuff, with these PCR tests. But that's even worse. I know that you've, you've done a lot of work on this, and that's the worst that's an unbelievable lie that, you know, it, it, you can't make this stuff up. And I can't believe how many doctors still believe in the tests. So, it, you know, we all know everybody on the street now knows the name Kerry Mullis and, and that he said that Fauci was an idiot and, and that these tests should never be used for diagnostic purposes. And he was dead shortly thereafter. But what they really don't know is exactly why he was saying that. I mean, the first reason is not just because they were overcycling the tests. I mean, we'll get to that. But the first reason was because these not, were not made for diagnosis. These were made for lab uh, tests to find very, very, very minute pieces of genetic material. In other words, when done correctly, they're done under a hood. They're, they're done in a sterile environment with people knowing and trained how to do them. They're very sensitive to you know, mistakes. You have to do it right. What are we doing? We're swabbing because, of the, and the reason for that, by the way, is because a small amount of airborne contamination can ruin the test. What were we doing? We were swabbing people's noses in the parking lots. 
You know, you can't tell me that makes any sense. So that's step one. And then the next thing is, and I looked at the thermal fissure in instructions to how we do these tests. And it's very clear. They showed you how to make, there's such a small amount of material, you have to amplify it in order to even see it, in order to test for it. So there's the cycle amplification process. And there's a, they show in the thermal fissure guidelines this beautiful S-shaped curve. And they show if you cycle between 20 and 30 times, then you're in the sweet zone and it's only qualitative. It doesn't tell you how much is there. It just tells you, is this genetic sequence present or is it absent? And if you do it 20 to 30 times, pretty much you've got a true predictive value analysis. In other words, it's unlikely to be false negative. It's unlikely to be false positive. Certainly not false positive. You still might have some false negative, but not false positives at 20 to 30 cycles, assuming all other things to be correctly done. But once you go from 30 to 35, you're going to start getting some false positives. If you go over 35 cycles, now you're in the complete trash zone where you're cycle amplifying dust and you know anything that blows by this test. You cannot, it's not only that it's just wrong sometimes or that it has a certain false positive rate, it's that it's meaningless, like a, a, a broken clock that gets the right time twice a day. It's completely false. And we it, and to do it, is is just total I, I just this is the one that really boggles my mind about smart physicians we took statistics in, and we took some studies about how do you do lab studies and and how you do quality control and that's the other thing that boggles that, that when people don't want to believe this is what i tell my friends if you don't believe there's a worldwide conspiracy here okay you guys that work in a hospital that are doctors and you know those guys that work in labs these, these lab managers in these hospitals that have the capability to do these tests, they're very smart uh, people that are well-trained. They don't do false tests. I mean, if you had a test in a hospital lab that was 90% false positive, you'd fire that guy. So these guys know how to take a test. They know how to set it up. They know how to uh, train their staff. They know how to do quality control. And yet what happened in 2020? Every lab in any of any size around the world was overcycling these tests. They didn't apparently look at the instructions that came with the test. They were given the booklet. They were on the average cycling 45 times. There was a lab, there were labs in Florida that had a hundred percent false positive tests or hundred percent positive tests. And yet, you know, so then you have to ask yourself, now, so there, are you two, should, there are two worldviews here. I'm sorry. You, should, you can see with this thing that it's not about health. And it's not about truth, like in science. It's only about money. And well, opinion. yeah, money and, and that they've been told to do this for a reason. That's my yes. point is, you know, from a worldview standpoint, you have to believe. Now, it's not random chance that they did this, by the way, because on random chance, some of them would have undercycled the test if they just were stupid and didn't know how to do it. But the point is that not only did they do this test wrong, they all overcycled the test. And on that magic date of January 21st, 2020, 21, they suddenly had a, an epiphany and all started un dropping the cycle numbers down. Now, so either you believe that there was a worldwide psychosis of lab managers in 2020, that they all suddenly got some hissy fit and couldn't think about this one particular test, or they were told to do it. And when they, if you, you know, I, I think, I personally don't believe in the group psychosis theory. So if they were told to do it, who told them to do it? Well, it couldn't have just been the guy in Florida the CDC guy, because, you know, it was all states, 
it was all countries. So by definition, it's a conspiracy and it's an international conspiracy. Somebody told them to do that. I don't have an, if somebody can come up with another worldview, I'd love to hear it. But, yeah, but it that was connected to the um, to the Drosten paper, you know, because there he he um, you know with the, like presenting this methods new method for finding the virus or like I mean finding that specific virus. And he, I think, in his in his in the common Drosten paper, he um, suggested the forty five cycles. Right, exactly, and and you know there were. Um... You know, and and you and you know him uh, uh, obviously, uh, Dr. Michael Yaden and a whole group of other scientists. When they reviewed that paper, that the, the review of the Coleman Drosten yeah. PCR protocol or whatever, you know, uh, I wrote down some quotes here, and they're pretty they're pretty damning. And this was, by the way, done. I think it was November of 2020. So this is this is yeah. eight yeah. months before the FDA finally, you know, said, oh, uh, maybe we have to withdraw this test. Okay, but they said. Um, consequently, in nearly all test procedures worldwide, merely two primer matches were used instead of all three. This oversight renders the entire test protocol useless with regards to delivering accurate test results of real significance in an ongoing pandemic. He said, these are severe design errors since the, and this is the Drossen test, since the test cannot discriminate between the whole virus and virus fragments, the test cannot be used as diagnostic for, SA, for SARS viruses. And then it says, Uh, this is a very serious area and makes the protocol useless as a specific diagnostic tool. They go on and on. The design errors described here are so severe that it is unlikely that specific amplification of SARS-CoV-2 genetic material will occur using a protocol of the Coleman Drosten paper. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I it's just it's not a small error here. And the and the withdrawal by the FDA was a level one, class one. Withdrawal. These were under emergency use authorization, just like these pseudo vaccines. Yeah. And so level one means it's a potential harm to the public. You should get rid of it. And yet what happened? People did not know about it. Most doctors didn't hear the news. You know, there was no big smeary, oh, campaign. Oh, hey, I made a huge mistake. Guys, stop doing this. No, they didn't do that. So all these doctors continued to use it. And I think one of the funniest things, I mean, it would be funny if this weren't so serious, but I looked up what they're because it says on the FDA site, what's their replacement? And if you go to the and they say, see the CDC uh, stuff, see the see the CDC site for this. I go to the CDC and it kind of redirects me a couple of times. And I finally land on this area that tells me to read about what how you're supposed to do things now. Now, keeping in mind that they're now telling us, oh, there's first there was a Delta variant and then there was an Omicron uh, variant, which you know, is nonsense. But, the, but anyway, this, this is all coming out. And it turns out states, state labs can't test for these things. And especially now when they tell you, this is literally, when you get this, this whole two-page thing about how to do the replacement options for these now withdrawn tests, it sounds like if you've ever tried to put together something that you bought and it was, and the directions for the assembly were written by Chinese engineers, this is 10 times worse. It says, it says things like, if you have a, a, a genetic dropout is what they call it. And it's like an, essentially a negative test. If you haven't, if somebody's sick, but you get a negative test, you should think Omicron because that's probably Omicron, but it might not be. <laughs> oh, and if you have a double genetic dropout, think Delta, but it might not be. Because you can have a perfectly, you can have all this and be perfectly normal too. I mean, it's complete gobbledygook. It's not English. It's not science. It's unbelievable. And I, and I just challenge anybody to go read that. I, 
the thing is, it might be uh, either, let me look it up, um, from Star Trek. It may not even be um, uh, Omicron. It may be, this is much more dangerous, of course, either the Borg variant or <laughs> there's another one very similar. It, it makes absolutely no sense. I like we the Borg variant. Oh, they created the case. They started created cases. It's all about cases. Right. And that was and that's another lie. Something. What is a case? And then right. there was the narrative. And they made up the cases. They always had some, some cosmetics with the cases. They changed it a little bit. And they found out something very, very small. What even the laboratories in the normal state surveillance organizations cannot follow. So they, they made something, they did not test in the, in the agencies, they did not give on the market, they just made up something, and each of them got a lot of money if they just followed it. A doctor gets right, the that's exactly. heroes in making this, this swap, and if he gives the, 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 the injection, he gets 28 euros, which is a lot of money. And so they asked, don't ask questions, they just said, okay, if I should do it, I just do it. And this is right. how the whole machine was was running, and everyone who said, "Oh no, this is not right. What do you do?" He would destroy the whole business. He would he would be they would be angry because they were all accustomed to it and they all followed it. And it's very it's very dangerous now, or very very difficult now to to change this uh, train going in one direction. I would like to and, share and one, one little experience, one story that we, um, you know, in the beginning, we were in close contact with a laboratory doctor and he was, it was like in some medium-sized city. And in that city, there was apparently something corrupt going on because like two of the laboratories that are were lo located in that uh, city, they got all the... Um, the test, um, you know, contract, basically some sort of contract that were allowed to put some some uh, little center somewhere so people could go there and like get the tests. And so at that point, you know, I was, t I spoke to this doctor various times and he was like, he completely understood that it was fraudulent and that they was, were using these high, um, you know, cycle um, numbers and that it was not good for anything. And then, you know, when I, because we wanted to do some sort of um, collaboration with him, and when I checked in, you know, then I was kind of a little bit surprised because was, he was not responding anymore. And, you know, like it's a, so I got then information that he apparently had been included into that scheme, you know. So he was now also part of the doctors who, who got these test um, orders, yeah. basically. And he was right. making a huge amount of money and immediately yeah. the question stopped. I, I think that that's when people ask me about why are the doctors not speaking out? I tell people, you know, there's a pyramid here of power. And on the very top of the pyramid are the people that took the money to keep their, um, their university programs afloat. And, you know, Fauci, this whole idea that Fauci is the ultimate bad guy, he's just the bag man. You know, that's a mob term. And, and you know, the, 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 the bag man, it's not his money. He takes the mob boss's money. He distributes it to the capos, the guy that the guys that do the work. And then if they don't do what he says, he goes out and breaks their legs. Well, Fauci's equivalent was he took the big guy's money. He, he $800 billion, I've heard estimated, that went around to all these universities over 40 years. I mean, university hospitals, government agencies, all these things, lavish funding. And they overbuilt based on that. 
And so now if they don't do exactly as the CDC guidelines and he says, they'll go down. So uh, they're bought. You can't, you can't get them out of the system. They've sold their souls for this. At the bottom of that pyramid are the poor, and, and, and I have family member in here. I feel so bad for these guys because they're victims. They're the people in training. They're, they're, they're the medical students, interns, residents, fellows. They're people that are being forced to take this vaccine to keep something that they've worked their whole life for. That is so evil, I can't even tell you how bad that is. And they've changed their own genetics just to keep this job. And then in the middle, though, are these guys that are out of training that could leave these institutions and bring this whole thing to a halt. You know, at one point, I was a big spine surgeon and I contributed a great deal of income to hospitals. I know how this works. If 10 big surgeons at a, at, a, at a hospital or 20 big surgeons, I mean, the guys that really bring in the income to those institutions just said no and said, stop this or we're leaving, this thing would grind to a halt. And to not do that is in my, at this point um, is, is not, uh, is not an ethical stand. I mean, you can't keep, can't stay in these institutions where they're killing people by omission and commission and call yourself a physician uh, of, of some ethics. And I always said to myself, looking at what happened to Carl Brandt, because Carl Brandt was like me, he was, he did, they didn't call him orthopedic surgeons back then, but he was an orthopedic surgeon, did spine surgery and did trauma. And I thought, that's how I got reading about him. I found out, oh my gosh, Hitler's doctors. It's always the spine surgeons. We're always the ones doing crazy things, you know? Well, it turned out he was, um, he wasn't what I expected to read about. He was actually a good guy, like I said, but I said, what was his fault here? He was, he was trying to do triage on a whole country medically, but at some point he should have realized he was in a system doing evil things and he needed to get off the bus. And I, I gave this lecture, it's on my website 20 years ago. And I said, will we as physicians someday in the future know when to get off the bus? And apparently not. That's really, we're riding this bus. People are riding this bus over the cliff. And so for doctors, I would say, there's never been a better time to get out of the system than right now, because you can independently through telemedicine treat people and help them. And you can make money doing it. You don't have to lose your house and your whole income. I, I mean, there's no excuse for this at this point, you I know, think. You know why big companies don't want unions they don't want to unify the, the laborers or the people who work in the company. They don't want that they speak about such things because when the pressure comes from above, the people who have to follow, they are much stronger when they have a union. When they come together in the, in, when eating in, or when they meet somewhere and, and they, they speak about it and they will, they will exchange their views and they will suddenly, they can unite to say, no, we don't do this. And right. they go and say, we have this in Scandinavia, we have 80% of, of, of degree of organized people in the, in, the, in the companies. In Germany, it's about 20%. And I think in other countries, it's, it's even less. There is no organizations. And Amazon, for instance, doesn't like unions at all. They don't want them in their enterprise. They fight against the unions. And this is, this is only functioning when the people who work don't come together, don't unite, don't discuss what's going on. And uh, I think this is very important that we have unions that we make. Well, the only problem, and I say this from uh, the American experience, the only problem with unions is they may start out okay, 
okay, but they can be co-opted by the bad guys yes, as well. That's right. And the AMA, which is not technically a union, is a perfect example how it may have started out as a bunch of doctors getting together to share right. intellectual things, but it became a, uh, you do it the way we say, or you're no longer practicing standard medicine, and we can go after you with medical boards yes. and all that sort of stuff. And we know about right. unions driving people to uh, you know, for political purposes and things like that. That's the only problem. But you're right. We have to, people need to or, organize. And actually, they're, they're doing quite a bit of that. I think it's good that they're organizing together kind of on the sidelines. Look at what happened to the, the Southwest Airline guys. Now, they were former military. They, they were patriots. They believed in the Constitution still that they took an oath to defend and they just said we're not doing this you know those those uh the 35 or 37 uh seals you know i mean i i i knew some of those guys that like that and those guys are are serious you know thinkers they're not they're not just muscle and they came you know and they stood up and said no you know we're supposed to be defending a nation to allow religious freedom don't tell us we can't have religious freedom so i i think it's happening but i'm kind of i'm not so organized union thing because i've seen it get perverted in my country but um not all bad but not all good either i just so, left I, I just left the big union i was member of a big union in germany i left, just left it because the union didn't care about what's going on they didn't protect the right, that's the place they, yeah. they were just somewhere above with the government yeah, they, did they were co-opted by the government. Yeah. Yes, and they and they were where the government is. There is the, the the money and the all those people who are buying them. But yeah. I, I'm just mean that the people in this in the hospitals in the, in the offices that those people should talk to each other that they should feel strong right. and that we help them to to go on strike right. if they Organize. don't like to do what they are forced to. Yeah. Well, you, you know, if I right, go ahead, I'm sorry. When, when you were saying, yeah, unions can be co-opted, uh, that is the infamous uh, Jimmy Hoffa example. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw this movie. Um, <laughs> the thing is, things are happening anyway. Despite the fact that there may be not enough unions, we have just founded one. The uh, our, our um, Austrian colleague, Dr. Uh, Brunner, has founded one, and the most important section in both these unions is the medical community because we we're going to use them as a kind of a crowbar to bring the entire system to a halt awesome. uh, they they have said in austria and both both in austria and here <clears throat> the, there are many members of the medical community who said if they do introduce vaccine mandates we're going to walk off our jobs but they need protection for that and that's what these right are there for. So we're going to use them as a crowbar to bring the system to a halt and to show the other side that we're the people who are going to call the shots, not them, because this is just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand psychopaths on the other side. But things are happening now because I we're think so too. changing all these news, we're exposing everything. And uh, through, for example, the testimony of two former uh, WHO employees or advisors, uh, we have learned how they managed to get the cases when they didn't have any cases. Now, regardless of whether or not they're gain, gain of function experiments, regardless of whether or not this is part man-made or, or whole man-made uh, virus, what we do know is the virus is no more dangerous than the common fluid, 0.14, 0.15 infection fatality rate, and the immune system is perfectly well capable of dealing with it. That's why they didn't have any cases. 
So in early 2020, they needed cases. What, how did they create the, ca the cases? Well, they called Drusten here in Germany, uh, Professor Dr. Drusten, who's neither a professor nor a doctor. He's a complete fake, an idiot. Um, and they told him to invent this test. And that's what he did. What Brilliant. they didn't know is that he was so stupid that in 2014, he had given an interview in a uh, German Business Weekly expressly stating a positive test doesn't mean a thing. You can be perfectly <laughs> healthy. And all of a sudden he comes up with this test claiming this is the test that will tell you everything about infections. Um, now, they, you know, the, the, for some reason, we know why. We know that in the meantime, one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind, and it's the financial industry, it's the financial mafia who is behind this. This is how the, how these uh, very few super rich people funnel their money through um, through BlackRock and Vanguard into the, into the uh, global corporations and control everything. So it's a financial mafia who we have to keep an eye on because they're the ones who should have gone down in 2008 and nine, you know, this predatory lending shit, um, but they didn't. Instead, right. they printed money. And, and they needed to divert our attention from their imminent implosion in September of 2019. And that's how they were uh, pushed into an early start with this pandemic. But the pandemic doesn't exist. Is this right. the PCR test pandemic? So what did Drusten do when the pressure was there? Um, and they changed their narrative overnight. Remember all of the American politicians, the German politicians, all the doctors, everyone saying, oh, this is nothing to worry about. No, we don't need to take any special precautions. No masks are necessary. And all of a sudden, it's the other way around. They asked him to come up with the test. Not just that, but the other uh, part of the equation is asymptomatic infections. Of course, everyone knows yeah, there are no asymptomatic lot. infections. They don't play a role in all of this. Um, but he came up with this, and his ideas were then recommended by the WHO, which is completely controlled by psychopaths like Bill Gates, to the entire world. Had it not been for asymptomatic infections, nobody would have been afraid of anyone. So he comes up with that thing, everyone is afraid of everyone, but then he calms us down by saying, I have this test and I can tell you exactly who is infectious and who isn't. You explained it to us. Dr. Mike Eden, who's gonna be with us any minute now, he has had taken a really close look at this and he came up, he came to the same conclusion. Of course, the test, just like Carrie Mullis said over and over again, it cannot distinguish between dead and live matter. It doesn't even look at whole viruses, only at fragments. And the way it was set up, it was guaranteed to produce 100% false positives. That's how they created the cases, and they needed them for the declaration of the public health emergency of international concern, and they needed that in order to use untested new drugs, these so-called vaccines, on, on real human beings, which otherwise wouldn't have been possible. So that, that's the whole story right there, and that's how we're going to get them. Well, and I think, I think the other point to be made here is they may, you know, we, the biggest lie may be even another step and that is that we see we keep talking about viruses but keep in mind we don't have true isolates of viruses not just for this but i really i couldn't believe that i you know i listened to andrew kaufman and dr cowan and and, and stefan lonk and all these guys and i said are you kidding me after a year of hell we don't have a virus but it turns out that and it's that's another it's it's very easy to fool people because it's a complicated technical 
a point. But the bottom line is that the viral genomes that we have for this, what we what they claim is the genome of SARS-CoV-2 only in, exists in silico as a computer programmed genome. And you know, the, the, I heard somebody say this, and I think it's pretty cute, and I'm going to start adopting it and plagiarizing it, and that is that, that we've, this is a, because it is, this is what really separates, you said it, it, it gets human beings to fear each other, which is a perfect way to control a population by having them be afraid of each other rather than afraid of the controlling mechanism. And, and what they've done is created these little uh, fake mythical flying unicorns that make us sick. This whole concept of disease become be, that, that somehow I have these things that I breathe out that nobody can see and nobody's ever actually isolated it, but we are sure that they are what causes disease and that when I go into and stand next to you i breathe on you and you get sick we were taught that i believe that in in uh in medicine you know uh forever but you know what it turns out when you really look at what's been going on we don't have evidence for that and including in 1918 where they could not prove transmission and they did a lot to try and prove that people need to go back and look at that they, they had people that were dying or very, very sick with the 1918, quote, pandemic of influenza, breathe on, on volunteers. None of them got sick. They had them, they took the, you know, for lack of a better term, snot and goo out of the lungs, and they put them into these volunteers. That didn't do it. They literally even spun that stuff down and injected into volunteers. It didn't do it. And the other thing is that the horses were getting sick back then. Now, Influenza does not come from the term of some Latin for some virus. Influenza just means influence. And if you really go back in time, it seems like, um, and the horses, by the way, they couldn't prove transmission either. They put you know, bags over their heads, got the goo, put it on other horses. None of them got sick. What's going on here? Uh, we see that with this. We see people. So when I hear one of the problems of saying it's, it's no worse than the flu, for, for people on the receiving end that are really getting sick, they say, wait a minute, my relative just died. It's really making people sick. And I do see as a treating physician, I see people that are younger having worse problems than I've seen in the past, but I'm, you know, for me. However, what we don't know is what's really causing it. And people need to understand that we haven't proved transmission. We don't have a virus. We don't have a test. We don't have autopsies. What we have is a syndrome of, of symptoms, the symptoms being you know, uh, flu-like symptoms, but nothing that's pathognomonic, nothing that's really characteristic of any one disease. And at the end of the, the day, there's several things that could do this. One of them, a lot of things that we might think about as transmissibility that might look to us like transmissibility really aren't. And uh, I think Dr. Cowan goes over this very beautifully in his book, Contagion. He talks about the fact that if you don't know what radiation is, if you hadn't discovered uranium and Marie Curie and all that, and you send people down into a mine and they start getting sick, it would look like they're transmitting to somebody, some, they're each other, a disease. And you pull them out of the mine and they, some of them die, but some of them get better. And you think, oh, well, that was a disease. They were, but it could have been that there was your contamination with radium or uranium or something down in the mine. Now, we understand that kind of ionizing radiation now. What we don't appreciate, and because we've been lied to in the same way we were lied to the day for decades about the, 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 the damages of cigarette smoking by the AMA, for example, is EMF, is non-ionizing radiation. 
And there's a ton of, when people choose to look, there's a ton of evidence. So it turns out the symptoms of COVID could be produced by cellular type EMF toxicity, by, by graphene oxide toxicity that we know is in these so-called vaccines that are really, the FDA has, has called viral-based genetic therapies, and by uh, a, an artificially created spike protein that was made in a lab. We know that. I, I think anybody to deny that at this point is not in reality here. So but we don't have is evidence of this little flying unicorn we call SARS-CoV-2. So I'm well, even, thinking we're being distracted from a big problem here, and that's the EMF. No, we have evidence that there are many unicorns flying, and they are flying for millions, for, for thousands of years, and we, they, we know them, and they enter us, and we, we live with them. This is what we know. We know that they replicate in our cells. Yes, we know, but we, the, the causality, the, the reason why we get ill, this is a multi-factor multi-factor right. thing, and there are so many things coming together. And the the thing what makes us ill is our immune system, which is right. reacting with. Us. You know, there are even when you walk through the meadow and you are allergic, there's nothing dangerous. But if you're allergic, you get very very ill because of only just some flowers that are growing there. So it always has to do with the biological. In the biological system, there are things we are used to and we can digest very well. And there are others, we, we, we react falsely. And maybe that we react falsely has to do with what we have trained or what we have eaten or what we, other, or, or medicaments or-, or Right, toxins. Yeah, so many, there are so many reasons why- I mean, we can call them viruses, but we're really talking about toxins here. And I think one of the eye openers for yes. me was that study done in Florida where these guys, the parents of these kids, they washed their cloth masks and the night before, and then they sent them to school with these clean cloth masks. And then when they got home, they, they sent them out for culture. And it was shocking what this cultured out. It cultured yeah. out tuberculosis. You know, I, I expected them to culture out mouth germs. But what we found out, they cultured out tuberculosis. They cultured out Neisseria meningitidis, the, 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 the you know, bacterium that gives you Neisseria. They, they cultured out um, E. coli, you know, from food. They cultured out things that we would not have predicted. I would not have predicted. So, it, again, it's not that we don't have these things flying through the air. It's that the idea that disease is produced because I have a new one that you haven't been in, you know, encountered with and I give it to you somehow because I'm close to you, that's just an anti-human agenda. That turns out not to be true, in my opinion, at all. We've, yes. we've accepted it, but we need to rethink, like you say, it's our immune system, it's toxins. There's a lot of different things that make us sick. And, and I can tell you, in my city, People that people that had what looked like, I mean, which I thought was COVID before, and there's never been when this whole thing broke out early, like the Chinese, they said there's nobody getting reinfections. Once you get it, you get it and you're over it. And you've, you know, the senior geneticist in, in Moscow and the Karolinska Institute all said by May of 2020, 30% of their people are already immune when they did very sophisticated tests. Wow. You know, so what's I, happening when we're getting these sicknesses now? And I can tell you, in my city, it looks like it goes right up the, the, the right up the street where they put in the five G towers. I can't prove that yet, but there's not. This is not something we should be ignoring because that could be a real killing field. You know, five G is a directed energy weapon. We are we are living we are living beings, and life is communication. And when you when you, we communicate now through internet, and uh, it's very complicated. If you tell me something horrible, maybe I get sick, although there is no direct contact. 
So life is about communication and a virus is a material thing that communicates uh, molecular informations. We have this in our body a thousand times and we have this between persons. We exchange substances, we exchange biological informations and our immune system understands it and says, this is important, this is not important and so on. This belongs to me, this doesn't belong to me, defend it. And such, such process of communication is always going on and it's on the social level. And we, if we are anxious, if we are afraid, yeah. our immune system doesn't function really well. Right. So the same information one time doesn't hurt us. But if we are afraid, maybe it hurts us. So it's so complicated what's happening that we can only estimate and that we can only try to define situations where people have have died and why they have died. We make we make explanations, but it's very, very difficult to say a diagnosis even. What is a tuberculosis on one person is something else on the another. other person. One yes. of the things we can say though is that where the vaccine goes, disease follows. Exactly. And I think it's very interesting of what's happening in the South Pole right now with the Belgian contingent. Here's a group of people that are, my, my friend, when I was in the military, my friend was one of these guys that was a doctor that wintered over in the American South Pole expedition. So multiple countries have these. And it's a, you know, it's a you know, couple dozen people or whatever that go down there and they're completely cut off. They don't get supplies for a while because the weather's so brutal. They winter over, they go down there. So these guys were fully vaccinated. They were PCR tested to death. I mean, they were screened, so they didn't have any kind of evidence of having COVID, whatever we want to call that. And they went down to the South Pole, and now two-thirds of them have COVID, whatever they want to call it, however they're defined. So how did that happen? They couldn't, I mean, they're not getting communication from the outside world. So they're not seeing other people. Um, why is it that the most vaccinated countries are having the biggest outbreaks of these so-called variants? Well... You know, we have a, 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 this is a brilliant idea. We have a, a, a nano, toxic nanoparticle that was created in multiple labs. The Wuhan we always name, but there are multiple labs involved here. And that toxic nanoparticle, we've, you know, like the, the Prashant Pradhan and those guys, I, that's when I figured it out in, in February of 2020 when they published their paper and were immediately censored. But they showed that this thing, unlike any other coronavirus, if we want to call it that out there, had these four HIV inserts put into the spike protein. And that you don't need all these, the rest of this huge virus doesn't even have to exist. All you need is this 181 base pair spike protein to make people sick. So what? So it's pretty clear to me that was made in a lab. So then we have, if, if we decide that that's a bioweapon by definition that was made in the lab, then we have a vaccine program that is actually designed to make trillions of this very spike protein in your body. And we're surprised that now people are getting sick from it. I mean, I think that's one of the realizations that people, you know, that's the biggest tragedy here because not only are we killing people with this, but we are inflicting them with artificial DNA and RNA that MIT now admits can be intercalated into our DNA permanently. So, um, it, but it would, if it would be in, in each vial, all people would be sick. And they were planning it that it's not in each vial, but they dosed it. They gave it in some vials, in some right. in some batches, and not in others. We will hear about this from Mike Eden soon. Right. I mean, I, you can see that in the the Pfizer, the guy that put out the 
the, the lot number versus toxicity. And yeah. you can see it's a dose response curve. They're experimenting yeah. on us with this whole thing. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really an ugly, it's an ugly scenario, but I, I mean, it's a huge, I mean, if we've really given this to 40% of the children, we're in real trouble here yeah. um, going, going into the future. And, uh, you know, and I, and I, I'll tell you, I, I appreciate everybody speaking out, but, but it's, I wish some people had spoken out eight months ago. You know, Michael Eden was one of the people, you guys were one of the people, yes. but there are people that are coming on the scene now saying nice things, but they, they didn't stop this when they could have stopped it. And, and I will just tell you that one of the, when you look at, you know, premeditation, one of the things that I became aware of looking at bioweapons is that they always, since the time of the Kuomintang, they've always couched bioweapon research under the guise of veterinary research. And one of the things I found was there was a, an article uh, called um, Self-Disseminating Vaccines for Emerging Infectious Diseases. And when you look... Yeah, yeah. So when you look at that article, basically... You know, there are, there are, two, there are two vaccines now in clinical studies which are self-replicating. Right. And that's what this it looks like it's happening to this one, because what they what they but the creepy part about this is that they they also came up. I mean, this is for people that don't know. I mean, what they did is they 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 want to get rid of. Apparently, there's these big mice outbreaks in Australia that just occur overnight. So they want to decrease the mice population, mouse population. So they they captured a bunch of these mice. They they injected them with these self disseminating vaccines. And then they that sterilized the mice by killing the the female ovaries. Then those mice went out into nature and they shed on other mice. It's not apparently airborne. And that's a point about what's happening to us now. It's by contact. So they shed on them and then those mice became sterile. And then they, they the bigger group, and then they shed on yet even a bigger group of mice and they became sterile. And then it kind of petered out in the population. And if you look at how those self-replicating self, uh, rep, self um immunogenic contraceptives, they're called, how they work, they, it's built just like the J&J &J vaccine. They're DNA, these were DNA vaccines that were made out of a, what they call a replicant deficient species specific virus. Yes. And it was meant to shed and to cause problems with other viruses. And they have another paper about the numbers. If I want to decrease the, the animal population by this percent, and I know the birth and death rate, this is how many people are that was a Freudian slip, how many animals I have to capture and, and inject in order to have it go through the population and sterilize and, and decrease the population by this amount. To me, that's a very worrisome study, especially when you marry it up with a Japanese study that was done on pharmacokinetics, and it showed that these agents, which everybody in vaccine research must have known about, the people that say they thought it stayed in the arm have to be lying, um, and it showed that these things um, uh, distributed 64 times in the ovary versus the skeletal muscle. Why do I say they have to be lying? And I'm sorry to say that, but either you've been, I don't think you could be this clueless if you were really involved in the de development of this stuff. Because once in February of 2020, and like I say, I'm not involved in virology or, or any of this stuff, but it was easy because I can read science. I went back and I looked when they started talking about vaccines, I started looking about the basic science, how they were doing this. And at that time, the Novavax site, Novavax makes this lipoprotein coating that houses the DNA that's the, or an RNA that's the, that's the, the genetic component of this. These were developed to be genetic therapies and oncolytic therapies. 
in that regard, you can't have them just sit in the arm. And you also can't have them just randomly go places. They have to be targetable. And Novavax, they call it the, the beautiful, you got to love this name, the, 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 this lipoprotein coating that they've developed is called Matrix M. And they bragged about how it was, it was targetable. So we have a targetable agent that goes to the, that, that now is going to the ovaries and that is very similar in construction to this depopulation of mice agent that was done for these for these emerging infectious diseases. And to take it down the rabbit hole one step further, I will tell you my belief now, having read all this stuff for a long time, I don't really think emerging infectious diseases exist like we thought they did. I mean, when I was in medical school in 1976, we talked about tropical diseases, but we didn't use that term emerging infectious diseases. That all started with this whole Ebola, HIV, all this stuff coming out of the jungles in Africa in the mid 80s. And what was happening then? There was Project Coast in South Africa. And, that's, and that was a bioweapons program that was targeted at the black community that we, we had people involved with um, Larry Ford from Los Angeles specifically, who's dead now, a lot of, a lot of suicides around this. But uh, through the Truth and Reconciliation Committee of Desmond Tutu, we've learned a lot about it. And they were developing uh, genetically targeted, racially targeted bioweapons. And uh, they were testing it on the black community. And that's when all these so-called emerging infectious diseases came out of Africa. And it, it all is kind of after we signed the bioweapons treaty that, Nick, uh, that yeah, Nixon signed and we got it across for 176 companies, but, and we theoretically shut down our statewide stateside bioweapons program, but did we offshore it? I mean, I'm just saying, there's a lot of things that have been going on that when you really put this all together, this didn't start 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it started 40, 50 years ago, and it's built on a bunch of lies and it's built on a bunch of basic science that's still out there for people to look at. You know, if you can offshore torture, you can offshore that too. Offshore what? I'm sorry. Torture. Yeah. Torture. Yeah, yeah. Of course. The detention was... camps all over the detention camps all over the world, and there's such stuff. We we have learned about this in the Council of Europe, and it's hor it's horrible. Just yeah. find a place where where there is no one watching and do it and continue doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I ask something? So, um, if it's possible to target people like on a on a racial level or like yeah. on a sort of like genetically. Um, specific target specific aspects of people like these these different this uh, you know these different re reaction of people like the death rate uh, re with regard to these lots or batches could it also be that it's a certain you know that this would also be like an effect of like targeting people for some specific genetic aspect or is that too far-fetched well i think that but personally think that what that those studies show about the toxicity versus the lot are really they've changed something as time has gone on, whatever they've changed to try and make it less toxic. It doesn't mean that it won't be damaging long term, but they don't want the short term toxicity because they don't want to get caught. It's kind of like the, the binary poison. You want the guy to die when you're far away from him. Right. So I think there's a certain amount of that. But I will tell you this. That when this thing first started being talked about, and the and this vaccine started started rolling out, a friend of mine from Philadelphia sent me this paper, and it is it's in PubMed. You can find it. I've got it on my site, and it's talking about the racial specificity of the ACE2 uh, pathway. And you know that's where the spike protein hooks on is to the human ACE2 pathway, which 
we don't have any coronavirus anyplace else that does this. SARS didn't do it. MERS didn't do it. Just this one. So I think maybe SARS did it, but but or but it, it didn't. It wasn't any other pathway. So the or any other coronavirus. So this thing um, was designed with this hook to get it in the ACE2 pathway. And if you look at the ACE2 pathway upregulation, in other words, how active that pathway, just like insulin receptors are active, the ACE2, ACE2 receptors are active or not so active, it is racially different. Now, I'm not making any judgment here. I'm not telling you what this means. I'm just going to tell you the facts. If you look at that paper, the the the, the people that have the most upregulation of the ACE2 pathway, because some of this is kind of surprising, are white Caucasians from Europe accepting Finns, not Finnish. And it's about 56% upregulated in those people, as well as in non-African blacks, 50, 56% upregulation of the ACE2 pathway. Then it drops down to 39 or 36% or 39% in African blacks. And then it drops way down to 10% upregulation in Asians and Finnish. I mean, I thought that was kind of surprising. Who knew that the Finnish are genetically not the same as everybody else in Europe, but they have some genetic differences apparently. And then it drops down to zero. And the zero upregulation are two groups, the Amish and the Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> there it is. I mean, I'm just, I'm throwing that out. You can, you can just, that's the fact. And I, you know, the point being that it's coincidental somehow that there's this going on, but I don't see that, you know, I, I can't, I can't die. I can't marry that up with the, the, the VAERS damage report. You know, I don't have a way of doing that and I don't see a trend there. I'm just saying that's what it, but beyond that, when we look at EMF, what we do know is that everybody's DNA has a, has an, has an energy signal. I mean, it has a specific uh, resonance. DNA has resonance. You know, when, when 5G was developed, it was developed by DARPA, and I think Technion was part of this, but I could be wrong. But DARPA definitely, and it was a directed energy weapon, and we used it in Iraq to target, to, it's a denial of access weapon. In other words, it, if you set it up with the right frequencies, microwave frequencies at the right gain, right power, what happens is you can resonate with people's helical structures. You can resonate with DNA, but in this case, they resonated with um, made a resonant frequency to your hair follicle, which is also helical. And what it did was cause people to have to flee because it made them feel like they were on fire. I mean, we had some troops that got caught in these beams when they put it out. And they said, you cannot stand in this beam. It's terrible, terrible stuff. You, you have to get out of it. Now, I'll just bring this up because, again, I don't think everything is about this man-made nanotoxic or nanoparticle that's toxic. I think there are other things going on here. And, and there's some, a lot of evidence about this electrification making people sick over history. But specifically, I think we need to be cognizant of this 5G potential directed energy weapon that once it's in place and it's, it's you know, on every, every tree in the forest and every lamppost around our communities, it's potentially could be used to target human beings as an individual, not just in a group. So we're, we might be looking at this. I mean, I'm just, this is my big, you know, my, my uh, military hat thinking, not that I'm any kind of military genius, but I'm just thinking about what they've been doing because we've had 200 
Chinese scientists embedded in Moderna and Pfizer to help roll out these so-called vaccines, these, bio, these genetic agents, viral-based genetic therapies. Apparently, the, the whole military um, de, you know, department of medicine is not concerned this could be a bioweapon in spite of that fact. In spite of that, that's their job to be a little bit concerned about this. And they're vaccinating people like pilots. Even after nine civilian pilots are dead, one in the cockpit, we continue to vaccinate pilots in the military. These guys aren't carrying people, man. They're carrying armaments, including nuclear armaments, okay? And yet we are doing, we are breaking every military, uh, you know, maxim of safety for pilot safety. I mean, I'm not, a, a, I was never a flight surgeon, but I was with the Marine Corps for two years on Marine air bases. And those flight surgeons would never, ever, ever give an experimental drug to these guys. In fact, they wouldn't even give an FDA approved drug that hadn't been on the market for about five years. So what is this really all about? If we have 70% of our our, look at the dis disability that happened in, in the uh, Navy, the, the Australian Navy when they were vaccinated and ships were now not deployable. How many people were not deployable? What's going to, our military's in trouble, I think, if they really did take this vaccine as stated, if they got the same vaccine we are all getting and the same numbers apply and that myocarditis thing I cited is real and it continues. I mean, what is going on here? And that nobody suspected, and I will tell you, I did have the opportunity to sit with Scott Atlas, who was at dinner, who was uh, President Trump's medical advisor. And I think he's a good guy and on our side. But you know what? I asked him two questions. I said, did anybody from military medicine ever come and talk to you or advise President Trump? This is the commander in chief of our military. And the answer was no. Did anybody from Fort Detrick ever come, the bioweapons lab, ever come and advise the president or you? No. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's so many different aspects to this, but I think that we are, there's a, there's a huge national security issue, that's what I'll leave you with, this huge national security issue that nobody's screaming about. And it, I hope it's not too late. And I hope that, you know, the Marine Corps resisted any uh, vaccines for a long time. I, I give uh, credit to their commandant and the, and the special forces. You know, I don't know about Space Force, but I can tell you the Air Force, Navy, and Army have been pushing these vaccines in spite of the non-necessity of doing so. They only lost 20 people to COVID over the year of COVID. So something not good is happening here. And, and by the way, who are the two militaries that are not taking these genetic agents? Give you a guess, Russia and China. <laughs> well, I think Big it's surprise, very right? good that you point out these, these military aspects. You know, we haven't looked at that um, at no. all yet. I, and I this, think is, this we, was my first thing. Yeah, we yeah. have to look at that more in detail. I mean, it's very interesting ideas and we have to just take a look at it more closely, I guess. I see that Mike Yeadon has, has joined us in the meantime. Yeah. Um, Lee, we're going to have to take a much closer look at the 5G issue. I have a, a number of colleagues here in Germany who have been working on this. They haven't come to a definite conclusion yet, but um, uh, they realize, and we realize, having spoken to them, that this is a very serious issue, very yeah. serious issue. And, and I think it was not for nothing <clears throat> that um, at the beginning of this crisis in Great Britain and in other places, but in Great Britain in particular, people destroyed the yes. antennas. I think they did the right thing. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> 
Okay. And I will just leave you. There's a there's a there's an excellent video by Dr. Deborah, and I don't I apologize, I don't know her first name, but she gave a, a, a lecture a number of years ago to the combined departments of Ener engineering and medicine at Melbourne University. It's still online, you know, hopefully. Um, it's awesome. And she was, I believe, the chief medical officer of the EPA at one time. So she's not a lightweight, and she did some excellent points on, on the issue of electromagnetic frequency, cellular irradiation damage, shows you case reports, and, and explains how they use the same, the telecommunications industry is the same, they're indemnified from all medical consequences, and they're using the same arguments that, oh, it doesn't, it's not, it's, this is not unsafe, just like they did for the cigarette industry, and that's what got her interested in this, so I would recommend people look at that if they want to get an introduction into this. What's her name again? Devra, D-E-V-R-A. Okay. V is in victory, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. This was very enlightening. Uh, it was fun to, uh, despite the fact that we're dealing with horrific horror stories here, but um, we have all come to the conclusion that this is the one upside. Um, I have felt um, for, for a number of years when I went to court in order to go after Deutsche Bank and all the others, I have felt that there's something wrong. And all of a sudden, everything falls into place. We're beginning to understand that we've been seriously lied to concerning almost every everything. single aspect of our lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's the good news, because we can deny reality, but you can't deny the consequences. So now we're getting a dose of reality, and we're going to take our world back in 2022. And I thank you guys for how much you've done to, to bring that about. Right. Just one, one question. You mentioned a book which was taken out of the dustbin and published. Oh, yeah, yeah. How yeah, it's was it? Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. Yeah, it's you. enlightening. It's worthwhile reading. It's a very, very small book, but I would definitely read that one. I got that. Okay. Well, thank you, Lee. Have a great weekend. If you hey, like thank to stick you. around, uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking to Mike, Dr. Mike Eden now. Um, oh, I would love to. You're one yeah, of my heroes, yeah, Dr. Please. Eden, and I'm sorry I can't stay. But Dr. Merritt, uh, the same, same uh, to you. I was fortunate to come in for the last 10 minutes. So oh, that, well, I'm honored you would say to that. I have, to, I have to go to work because, unfortunately, the COVID crisis made it difficult for me to retire right now. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. Yeah, the one, one, of, the, one of the small pluses of uh, what happened <laughs> in my life is I, I can, my time is my own. Yeah. <laughs> so I give it to COVID. Thank you guys so much. Lee, take it easy and have a great weekend. Yep. Anything you need. Bye. Okay. Hi, Mike. Uh, we've spoken only a couple of days ago, and yeah. the, as a result of you and some other scientists taking a closer look at the so-called lots or batches, which, as you describe it, and this is our legal analysis as well, as well um, is compelling evidence for premeditated mass murder. You had prepared a presentation, which we never looked at, but do you have it with you now? I, I don't on my end, but um, uh, what I'd like to do briefly, Rhino, is just um, for those who haven't seen Go me ahead. before, I, I want to establish my credentials and uh, push back a little bit on some criticisms I've had uh, and then to just step through what I have observed happening because of the, as it were, from a scientific perspective, uh, and then say what I think is happening. And there's a couple of bits of evidence. So that will just like set the ground rules for 10 minutes or so. Sure. And then, yeah, I want to go into the very alarming 
um, results of, of analysis of uh, the VAERS data as it pertains to the the vaccine lots, um, and I've got a lot to say about that. So maybe um, uh, maybe Corbyn would be able to find that short presentation that I sent. I think for Wednesday's discussion, maybe we can yeah. we can throw that up. If not, maybe append it to this recording or however you normally do show notes or whatever they call it. So okay, well. Um, Thank you for the opportunity again to speak to you, um, Ryan. I think I mentioned when we spoke, I think, in the summer, that uh, what, what your team is doing is, of course, completely unique. I don't think there's anywhere else on the planet that's spoken to between one and 200 experts, each in their field, and recorded an hour or more of their analysis of the situation. So, you know, hopefully, in combination, it's going to make sense. Uh, so... Yeah, so I, I'm Dr. Mike Yeadon. I describe myself as an industry veteran. I've worked in the biopharmaceutical industry for all of my life. My first degree was biochemistry and toxicology. Um, English people don't like to brag, but I'm told I should. I was top of the year by a very long way. As an undergraduate, I worked under military clearance at um, Porton Down. That's the equivalent, I guess, of Fort Detrick. It's where the UK military develops so-called chemical defences. Um, and um, so I was under the official secret act. They must have thought I wasn't a crazy person at the time. I also worked for six months at the um, Police Forensic Service um, headquarters at Aldermaston. So I learned a lot of analytical techniques in that time. Then I did a research-based PhD uh, in respiratory pharmacology. Um, and then after that, uh, I jumped into industry. I had seven years, seven happy years at the Wellcome Research Labs before they closed after being acquired by Glaxo. So my my career spanned the consolidation phase of pharmaceutical companies, and uh, we call it the dirty snowball. You know, companies became absolutely huge, they're, they're, and that's relevant to what's happening today. They are, are so large, so powerful. Um, so after that, I went to Pfizer in the UK at their very famous Sandwich Kent research-based. Um, I think more drugs were, blockbuster drugs were discovered and released from that lab than any other single establishment on the planet. I, I wish I could claim I had anything to do with it, but I didn't. But what it did do is give me the opportunity to learn, as it were, at the knee of uh, great drug discoveries. People who actually conceived, you know, led programs, invented molecules, developed them, gone through safety testing and launched them, and they're all made more than a billion a year thereafter. So, so it's a really good place for learning this trade. Uh, at Pfizer, I, I left in 2011, having been head of respiratory research worldwide. Um, so I was their chief scientific officer for that, um, that uh, therapy area, allergy and respiratory. Uh, I left because they closed the site in 2011. Um, I played a, an important role, I think, in helping uh, some of those programs uh, and some staff move to new homes. So the world's second largest generics company, Mylan, um, acquired some space on that research park and hired many of my former colleagues. And obviously, I didn't do the deal, but I, I had, I think, something to do with pitching it to the company. Over the next 10 years to today, I've been a consultant to... Uh, startup and mid-phased biotech companies, some are now public, others privately held, and that's about 30 companies, mostly in the field of respiratory or inflammation, immunology, that kind of thing. 
And in the middle of that 10 year period, I had the opportunity to uh, start my own biotech company with three other colleagues um, and to raise some money, private venture capital, and to acquire some compounds from my former portfolio because Pfizer was closing the site and, and indeed shrinking its footprint. That was, that was quite a common model in the uh, 10 years ago. Uh, so, so that's me. I think um, I have broad biological uh, discipline and understanding necessary for doing research. So that's understanding disease and me mechanisms well enough to uh, contemplate intervention points that could help slow down a disease or, or ameliorate symptoms. Uh, and she did so safely. And that, that was always the number one watchword. So some people have said, um, you know, why are you speaking out? Um, and you know, you're a crazy person, whatever. The three things I would say most commonly attributed to me, which are not true, but I will take them. He's a bitter ex-employee. Well, you know, one, I left 10 years ago. Uh, I don't hold a grudge, and certainly not for 10 years. Secondly, uh, Pfizer and I got on really well. I, I would say to this day that um, it's the best employer I ever worked for. It's a fantastic place to work for the reasons I described. Something's gone wrong since, obviously, but I was, I was unhappy that I had to leave. Uh, they were very good to me. I was one of the last employees off the site because I was helping place people and projects. So that doesn't sound like a bitter person. They also treated me very well in terms of redundancy because I was a vice president uh, and they tried to do that. And then, as I've said, a year after leaving, I came back with money and a lawyer and did a deal with them. Um, and then two years later, they put additional capital in. That doesn't sound like we're getting on badly. And in 2017, when Novartis acquired Ziarco, my biotech, uh, they made an undisclosed sum that I would say would make them very happy. You know, they, they definitely did a good deal. So that was five years ago, and I'd had no interaction with them since. Um, so, no, I'm not bitter, and I was very lucky to make some money. That's what has allowed me to be independent, by the way. Um, others have said, uh, I'm seeking fame. Well, no, I'm, despite the fact I can appear on TV or on camera, I'm actually, by nature, quite a shy person. If you left me to my own devices, I'd be tinkering with motorbikes in a shed, probably. That's what I like to do. Uh, and others say, well, he's making money. No, there's not a single thing I've ever done that is so-called monetized. Uh, and indeed, I probably lost hundreds of thousands of pounds being thrown off scientific advisory boards of former clients uh, when they said you've become the story and it's not acceptable, which I understood. So it's costing me money. It's um, hurting my reputation. And I had every reason just to stay at home and enjoy my early retirement. No, the reason I'm speaking out is because I noticed uh, advisors to the UK government lying, lying on directly on television. And first it was just kind of fascinating, but through the spring and into the summer of 2020, I became uh, first al alarmed and then later in the year frightened. And I'm, I still remain frightened. Why? Um, every country in the world uh, had what was called a pandemic preparedness plan for things like this or influenza more typically. And I read them, I read all of them, uh, maybe 20 from G G20 countries plus the WHO. And in essence, they uh, have only two things to recommend. One, if you are symptomatic, please stay home and away from other people until you're better. And that's because we've known for decades that symptomatic people drive respiratory viral infections, their epidemics. And the other measure was uh, wash your hands more frequently than usual because with any new pathogen, we don't understand transmission properly. So that's a good precaution. 
Uh, the next nine pages of these pandemic plans uh, involved telling us what they shouldn't do. None of them involved border closures, unless you lived on a small island, school closures, business closures, mass testing of the well, lockdown, masking, anything like that. None of them. Absolutely all of the things that we have been told are essential were missing and explicitly ruled out by the previous plans. So I would say the strongest evidence I can offer for my assertion that there is a supranational plan uh, to take over all of the liberal democracies is this, that all of the countries had somewhat similar pandemic preparedness plans that were very simple, uh, and they all discarded them in, in, in the weeks of March 2020, all of them, and they replaced them with the same narrative script, and I'll just describe them, I call them the, the eight COVID lies. Every single one of them is an untruth, um, and I think the objective was to frighten people to death, and I think it's worked. So how could it possibly be that Germany, Italy, the United States, Iceland, Scandinavian countries have all got the same bunch of wrong information all at the same time? And I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, there's only one way that could happen, and that's if they all agreed to do it beforehand, really. And so these lies, uh, I will, I'm not going to take a lot of time on them today, because there was a very long recording with the programme called Highwire with Dell Bigtree about a year ago. And uh, I go through them in painful detail. Um, but what did they say? Well, they told us things like, this is an extremely lethal virus. If you catch it and get ill, you really could die. And remember the falling man face down in Wuhan. It's never happened anywhere else. It was pure theatre. And it turns out that it's not a particularly lethal virus. If it exists at all, it's about the same as a bad seasonal influenza. Uh, they use PCR testing repeatedly off swabs up noses and throats and led you to believe that these were highly accurate and could distinguish a clinically infected person from something that's, something that's not. And even the inventor, Carrie Mollis, who's died, uh, won a Nobel Prize for this technique, said you should never use it for this purpose. So I won't waste any more time, but they're still using these damn tests. Um, and they're not reliable. They don't tell you anything, really. Uh, they also say you should wear masks, um, but masks have been extensively studied. Uh, cloth masks, if anything, make you more likely to catch an unusual bacterial pneumonia because you're breathing through a filthy cloth. And the blue medical masks, are, they're, they're not masks, actually. They're splash guards. Their purpose in hospitals is to stop blood and bodily fluid going into the nose and mouth of the attending healthcare worker. They've never been for filtering your breath, and obviously they don't do so. But they've told you to wear masks, and I think the purpose, uh, certainly in me, it causes anxiety. I, I feel really awful wearing these things. Um, then they introduced lockdowns, where you were all to stay at home, mostly, unless you are a poor manual worker, and then you had to go out to work. But the intelligentsia pretty much got paid to stay at home for very long periods of time, three months initially in the case of Britain. Um, lockdowns they told us would slow the spread of transmission of this virus and lots of people thought it must obviously be so because it's a disease spread from person to person uh, but it didn't it didn't chime with me uh, and I, i'm embarrassed to say it took me months to realize why they wouldn't work and it comes to this next lie the idea that of asymptomatic transmission that you could be bearing the virus in your airways yet have no symptoms but nevertheless be able to spread enough of the stuff to infect a person nearby. That, that's not true. It's, that's a flat lie. And whenever 
um, a scientific advisor, medical advisor to a government tells you things like, like asymptomatic transmission, I want you to know that they're not mistaken. Um, they're lying because it, it's been studied and it's simply not true. And I can append a link to the notes for this program, which is an accumulation of statements by Fauci, uh, a WHO doctor, and other people, actually, including me, goes through this argument. So if asymptomatic transmission doesn't occur, and I, I am certain it's epidemiologically irrelevant, I'm not saying it never occurs, but it's irrelevant. If it's irrelevant, why would you need to wear masks if you're well? Why would you need to test somebody who's not got symptoms? Why would you need to close your business or your school or the economy? So again, they've lied to you with the objective of both frightening you and I think also learning from financially experienced people. The other objective was to begin to destroy the economy and the sovereign currencies. And I think that's, that's a continuing objective. They also lied to us and told us that there were no treatments for this respiratory viral infection. And I will take my hat off to Dr. Peter McCulloch uh, as a leader, but he's representative of very many brave physicians who pushed back on this um, nihilism. And uh, they have determined half a dozen really quite good therapies used progressively. Uh, so early only want to treat replication, uh, in the middle phase, inflammation, and in the terminal phase, coagulation. And if you understand this multi-phase infection, you come to the conclusion, which is mine, that this is the most treatable respiratory viral illness ever. Um, it's, it's really quite surprising. But the, the use of those treatments are denied almost all around the world to the extent that people will be fined or even struck off as physicians. There's another lie there. Uh, and then they would say things like, well, we're not sure when you've had it, if you've become immune. Well, I would say immunology 101 tells you that that's, uh, that's simply not true. We know that the default understanding would be once you've shrugged off this virus, you will have taken high resolution pictures of it, as it were, using your immune system. And if you see it again or something related to it, like a variant, you'll be you will not get clinically ill, not, not for months, possibly many years. So that's another lie. Uh, and then the final one, and we'll come back to this, is that the vaccines are safe and effective, but that's a whole whole other story. So I've said that uh, the evidence of a, of a supranational plan is the discarding of simple, well-established pandemic preparedness plans and replacing them with this bunch of lies. Uh, and all the countries did it. And if someone would like to write to me with an explanation, an innocent explanation for this, I'd love to hear it. I want, I want to be wrong, but unfortunately, I don't think I am. So if the motive is fear, I think the ultimate aim is control. And we'll, we will come on to the, onto this. The control mechanism that we can see being installed all around us are the so-called vaccine passports, a certificate first on paper and eventually a QR code on your phone that tells anyone who needs to know that you have received the requisite number of doses of these materials. Um, and again, we'll come back to this, but it's, again, that's nonsense. Uh, economic destruction, I think, is on its way. Um, there was a person who's very experienced in the city of London, and I heard them phoning into a radio show three weeks ago. And they said, um, I don't know anything about viruses, they said, but I do know a lot about finance. And they said, uh, the amount of money, it's not even been borrowed, they've just printed it, actually created new money with an IOU from the government, haven't sold gilt-edged certificates to investors. Uh, he said, it is my view that the sovereign currency is already destroyed 
um, and the exchange rates ought to be moving violently against each other, and they're not, if you go and look. And, and that's because, as Catherine Austin Fitz tells us, this is a conspiracy led by the central banking clique and their clients uh, to take over the world, I think. Um, uh, once they've done that, destroyed the economy, again, I'm paraphrasing from Catherine, financial, a great financial reset, which will have us using our VAX passes a digital ID and central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, which you can look up, they are real and they are being talked about by all central banks. Um, you won't like those, you really won't. It'll be the end of cash and of any privacy of any transaction. And I know I go further than many, but I'm really quite concerned that there is a serious intent to kill a very large proportion of the population of the world. Again, I hope I'm wrong, uh, but all of the all of the measures required to get to this point of control through vaccine passport, digital ID, uh, also, and, and to repeatedly vaccinate people, as we'll come on to, uh, they certainly set the scene where a bad actor could introduce a gene sequence that will rob you of your health and kill you in a fairly predictable way at a fairly predictable rate per million doses and so on. So if somebody does want to depopulate, the setup is so perfect that it isn't completely crazy. Um, before I move on to the vaccines, uh, and, and this is a concern I had, lots of people have said to me, Mike, this cannot possibly be the way you describe it. it. It looks compelling, I understand, but come on, you can't have a global conspiracy like this. It, it would leak, uh, and it involves far too many people. You, know, you must be wrong, it must be another explanation. And I suggest to them that they look for uh, a video on YouTube surprisingly, by a German journalist called Paul Schreier, S-T-H-R-E-Y-E-R, -E -E Paul Schreier. And there's a one-hour documentary called Pandemic Simulations, Preparation for a New Era, question mark. And when you watch that, your, your last rickety defences that this isn't a well-organised, long-planned event, I think will disappear and your heart will be in your boots by 20 minutes. Um, basically, all of the actors that you see around the table uh, including, say, an event 201 that took place at the end of 2019. All of those players are currently taking the roles they had in the simulations and all around the world and doing exactly the things they did in the simulation. So uh, that, that was the rehearsal. Those were the rehearsals, and there were more than a dozen of these damn things. And I think one of the bitterest moments for me was to realise uh, that we were doing it to ourselves, that the US, UK... New Zealand, Australia, and Canada, the five eyes, I think, are the leading players. I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not going to say Russia's not involved or whatever, but it, it looks like the um, Edward Bernays School of uh, Psychological Management has been used by the military intelligence people and they've directed their weapons at their own people for two years through all these lies, repetitive messaging. And um, so the, what we want to do is to wake people up because if we don't wake up, we, we, are, we are finished as a set of liberal democracies. I'm going to turn to the vaccines, but before I do that, I'll, I'll, I'll pause uh, in case Ryan or others would want to steer me differently. But I will, I'll say two things that I've, they're not original sayings, but they strike me as very appropriate. Um, I've seen on many message boards, when this comes out, when this all comes out, don't ask me how I knew, ask yourself why you didn't. I mean, honestly, the, the evidence, evidence that things are amiss, I think, are so stark that you literally have to avert your eyes not to realise that things are really bad uh, everywhere. And then this other thing that's an old saying, 
I've heard this before. It makes me chuckle a little bit. If you're one step ahead of everybody else, you can be seen as a genius. If you're two steps ahead, you're a lunatic. And that's, I'm afraid, what I've been. My, my job as a scientist was to spot faint patterns in sparse data. That's what you do when you're trying to work out something that's new. Um, and, uh, and so I think I have been a couple of steps ahead and probably sometimes wrong, but, but broadly, I think it is, sadly, roughly what I've said. Uh, so, uh, Rainer, you can either wave me onwards or you might want to ask any questions Mike, about that. Mike, you're right on track. This okay. is so important to hear this little introduction because it gives us an overview. Many of our viewers have only seen bits and pieces of this, so this gives yeah. them the whole picture. This is great. You're right on track. All right. Thank you. And, and Corvin, uh, yes, at some, if you could have the, prep, the presentation available, I'll talk for a little bit and then maybe we can pop those slides up because, uh, yeah, I'll come back to that. It's uh, a colleague's done an analysis that's, I think, quite striking when you see that. So to the vaccines, um, to the vaccines. So I worked for the pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical industry for 32 years. So I think you can take it as red, but I'll say it again. Uh, I am pro-innovative new medicines, provided they're um, well-developed, used appropriately, and of course the profile is, you know, is safe, safe enough considering the, the utility. So um, if you were treating a terminal cancer that had evaded surgery, current chemotherapy, radiotherapy and so on, um, then you might be willing to take a drug that might kill, you know, 10% of the people, you, you know, I don't know. 5%. But if, it would, if it might stretch your life out for, for many years, especially if you're off the chance of a cure. And some of these gene-based vaccines, uh, I think the original intent of people like Dr. Malone and others was indeed to treat things like that. You could put a, uh, a protein from your cancer into one of these um, vaccines and force your immune system to recognize it and destroy it. And that could provide you know, exquisitely safe uh, novel chemotherapy. But um, if you're going to treat effectively everyone on the planet, and, and you shouldn't do it anyway, but that's certainly the stated intent, you need you need safety, 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 as Peter McCulloch would say. That's your first concern. Even better, even more than does it work, you need to make sure it's very safe because you're going to be giving it potentially to billions of people. And I did say that I'm, my original training included toxicology, and I was taught by um, at least two people that founded the discipline of mechanistic toxicity, I um, can't remember their names now, Professor Jim Bridges uh, and somebody else, um, uh, Dennis Park. Uh, and they reminded us that in the 1950s, we didn't do toxicology in the drug industry. They would give it to two dogs and five chickens. And if the, if the drug didn't kill them, they literally would start giving them to people. That's, that's how bad things were 60, years, 60 or 70 years ago. Um, we had some strong wake-up calls at the end of the... 60s, uh, 70s, uh, 50s, 60s, early 60s, with thalidomide, for example. It's a case that most people know about. At the time, they thought that babies were safe in, in mother's womb and so didn't really, wouldn't be a problem if you gave, gave a pregnant woman a, a drug. And we now know that their fetus is, is exquisitely sensitive to perturbations in their environment. And so we never, ever give novel medical interventions to pregnant women, right? We'll come back to that. So we're definitely doing that. So because of my toxicological training and sort of a good understanding of what was required in drug R&D, new drug R&D, as soon as I looked at the vaccines, I was really quite frightened because they were a novel type. These have never been 
mass dosed to human beings at all. So there would be no way of knowing what kind of effects, uh, unwanted effects might come about. And of course, what you do is careful empirical study. Uh, you should do all of the possible studies that if you have a worry, you know, rule of thumb would be, if you can think of a worry, you need to show why, why it's not gonna happen. So you design an appropriate experiment. You have to try and drown your own puppy, as we used to call it. It's not, not a good job, but you have to do it. You can't just hope it'll be all right on the night. It really is. And when I looked at the vaccines, I had a number of concerns. One was all four of them. So that was the Janssen, J&J, AstraZeneca, uh, Pfizer, and Moderna. They all were fundamentally the same design, whether they used mRNA or, or a viral communicated DNA. They encoded only the, the spike protein, the sort of sticky out bit from the ball and stick model of the virus that you've got. And I don't know to this day how they all uh, chose just the spike protein, because uh, I, I guessed, and we now know it's true, that uh, human immunity uh, relies much more on um, understanding the uh, the depth of the molecular structure inside the ball than the spikes. So I thought it was bad, just immunologically uneducated thing just to pick the outside part. Uh, but secondly, it took me, I don't know, no more than half an hour of searching for research papers, abstracts and so on. Not so much on the coronavirus spike protein because it's relatively new, but similar um, external proteins on other viruses. And within the half an hour, I realized that all of them have some kind of biological properties that are unwelcome. They're not just for anchoring uh, the virus to the surface of a cell, which they do do, but they're also biologically active, as you might expect, really. Uh, they interact with uh, the immune system and also coagulation system. So, in fact, um, I saw Wolfgang Brodarg earlier, and uh, he led off and I joined uh, a two-person uh, you know, appeal, a petition to the European Medicines Agency to say, don't approve these vaccines at this time. There are here are a handful of concerns that we think are, are going to occur and you need to slow down. Uh, and I think two of the four have been tested and proved correct. And the third one was looking pretty ropey. So the design of them, I would say it was, it was toxic by design. It was always going to harm people. Uh, next, um, unlike a classical vaccine, which is usually a uh, a killed piece or killed preparation of the infective organism in a little bit of oil or alum, alum, something like that. That's a unit dose, so you know how much you're injecting to each person. Uh, with these vaccines, we're giving a unit dose of code. Now, that code could be taken up well, um, copied into protein very efficiently, and might do so for a long time in one person. In another person, it might be taken up badly, copied inefficiently and briefly. So what I'm saying, and I'm absolutely certain about this as a pharmacologist and a toxicologist, is by choosing this design, the range of outcomes is probably a thousand times worse than it would be for a conventional vaccine because you know the actual amount of protein produced will vary by orders of magnitude more. It will. And I thought that was the explanation for why it is that many people had no side effects whatsoever and others appeared to die. You know, people would say, how could that possibly be true? And I, I just explained it, that um, with, a, with a, an encoded vaccine, an unlucky individual might take up large quantities of it in their heart, in the coronary vessels, or in the cerebral veins in, in their head, uh, and produce lots of spike protein for a long time. And, and those people might get myocarditis or 
cerebral vein signs thrombosis and die. And someone else, it might be spread around the body in a sort of less dangerous place and not make so much spike protein. I thought that was an adequate explanation, uh, but I, I don't think that's not the whole explanation anymore. The reason I thought it was an explanation was I, I made an assumption, which I was entitled to make, which is that the same stuff from a given manufacturer is in every single vial, you know, little glass vaccine vial. I, I believed and, and was entitled to believe that within a fraction of a percent, uh, we had the same consistent quality and purity in every single injection. And therefore, the observed variation in, in behavior in people must be down to something such as the thing I just suggested. But and as I'm going to come on to, um, unfortunately, we're now absolutely certain it's not the same stuff in every vial. And that means criminal acts are, are being committed. So we will come on to that. Um, just before we do that, vaccines. Um, normally, a vaccine, if you administer it to a person, would usually be one dose, sometimes two. It's never going to be a whole train of them. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some countries already given the fourth vaccine and others have talked about an open-ended series. You need to know vaccines are not like that. You, you, you do not need to be repeatedly dosed with something that would earn the title vaccine, one or two doses at most. Uh, so if it's more than that, it's not public health and it's not public health. So, but here's the thing, a, a vaccine ought to, at minimum, I think, prevent you becoming ill with the pathogen against which you've been vaccinated. If it doesn't do that, I'm afraid it's not, it's not a vaccine. Um, and as a consequence of protecting you against that organism, and it does that usually by uh, killing off a new infection in an early stage before you're even symptomatic, that would mean you should have low viral load in your airway. So that's what keeps you uh, safe after vaccination or if you've acquired immunity. Uh, and the consequence of that is it usually reduces, if not, stops transmission and we know now lots of work in the literature that people who've had this virus um, are immune to becoming ill a second time from you know either the original virus or a variant uh, and they don't transmit either so that's we that's we, we can see what immunity good immunity can look like because we've seen lots of cases of natural immunity and authorities do agree they they concede that these vaccines do not prevent you catching it they don't prevent you growing the same amount in your airway as an unvaccinated person and they don't prevent transmission so if someone's going to claim that they reduce the severity of your symptoms i'd like to know what black magic is invoked because i've just told you it goes to your airway it grows in the same way and transmits in the same way i, I actually don't believe there's no mechanism now for this to suddenly intervene and stop you getting ill i don't believe it so i think most likely outcome now is they don't do anything useful at all uh, but they are unfortunately really very harmful uh, they're certainly toxic uh, so just a brief introduction i think to one of the best tracking systems in the world the vaccine adverse event reporting system vaers it's a u.s system uh, it was put in place about 30 years ago and uh, Anyone who has an adverse event following vaccination, you know, even if they don't not necessarily claiming it's necessarily caused by it, but in order to, to track the possibility, you're, you're urged to report that. Uh, but unfortunately, the reporting rate is typically between 1% and 10% of adverse events. Uh, and there's every piece of evidence that that has continued you know, in, the, in, in, in recent years, in the recent year since the vaccine started rolling out. 
and yet there have been more adverse events and certainly many more deaths associated just with the COVID-19 vaccines um, than all the other vaccines you know, in history that have been uh, taken through this VAERS system. So there is no question, it's public data, it's your database. It's not mine, I haven't put anything in it. 85% um, of the reports were put in there by a qualified healthcare professional. So it's not true, uh, as some have asserted that, well, people are just putting in, you know, spoiler, uh, claims and they're not real. They are actually, they're absolutely real. There, there is something called the, uh, you know, it's often said that correlation is not causation, and that's true. Just because there's lots of reports doesn't necessarily mean that it's the vaccine, but there are things called Bradford Hill criteria. So you can look up the Bradford Hill criteria on, on Google or DuckDuckGo. I think there are 11 of them, and it gives you methods whereby you can determine whether the correlation is indeed cause, causative or not. So and I'll just give you a quick example. Um, if there is acute toxicity in, in the vaccine, then you would expect to see a spike in injuries and deaths in the first few days after administration. If there's no connection whatsoever, then you would expect a much more smooth, low-level profile that would pay not much attention to when you were vaccinated. And when you look at it, I think more than more than a third of the adverse events occur on the, the day of dosing or the next few days, and then it rapidly falls off. So that's one of the Bradford Hill criteria. Another one, uh, and just, I'll only mention this other one, is plausibility. If you have a theoretical reason for believing that it'll make your left leg turn blue, and you, know, you go, you look at the adverse events and look, it's lots of blue left legs. That's much more compelling than if someone ended up with, say, a sore elbow, for which you had no predictive power. And what I would say is, on these, this occasion, we, we believe that these agents cause so-called thromboembolic disorders. So they affect coagulation, and you may bleed or clot. And so um, any vessels that are plugged up by clots, like strokes or heart attacks, deep vein thrombosis, or bleeding, like uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, any of those things, are what you would predict. And lo and behold, they are present in VAERS at enormous numbers, unprecedented numbers. So, so the timing and the plausibility convinces me that these are causative, mostly they are causative. And other people who are used to doing this, pathologists and others, have done a very thorough job. And unfortunately, it's definitely causative. Large numbers, and it's causative. Um, so um, where it comes to vaccines, wouldn't you expect, and I put it to you, you would expect them to be deployed, not just first, but only in the people who are at extraordinary risk from the, from the pathogen. So in this case, we know it's elderly, elderly people who are already frail. And that's how they started. But very swiftly, they started coming down to the working age population, you know, 50s, 40s. And, and as you're probably aware, we've now been um, trying to encourage people to get their children vaccinated. Now, um, I don't know about your part of the world, but in Sweden and Germany, I looked at the public record, not one healthy child has died as a consequence of being infected by this virus. Not one. So if I tell you that there are novel technology agents that are being proposed to be injected into your child, uh, a child who's not at any risk from the virus, and who also are very poor at transmitting it to other people because they generally don't get symptoms. And I just told you earlier about asymptomatic transmission is a lie. So please, I, I'm begging of you, whatever your neighbours say, or your school teacher, or your government advisor, 
uh, I'm afraid they're lying or mistaken. You must not vaccinate your children. Um, so we should target these interventions to those who might benefit from them because they generally will be willing to bear whatever the side effects are in exchange for that benefit. So healthy younger people, certainly 60 and down, uh, really should not even have been on, on the map for vaccination because they survive. Um, secondly, there are really good treatments, as I've mentioned. Um, and so uh, with, with good therapies and people's strong immune system, if they're younger and well, there was no need to, to vaccinate the world. Um, and then I've mentioned children. Yes, pregnant women. I, made, I have made a special examination of this uh, from my toxicological background. I was just appalled when I heard a leading um, doctor, I think, from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology in London. The Royal College is meant to be the, the acme of medical quality, hopefully in ethics. And this woman appeared on national radio and proceeded to tell people that if they were pregnant, they really should get vaccinated. And don't worry, these are perfectly safe. And I'll look you in the eye now and tell you that the studies have not been done to examine the safety of these vaccines in pregnancy. There's been no formal study. And there's no reproductive toxicology packages complete in industry. And um, I worked in industry for 32 years, I can tell you, we were not allowed to dose healthy female volunteers of childbearing age um, without um, insisting that they used uh, you know, highly effective contraceptive methods. And generally, we didn't do it at all. We just didn't do it until we had reproductive toxicology because we were all uh, you know, rightly fearful of the potential to damage a growing baby. Um, so it, 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 it's literally nonsense. This is one of those things you should wake up to. You know, any listener knows that thalidomide changed the landscape forever in terms of precautions, in terms of you know, medications uh, in, in, in pregnant women for, that, for the reasons we understand. And so if your country's policy includes encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated when they are by definition relatively young and relatively well or they probably wouldn't have got pregnant and therefore not likely to suffer severe effects of the virus uh, and why would why would it make any sense to administer these experimental you know, therapies and and then worse than that I, i've written um, affidavits and opinions to say there are two or three lines of evidence that would lead me to be extremely concerned uh, for the potential for harms and, and unfortunately it actually does look like um, we were right about that, but you know, I'm not going to push it any further. But that my main point in just what I said in the last few minutes, I've drifted a little bit, is just to say if this was a public health measure, you would only administer these vaccines to people who could benefit most from it, so the people who are most likely to get ill and die. And that would exclude healthy young people. It would certainly exclude children. It would definitely exclude pregnant women. And here's the other thing, it would definitely exclude anyone who's had the virus and recovered. There are scores of papers showing that people who've had the virus and recovered have a full complement of T cells of multiple types. That means that they will recognize the virus and any variants and remain well. And that is in fact the empirical observation. So when you see your governments uh, threatening the unvaccinated, including people who've recovered, they are more immune than than the people who've been vaccinated so i just don't understand how anyone can go on about uh you know you're being as it were anti-vax no no i'm anti-conspiracy theory i'm anti-conspiracy fact 
uh, that's what's going on. So then moving on to the, um, the hot lots. So I mentioned earlier that I, I came up with an explanation for why many people have no side effects and some people get very ill and even die. And that might be true. But the reason I even thought of it was that you should expect um, pharmaceutical mass manufacturers to be good at least at one thing, and they are very good at this, consistent, high-quality, uh, purity manufacture from batch to batch to batch. Uh, they're very good at this because that's what their business is. They manufacture um, you know, tablets, capsules, sprays, and injections in the billions of doses. If you think of something like Lipitor, a uh, uh, cholesterol-lowering drug, it's given to a substantial minority of the population of, in older age, you know, one tablet a day forever. They, they would have made tens of billions of doses. Not easy to make these genetic vaccines, but you know, making a few hundred million, I, I think, would be absolutely in the wheelhouse of uh, Janssen, J&J, and Pfizer, at least. Moderna was a new company, so I can't, I can't say. But I, I, would, I trust, trusted that these companies were doing what I knew they were very good at doing, what they did for their business. And then I stumbled across a couple of people independently who'd been doing their own analysis of the VAERS database. What they were doing, and no one else seemed to have done it, was they were pulling the, the vaccine batch or lot number. It might be like eight digits, six digits, a mixture of alphanumeric symbols. And um, comparing the profile of adverse events uh, with comparing one, one lot to another lot to another lot with the same manufacturer. And their expectation would be, there would be like an, a scattering of adverse events across all the states and all of the lots. But they didn't find that. Um, this person found that something like 90% of the adverse events were associated with like less than 10% of the lots. And I remember seeing that some months ago, and I immediately knew the significance of it. Because as I've said, although I'm not, a, not in any way a manufacturing expert, I, I worked for decades with people who were, and uh, I knew their, their pride and the necessity of meeting the sort of anti-adulteration regulations, which require you know, tremendously reproducible product from lot to lot to lot. And so I'll just briefly describe um, manufacturing of, of medical products like this uh, proceeds in two steps. The first step is to make the active molecule. In this case, it would be mRNA or DNA with a with a, uh, uh, attenuated virus. So we would think of that as the first step. It's drug substance. It's the actual active component. And then once you've got that, it will generally be formulated in some way. You know, in this case, it's going to be in some sort of dilution material. It might be medical saline. Sometimes, though, it'll be mixed up with uh, binding agents, colorings, um, lubricants, shiny coats on a capture or a tablet. And that's called drug products. So the first step is to make the active. And the second step is to formulate it and finish with the drug product. Now, each of those steps is associated with a series of acts. You might start with a raw material, two raw materials, and then warm them up and manufacture a third product and then purify that. And that might be a step. And the manufacturer submits to the regulator its, its um, pharmaceutical production plan. And each of those steps is gone through by experts and the regulator. And they agree that the steps are appropriate and that the limits, you know, the range of outcomes on testing um, are, are appropriate. Um, and only if they are, would you be permitted to go to step two, three, four, five, until you've completed all the steps. So I'm, I'm elaborating a little bit to tell you 
that they don't just throw everything into a bucket like home brewing beer, stir it a bit, and put it in the packet. It all, this is done uh, with just incredible levels of control. Um, as you'd expect, you want it to be reproducible. Um, so the effects of, if they follow the, what's called the good manufacturing practice or GMP manufacturing practices, as required by a medical regulator, even for an emergency approved product, it, would, it should be the case that the lots are effectively contain the same stuff, whether it, wherever it was made and whenever it was made, it'd be the same stuff. Uh, and I know they're capable of doing that. Now, if that's true, if you draw a lot at random from the VAERS system and examine the outcomes, the performance, that is the number of people who've reported adverse events, it ought to be pretty similar from batch to batch to batch. If it's very different, I'm afraid I can tell you with certainty, and I, I would be able to prove this mathematically if needed in court, it's not possible to go from two or three adverse events reported for a given lot uh, and another lot have 5,000 adverse events. It's not possible if you only vary the products a little bit. You, know, you might imagine, well, they're doing this at speed and it's novel, it might be a bit hard on them. No, if you only have a small difference, you only get a small difference in the performance. If you go from nothing effectively to the worst outcomes ever reported to VAERS, I am prepared to uh, state and to prove that that means it's not the same material in the in the lots that have produced bad side effects i mean what i've just told you you may not appreciate the significance of it it's not the same stuff so if you thought it was the pfizer BioNTech covid19 vaccine that was used in the clinical trials um, some of the batches contain something different i i cannot know what it is but it's definitely not not the same stuff um, so yes i think Corvin, if you could just throw open that short presentation, uh, I've run over it a little bit, but I think I think it visually will help people. You don't need very much. So as I've explained on this first slide, if it contains the same product, it, the performance should be pretty similar. Just a little variation. But if you step forward, yeah. So I'm not the analyst. In fact, it's an irony. I'm the person speaking. I'm the only person not capable of doing the sort of information technology. But one reason I'm speaking is because of my deep experience in pharmaceutical uh, research and development and knowledge uh, from you know, people who are experienced about manufacture. And what I've described is true. Um, and also the people who are doing this work, um, we're, you know, we're self-starters, we've got a degree of independence and we're all speaking out because something awful is happening. If we move to the next slide, please, Corbin. Um, yeah, as I've mentioned again in my introduction, uh, it's quite normal, I'm afraid, uh, for every medicine will have some kind of side effect. I, I think it was a very old, ancient physician, I think Paracelsus, that said all medicines are, are poisonous, it's just a question of dose. Um, and, and that's kind of true, that rat poison used at very low doses, or it's modern analogy, analogy can be really useful to thin your blood. But that means you need consistency from dose to dose to dose. And it was true that in the first half of the 20th century, many pharmaceutical outfits that were probably quite small at the time uh, were occasionally careless, if not uh, you know, outright uh, reckless, and had uh, adulterated products, that is products that were not the same from tablet to tablet or injection to injection. And so that brought about um, sort of these FDA regulations that relate to so-called adulteration. And we're, really, it's about reprodu reproducibility, purity, and so on. So next slide. 
Um, yes, yeah, so I think I've just said that. So um, the, the, for the lawyers, it's very important. My colleague who put this together taught me something I didn't know. Because those regulations were formed to make sure that um, badly manufactured products were never again foisted on the public, uh, they said that if it's not made as you have described and made consistently, so it'll be a tiny variation, fraction of a percent perhaps that's allowed batch to batch, um, we will declare it to be adulterated. And the thing is that adulteration per se, manufacturing and release of materials, which I, I assert and, and others in this team agree, are performing very differently one from another by definition, means it's not the same stuff. By definition, it's adulterated. And I think by definition that they, they have broken various laws. Next slide, please. <coughs> yeah, so this is really important. Um, again, the initial analyst just looked at the COVID-19 lot numbers and just found that the side effects were not uniformly, even pseudo-uniformly spread across the lots. But what this other colleague um, has done is to say, well, look, let's compare, let, let's look at the thing that's most comparable. So she looked at all the injected uh, products against influenza. And it turns out, as you can see, it's decades of data, uh, and it's about 22, 23,000 lots, manufacturing lots. And if you look to the right, the COVID mRNA vaccines, uh, five lines down, similar number, 25,000. So they're similar numbers of lots. But if you look at the serious adverse events, uh, you can see like a five-fold difference there from 9,000 to 47,000. And in terms of deaths, I think that's like um, eight times worse. So something very peculiar is happening. Um, we go to the next slide, please. Now, this is these next couple of slides are the crucial ones. So along the bottom there, are the um, meaningless to me uh, numbers associated with all these injectable flu vaccine products over many, many years. Um, and on the vertical axis are the number of serious adverse events. And you can see there were just a couple of exceptions, one with about 22 serious adverse events. A serious adverse event is something that uh, would bring you to hospital, extend your hospital stay, could threaten your life, require urgent intervention to save your life, something like that. These, these are not a sore arm or a bad headache. This is something really bad. But with the exception of the one on the left there, with 23 serious adverse events, a lot might contain um, several tens of thousands of doses. We don't know what it is every time, but what we can say is that since the, as I'll show in a moment, since the number of adverse events can vary thousands of fold, it won't, it's not possible for the difference in batch size or lot size to be the whole explanation for the differences. Might contribute to it, but we've done some preliminary examination where we have managed to find out exactly how many doses there were in a group of lots. And when we looked at the relationship between the number of doses in the batch and the number of adverse events in the batch, there's no relationship. So that, that's not the driver. So with the flu vaccines, there's, there were just two lots. We don't know what that, why that was. Something went wrong um, and there were a relatively large number, 22 and 37. But look at the rest, hundreds and hundreds, thousands, it's tens of thousands of lots where on average, my eye is telling me that the sort of smoothed average is around four four serious adverse events per lot. And, but most, more importantly than that, I think you'll agree, it kind of looks like static. 
just you know it's a background noise remember if you dose uh, a large population you could dose them with saline and get this effect because people do get ill you might put on red socks today and have a heart attack obviously the red socks didn't cause your heart attack but if you were tracking the relationship between your new product with socks and side effects you would end up with a product with a profile that looks like this so side effects associated with a, an intervention does not necessarily mean that it's bad as i mentioned earlier this sort of correlation is not causation but i wanted and this is really good work by my colleague i want to show you what i what we think is a normal well manufactured consistent high quality product looks like in the real world when you give it to you know millions of people over time so now that's with that established and baseline is around four and the highest value was 37 corvin if you could show us the next slide i think it is the next slide yes so this by now should start to take your breath away so these are the covid uh, vaccines there's three many there are three manufacturers because it's the us commercial um, uh, utilities so it's just these three we don't know about astrazeneca but remember i said that the rolling average um was about four adverse events well you know the scale on the y-axis here you know, four is is thicker than the than the axis the thin blue line at the bottom is more than four and the red line this is this is the worst ever you can see there was like a single case out of 22,300 uh flu vaccine batches that was 37 but really that's that's probably you know way over what the representative the representative was somewhere around four but there you go that's the top look how many batches of covid products are worse than that and yet and yet let me just point out for example right in the center there 651 483 5461 looks like it's either you know one or two and then its neighbor one or two its neighbor one or two its neighbor one or two and then suddenly you come on this this one here you know en6201 and it looks like it's six six hundred serious adverse events again these are the ones that are you know note if you had a serious adverse event yourself you would think thank god i didn't die it was quite close to death and look at the number of them um and so a number of things i want to point out here one is the extreme level of side effects that we're seeing orders of magnitude i would say just the rolling average here it's looking like i don't know between 100 and 200 instead of four that these are really toxic products they really are toxic products but and that's bad enough but as i argued if you're a cancer sufferer you might accept a dangerous intervention if on balance it could extend your life or and its quality by a year or so but these these products have been given to the general public most of whom are perfectly well that's the normal deal with the vaccine you're perfectly well you turn up at the doctor's office get an injection and you leave and you're still perfectly well and all that's happened is you've acquired a defense against a specific pathogen that's that's the deal what we shouldn't have is that you occasionally get seriously ill and some of you die that's not a good deal that is what is happening from these products and they're being pushed on everyone when as i've argued if you're recovered infected you're immune if you're a child you're not vulnerable to the virus just healthy young people are not and pregnant women we do not know that it's safe and should not on the precautionary principle be administering it and yet and yet your governments are, are pushing these on you it's not a public health measure if it was a public health measure 
the three or four things I just said would be true. It's not a public health measure. And all of the stuff I said earlier about discarding normal pandemic handling plans and replacing them by absurd lies that have had the effect of frightening people, and we think that that was the objective. Now you've seen this information, and your economies are on the verge of absolute extinction. And I, so I think that I think that's the evil triumvirate: frighten people, um, damage the economy, force them, persuade them, or force them as necessary to accept these injections, some of which are killing people. Why would they want to do that? And um, this is why I got to the conclusion. I could, I racked my brain. Uh, there may be other explanations. It's not money, by the way. The pharmaceutical companies, of course, are having an absolute field, you know, uh, whatever, uh, a high watermark in terms of profitability. That cannot be the motive. It's the effect of using big pharma to drive these products into the population. That can't be the motive. Why can't it be the motive? Because there are huge numbers of industry sectors that are absolutely almost into the ground. You know, the airline industry, I don't know how they're surviving. You know, almost two years of non-normal operation, hotel and catering, um, holiday trade, uh, you know, and all of these things. So remember that the only people who could possibly make this happen, or at least have to agree in order that this happens in their world, would be the, the owners of, you know, the people who own what Catherine Austin Fitz calls, you know, Mr. Global, global big capital. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that money alone, profit alone, is not the motivation because uh, eight or other, eight, you know, there might be a couple of sectors doing really well, but eight sectors are doing so badly as to more than outweigh um, the benefits uh, to, that accrue to the drug companies. But let's just go back to that slide, please, Colvin, if we could. Yeah. Um, because there's something not just uh, is there this extreme toxicity, but it's the variability. Now, I pointed out, so let's just look at the Pfizer bunch because there's a nice range there. Nice is the wrong word, sorry. I'm looking, sounding like a scientist. These are people. These, these are people who've suffered and some of whom have died. But as you cast your eye across the, uh, you know, across the axis at the bottom, you can see that some of the uh, numbers there are associated with very small numbers. They're so small that you can't see it registering on the thickness of the x-axis marked, y-axis marked zero. And yet close to it, uh, there are a whole bunch of batches that have got, you know, 400, 600 serious adverse events per lot. And they're roughly the same size. That means there's not the same product that's got this Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, it says on the box or, or on the vial, it's not the same stuff. It's not the same stuff. I'm, I'm certain it's not an assessment, it's not maybe, I'm absolutely certain. I can, there is something called the law of mass action, which applies to all biological properties I've ever seen. And if it does come to court, I will, I will walk you through the history of that and why it is that shape and why this means it cannot be the case that these middle Pfizer lots are the same material as the ones immediately to the left and to the right. These drug companies are highly professional outfits they know how to manufacture uh, reproducibly, and we saw that with the flu vaccines over decades. They know how to do it, they haven't done it. I'm afraid I've come to the conclusion that they're doing it on purpose because they're so professional. And after a year, they know this data. This data is their, their, um, their winner on to the world. They can go into VAERS, they can filter for their own products and their own uh, uh, lot and batch numbers, and they can see what's happening. They know. 
So the fact they haven't stopped this um, tells me that they're at least okay with it. And I, and I fear that this is deliberate. Why might it be? Why might it be deliberate? Well, um, as, as we have seen over the last two years, um, big techs like Google, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and so on have uh, uh, persistently said we're not having anyone making a comment or a recording that uh, disagrees with what the public health officials say, and we're going to call that misinformation, and we're going to basically we'll censor you and maybe deplatform you. What that means is that um, a qualified person like me, and I promise I have no axe to grind whatsoever other than telling you what I think is, is true, which is that we're, we're facing a global crime. People like me cannot speak to the public because the tech companies have decided not to let me. And that's true of uh, mainstream TV, mainstream radio. I've only ever appeared on radio where they where they maligned me. They've told me lots of lies. Um, and I, so I then threatened them and then they deleted the recording. It tells you something, doesn't it? that I was correct. So um, what, what do I, yes, yeah, so the, it's the combination of big tech, uh, big media, and by that I mean mainly TV around the world, they control what's coming into your house. So if you just turn your TV on over the last two years in the same way that you ever have, you're only going to hear a one-sided, and in my view, it's mendacious, it's completely misleading, uh, description of what's going on. You'll never hear things like this. And you should, you should, you should see both sides of it. The fact you're not allowed to, I think, tells you that they know there's something bad going on and they're going to make damn sure that people like Dr. Mike Eden and Dr. Robert Malone uh, and Dr. Peter McCulloch and so on never will never darken the studios of BBC or CNBC. Because if we were given an hour, I think we could destroy the story easily. I think we're plausible, we're being honest. And uh, I gain absolutely nothing from making up stories. I'm describing in horror. So, so I've said that the variability is extreme. Uh, and I've said that the media controls the message and they censor people like me. If they want to tell you um, that there's a nasty variant that's just come along, that's killing more people than previously, you've no way of knowing if that's true or not. And I, I don't think you should trust anything they say about this because they've definitely lied about everything else I've been able to hear. But let's say they did say that. Let's say they said there's a new variant or a new virus that's said 10 times more lethal than COVID. And don't worry, the uh, innovative pharmaceutical industry has rustled up a new vaccine and you know, run and get your, your top up, your booster, your new vaccine. What happens if they chose to give you that one that's called EN6201 instead of the one to EN1201? Well, the answer is, you know, probably thousands of people are going to die. And imagine all the manufacturers doing that uh, and over, the, over time and, and across the world. All the time, the media is giving you a very frightening message. And the appropriate response, if, this, if these guys were being honest, would be, OK, let's... Um, Let's deploy these vaccines as we tune them and so on. Uh, but it's all lies. It's all misleading. And, and I worry that what you've seen in front of you there, I've described it to other people. I said, I'm worried that this is calibration of a killing weapon. That if somebody wanted to say that there are uh, viruses or vaccines that are, say, 10 times more lethal than COVID, so killing one in 100 people instead of one in 1,000, roughly, they could just, just move along and just deploy batch X or batch Y or batch Z. Um, and, and that's what would happen. And, you know, I've got no reason to make this stuff up. You know, I, I'm not 
I've never been a conspiracy theorist. If anything, I'd be the sort of person that would chuckle at other people having conspiracy theories. And of course, now I realize what a mug I've been for the last 61 years believing, believing what I've been told. So the, 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 bottom, the bottom line, you can see it from here. It's not the same stuff in each glass bottle. That's an offense in all sorts of ways against the Adulterating Drugs Act. It cannot be accidental because they are professionals that know how to manufacture consistently. It's not possible uh, that this is small variation in product because it's you know, an emergency situation, difficult to make. Now, the law of mass action would mean that in order to get these enormous differences in, quotes, performance, you know, serious adverse events, would have to have a very uh, a sizable difference. I would say, I don't know, 10 to 100 fold difference in an active. If there, was, if there was an active that produced these side effects, I'm confident and we've did the experiments, and I'd be roughly right. I've done hundreds of experiments like that, not with people, of course. And it, you know, we'd need to go up in dose by 30, 100, 300 to, to go from baseline to these numbers. I'm absolutely sure about that. I'd bet a lot of money on it. So because they're good at manufacturing, and because this data is available, it's been available to them all the time. They, they can look as the VA ERS data comes in. So they've known about this, and that means they're good with it. You know, they're good with it. So it's either intentional or if it's or, or if whatever, if it has proven too difficult to manufacture, they're still they should still not be allowed to, to discharge these, as it were, into the public environment because you know they're very lethal. I'm trying to think there's something very important I was going to say. Yes. Um, some people have said to me, Mike, these are brand new products, as you've said. And early on, we heard, I think the Pfizer product had to be stored at like minus 80 centigrade. So that means they're a bit unstable, rather unstable. Maybe, Mike, what's happening is they're just going off. Occasionally, you know, bad handling, people not used to it's a cold chain, what's called a cold chain like, like this. Well, I don't think that's true. One, when products degrade, uh, they generally lose activity. A piece of it falls off. If you imagine a car degrading, might lose one wheel and the top part of the engine. It doesn't suddenly turn into a lethal you know, flying machine, it will lose function. And that's what I would expect to happen. Now on a one-off, yeah, maybe, maybe a novel product like this might break in half and you end up with two super toxic bits of mRNA. But we're seeing the same thing with three products made by three different companies. And we're seeing two different technologies. So Moderna and Pfizer are mRNA, the Janssen is a DNA. You know, no, it's not possible. I've just said the rule of thumb is degradation results in loss of function, not acquisition of exquisite toxicity. And we've got three products and two technologies doing that. No, that's not the explanation. They, they, whoever's, I don't, and here's the thing, I have no idea what it is they have done, but I'm, I'm more frightened of these vaccines than I was before seeing this work with my colleague. So, so that's, I think that's the long and short of it really. Um, yeah, so all of the early stuff, you know, you're being lied to, and I, I can prove that in several occasions. And I would like, as I say, to direct people who haven't seen me before to my interview with Adele Bigtree on Highwire, and that I think will educate you on what I was seeing as the, the principal lies. And then I, I certainly would like to attach a short, I think it's 16 minutes with three or four people talking, that will provide you convincing evidence that the authorities knew that asymptomatic transmission was complete garbage. And if, if that's true, and, it, and it's true, it's garbage, everything else falls to pieces. And then when we come to the vaccines, if they were a public health measure, they'd be directed only to the people who most could get benefit from it, and never to 
children, healthy young people, pregnant women, and those who've already recovered. And yet, uh, and coats and horses have been driven right over those. So um, that's about where, where they are. And the reason I'm here is I, I want to work with anyone on, on, through the Corona Committee and anywhere else that can help wake people up. Because I don't know how to fix this, but if enough people say, you know, we've had enough now, we're not going to comply with it anymore. I noticed in Northern England, there were a, a group of several, several thousand children from secondary school in Lancashire, and they formed a, a union. And Wolfgang and I were talking about unions a few days ago. And they just said, do you know what? We're not wearing, stuff you, we're not wearing the master's school anymore. And no, we're not going to put these cotton buds up our nose twice a week, not doing it anymore. Uh, and that's all we need to do, because I, I am telling you, there is no... There's no unusual threat in your environment except from your government and their policies and the pharmaceutical industry. There's, there's nothing, nothing going on other than you know, the sort of psychological warfare um, and uh, you know, the economic damage and then these wretched vaccines. So we can, we can still take our uh, old normal, hopefully in a better form, uh, uh, back, but it requires us to just take a little courage in our hand and say, I do not comply anymore. I do not comply. Uh, and you, you're not doing anyone any good by complying. You're not saving yourself. You're certainly not saving your children. Um, so that's all you need to do. And they can't arrest everybody, right? Um, one or two people decide to be to demonstrate they could be arrested. If 10,000 school children say, we're not going to school with masks and testing, you know, and they just cross their arms and say, what are you going to do then? You know, they, that's how you take it back. That's how we take it back. Anyway, I'll pause now because I've talked for quite a long time, I think. Mike, can I ask you, um, can I ask you a question, Mike? Yes. Um, about those, the graphs, um, with the um, x-axis, um, yes. do, we, do we assume that there has been an alternation between the batches or the lots with the most adverse events between the three different companies in the sense that in in a temporal dimension not all of the adverse uh, batches have been uh, let's say released at the same time can we can we deduce that um no um th there was an initial analysis done by by one of the team and they made the assumption a reasonable but incorrect assumption that the alphanumeric number ordering was the same as time ordering of release of the vaccines and, and because of that assumption they produced you know a really worrying pattern of uh, very toxic batches then a gap then slightly less toxic than a gap and less toxic and so on um and i i don't we can't make that deduction uh anymore it might be true but i don't think that analysis was being done and similarly uh we have not yet looked to see whether the most toxic you know, Janssen batch was released at the same time as the least toxic Pfizer batch. We would have to do additional work. Personally, I, I don't think that was necessary because uh, the manufacturer, they know exactly where, you know, each batch goes, you know, which state, which medical centre, you know, which, which office, and then eventually which patient's arm. They, they do know where every dose has gone. And so you could have, you know, toxic batches from more than one company being administered at the same time. I, I think you, if you're raising an implicitly very important question, actually, because I think by, by, by chance, you would think there'd be sometimes an overlap and sometimes not. And if we, if we see a pattern that looks non-natural, 
Rhino, I think I think that would be additional strong evidence of premeditation. So we should go and do that. I think it's a very good question. So I can't answer your question, but I think I understand. I think I understand what was behind it, Robin. If that was what was behind it. And the, the last one was again about the patterns, whether we can assume that or not uh, yet. And, and as you answered, maybe we can find out more. Um, the, when we look at this graph, it seems that the adverse events numbers step up and almost, especially in the Pfizer one, and, and peak and then step down. Is that again just the way that the batches have been organized around the x-axis, which is arbitrary, or is there any, could, there, could we see any pattern of stepping up and step it down which would yes yeah no an experiment it's no it's uh it does look that bit does look real for any one manufacturer if you just sort of slice them out from from their others on that graph because you can't you can introduce date order for a manufacturer so i think if you look at that pfizer block i think it goes from left to right you know from january 2021 to last month something like that and so the general trend is to lowering of numbers of serious adverse events. Um, what I don't know is that is that because the number of doses being administered per day or per week is that has that flattened off? Because we're now mostly in the phase, I think, of administering what they call boosters or third doses. Um, so, or, or it could be, well, the number of possibilities. So, why is the number of adverse events in mean, unit time reducing now? Because it, it does seem to be that. It could be that the system is being played with. You know, it could be that we're simply not seeing all the data. They call that throttling. I don't know what that means, but it's basically somebody somebody might be cheating and holding back some of those records. That's possible. Like you, so, they they don't even they don't need to put them in an order so that you can see a linear decline. You, no, you don't need it. They no. just can do it in a way uh, which seems to be arbitrary, uh, which seems yes. to be by chance. Yeah, but. Uh, they know which batch contains what and they, they can yeah, have a dose and have yeah. this uh, surgeon the dose finding st studies yes. with this intoxicity studies and we don't see a systematic thing we just see a big cloud of many yeah. dangerous yeah. Uh, batches and then we see the baseline so but they no, you're right wolfgang you're absolutely right the the manufacturers can recreate the batch numbers and their empirical yeah, sure. findings yeah, sure. and, and so they, can put, they know they can i presume they know what different they regions them. yeah they can place them in different regions yes. and they can supply them here and there so that there yes. is no systematic visible exactly that that that's another thing actually i've got to mention um that if if this was if this was innocent um then you would expect would you not that a batch or a lot would go to, on average, the same number of states each time. So whether that range is two to 10 or three to four, whatever it is, you, you would expect them to be doing the same kind of thing. It might vary a little bit because obviously some states like New York, California, Florida, Texas are very big uh, and others like Vermont or whatever are quite small. But you know, as you smear the doses across across the nation and go down the age band, you, you would expect, you would expect a, a batch that seems benign should go to the same number of states as the batch that turns out to be toxic, if it was innocent. Even, um, and we need we need to go and check this, but certainly as of a couple of weeks ago, our findings were the most toxic batches were going to the largest number of states. And that's if that's confirmed, Ryan, again, evidence of premeditation. How would they know ahead of time 
to distribute, to dilute the most toxic batches across the largest numbers of states. Well, there, is, and there even, isn't, no. <laughs> there is even this trick to disguise the whole thing because they recommended the first, first shot and second shot take a different one. Yes. And if you, if you do this, it's even more difficult to find yes. out the systematic which is in it. Good point. No, that's, that's a yes. I'm not sure. Yes, I think in most nations, I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure. I, I thought they in most nations they got the same material, but they did, they did mix them up. Yes. They did explicitly recommend to take a different one the next time. I mean, that's, it's just, that's so crazy, Wolfgang, isn't it? I mean, yes. The clinical trials were not done like that. So we've, we have no safety data for that. And so when you see things like that, ladies and gentlemen, you should be very afraid because uh, people like that. Uh, there is one other uh, there is one other dimension we just see the the very actual reactions of the of the health reactions or toxic reactions we don't see the long-term damage which may which may occur and um, so something is in the cloud we don't we do not yet recognize but because they have all the data and they have all this uh, this data collection of the people where what were their health the health data they have the vaccination data they have the testing yeah. data yeah. and they have the genetic data even if they analyze the pcr so they can really find out a lot by those trials they do this. yes and um, find out whether the patents are worthwhile to be further developed or no no that's a very good point you you make um wolfgang that you know, yes, that we, or whilst we know an unprecedentedly large number of people have reported injury and indeed death, the numbers of deaths, uh, you know, are they're huge for for a vaccine, but they're not large, say, compared with the normal death rate. So, it, you know, in advanced, plump, elderly Western populations, it's somewhere around one percent, just under one percent of the population, mostly the old people, die every year. And if the vaccines have killed as many as one in a thousand is like a tenth. Uh, that, that would be awful and a, and a terrible crime, but it's not on its own going to move the needle on population. But if they if they do propose, uh, you know, either to return with more toxic materials in the future, or to Wolfgang's point, maybe 9,999 9, people haven't yet learned what's in store for them. You know, if you've been if you've been given one of these materials, I just don't know what's in it. Does that prime you for a very serious medical event in, you know, if you should encounter some second stimulus? If I was, if I was a bad person, I could definitely design some nasty things using this technology easily. Yeah, Mike, you have the experience, you know, you know how long it takes to prepare such a study. Yeah. And so it is not just a study which is just uh, improvis improvised, but it's a study. It seems to me this is an experiment they prepared at least 10 years ago because you have all those vaccines that now on that now are on running in trials. Yes. 128 says WHO with two of them with uh, self-replicating viruses. And this was published long ago. We just heard it. Uh, it, the veterinary, they tried it out with, with animals already self-replicating viruses, and now it's in the clinical studies with all those 120 different... Yes, it's far... Wolfgang is saying, and he's absolutely right, and I can exemplify, it's far too fast. If those programmes were initiated in response to 
you know, December 2019 and onwards, um, then that's what, just two years, something like that. Uh, the the preclinical phase, the, the amount of time we would spend in the lab thinking about it, doing experiments, optimizing, yeah. selecting the drug candidate, manufacturing it, doing toxicology, you wouldn't be, you would, you, it would be extremely unlikely anyone had got into the clinic. Maybe yes. you could yes. go more quickly these days, but if they're all in phase two, I'm afraid. <laughs> Mike, they, you know better than anyone yeah. that those people know what they want to show yeah. for their investors and what they want to hide. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But yeah, that's, that's very worrying, yes. Go ahead. to ask like two things like um one thing is is it possible to see like uh, what kind of age group were affected by the respective uh, toxic um you know batches and the other thing yeah. is is um yes. like when we talked about this beforehand you said that um there's only very few people maybe needed to do these kind of variations mm -hmm. if it's done on purpose i mean it wouldn't yeah. change anything because obviously it's out there to see for everyone both for like government plus for the pharmaceutical companies themselves so i mean if it was like a natural process or like a you know like a, just a um a problem of production they would immediately interfere and and change the system or take out yes. like try to resolve the problem or even like put like a moratorium on it or something like that so it's clear that it's um you know it must be it's very likely that it's something um like on pur purposeful that's going on but like how many people would you actually see be to be involved and yeah. also um would it be possible to look at the age uh, toxicity yeah. So I've noted. I've noted that question. It's a good. It's a good one. Uh, I will. I will again. I'll get back to the team. And I think it might be useful to have uh, a different person from the team because uh, you know there are so many very good questions. They may know the answers, and I just don't. Like I said, I'm not the actual analyst. But to your your question about how many people would need to be involved, and it's it's uh, it's rather worrying that it might be a very small number. If you think about it, these. Uh, they're basically gene sequences, so they're either uh, sequences of RNA bases, one joined to another, or DNA bases, um, and we have machines that will synthesize that. And then once you've synthesized it, you can then copy it, ironically, using PCR. It was originally uh, um, invented as a, a manufacturing technique, not an analytical technique. Um, so the process is fully automated. Once you program what it is you want the machine to make, and maybe it makes it in pieces, as I was describing for drug substance earlier, maybe it's made in a few pieces, and you warrant that each of the pieces is what you want, and then you anneal them together using molecular biology. That could be how they do it. But when the machine is humming away and manufacturing the gene sequence, it looks exactly the same to a supervisor or, or a shift worker putting raw materials in and whatever whatever it's making looks exactly the same. So it might be only, it could be as little as one controlling mind um, for the whole thing, uh, certainly per company. You, you don't have to have a team of 40 sort of cogitating and, and arguing. If you, know what you're, if you know what you're doing and all you're going to do is change the code, uh, one person would be enough. Of course, I don't know what they're doing. Some people have said, oh, maybe they've added a chemical. I don't know, uh, you know I literally don't know. Uh, but if they, if they haven't, they might have just modified the gene sequence so that a different effect uh, than the one we expected to happen will actually happen. And I don't know how we're going to get it out of them. Um, it's, it's, these, these things are actually very hard. Um, 
I, 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 you know, I don't want to go over this in great depth, but when I first heard that they were using these and intending them as a mass vaccination, uh, when I left Pfizer 10 years ago, techniques or materials like this were almost a laboratory curiosity. We, we did attempt to use them in some experiments in cells and cell culture, and they didn't work very well. Uh, there, there were toxicities associated with them, delivery to the inside of cells was problematic, stability of the material, even identity of what you were adding to the cell culture was often difficult to be really sure about. And so the idea that within 10 years, numerous companies are able just to uh, uh, manufacture these like M&Ms and Smarties, it, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit for me. That's, that's not possible. We have, we have some big responsibility now yeah. because we... Uh, we have to think to spread this news. And I, I find it very, very interesting that there is this, this homepage uh, where you can find out how bad is my batch. Yeah, yeah. That's and one of the team. One of the team I, tried to find it, yeah. I tried to find it in Google, but I did not get it. Google hides it. Ah. And um, I've, I, I, shall, I have put it on my homepage. You have mm. to have to take a different uh, searching machine and have to different uh, interest, uh, internet uh, yeah. uh, programs to find it. But it's very good. All batches are there, even the actual ones that I use now that are on the market. Wow. And I have to say to all doctors, please, doctors, now when you know that there are dangerous ones and that there are less dangerous ones, if you really go on giving those jabs, you should at least have a look whether the batches you got to, to inject are those mm. which are dangerous where you kill your patients or whether they are less, less they make less harm. But yeah, this and also the pharmacists, what they have in their, in their stock, their stock, they should have a look and they should, they should try to find out and first have to know what sort of batch they have, what sort of batch they, they use and then, or they should use, and then give it. But uh, you know, and every patient too, he should ask his doctor. And he said, doctor, did you check it? Yeah. Whether it's a batch or not? And this makes the doctor even be aware that there are bad batches. And even if the doctor starts thinking then, he will find out why are there bad batches and good batches? Mm -hmm. This is not possible. No. If I give an injection and there's some label on it, it should always be the same yes. one. What does he say to the patient? And perhaps he has a look on this, on this, on this information and he, he starts thinking. I think this is a very important thing we have to tell the patients. Yet if you are forced to take the jab, ask your doctor, doctor, is it a good batch? Or is it a bad batch? Yeah. You know there are good and bad batches. <laughs> no, no, I think, I I think see, it's very important. Show you the literature. Yeah. I show you the literature, doctor. Yeah. Please tell me, is this a good? I don't. I come back when you can tell me whether it's a good one or a bad one. Then I'll come back. But now I don't take it. Mm. It's too dangerous, doctor. Yeah. You have to do it like this. Yeah, and we. And then you can you can bring you can bring all those people that they start thinking and that start researching themselves what's going on. Yeah, the, the one that you're mentioning, we've published uh, one of them on the Telegram channel, and it's howbad.info. Uh, yes. There may be more, but the one that we put on our Telegram channel is howbad.info, so people can check that. Um, I would like to, to ask one additional question. So is it, are we sure that these vaccines are really produced, like, for instance, on a Pfizer plant? 
or like a uh, Johnson & Johnson plant, because there's also companies who do the production process for yeah. like pharmaceutical company yeah. uh, products. Like for instance, I think there's a company called Emerging Biosolutions. And I, I, I heard, I'm not quite sure, that they are involved in this kind of um, production process as well. So it could be that they, that it's actually like maybe one, like just one plant of a, you know, supplier who makes all these vaccines with the, um, you know, uh, like the ingredients according to, I mean, the protocol of each company. I mean, the, the yeah. pseudo or like the seeming protocol but then we yeah. maybe have other protocols going on at the same time. But it could be that it's not really on one plant of the, like, really the yes. visible no, you're, producer. you're absolutely right. If people may not know this, but, um, yes, uh, although um, during my career, lots of companies uh, acquired one company after another after another, um, it, what they didn't do is keep everybody. Because I remember at one point, one of my employees had, like, 47 production plants around the world. And, it, you know, it's clearly... That was just a consequence of four or five or six companies all rolling up together. And so what happened was, over time, some of those um, plants, they went through what's called, I think it's a management buyout, an MBO, and they would acquire several of the estates of manufacturing, and then they would provide a contract manufacturing specialty to the industry, not just their former owners. And you are right, I, I won't name them because it kind of could blacken their name and they might not be involved. But yeah, there's, there is a whole parallel industry of contract manufacturers uh, and theoretically of course their their job ought to be to high, be highly skilled in sort of regulatory quality manufacture and so that lifts the burden off of the drug company of course in the end what is it that the drug company does it's um, a friend of mine remarked that it's a it's a bank with a drugstore on the side of it really what about the clinical research organizations you think yeah. there are big ones who are able to manage all this yeah, again, um, most of the research is is now told out. So the manufacturer, you know, uh, Moderna would be in charge of whatever it is that's being done. But the, the execution, the, the recruitment of patients, their screening, you know, the pre-randomization visits, you know, administering the substance, the daily, weekly, monthly follow-up, and so on, all of that would be managed through clinical CRO, clinical uh, contract research organization. That's true of toxicology, manufacture, clinical, and so you know. In the end, it's what is it that the, what's the core skill of the drug company? And I don't, I can't tell you anymore. And that's why a friend um, said they're like a bank with a drugstore on the side. Side, and it's, I don't know what I don't know really. I don't really know what it is that's at the heart of these organisations anymore. It, it used to be certainly Pfizer was very famous for having. Um, you know, drug discovery at its core, and it was led by people who are generally medicinal chemists rather than biologists. So Welcome was, was very much sort of biology-led. Um, there's nothing wrong with either. You, you have to have, you know, those kind of skills. But what are they led by now? I would think profit motive uh, and litigation expertise, because they know they're going to get sued. And so as long as they make much more money than they pay in fines, it seems to me uh, that's that's unfortunately the sad end of what used to be you know, an, an industry I was proud to work in, not anymore. You know, even if I could, I wouldn't, I wouldn't serve any of these organisations anymore. Yeah, they've they, done them, they've uh, permanently done themselves in, in my eyes. Could I, uh, sort of in addition to my question, would it, is it, does it show on it the, show on the, on the um, you know, uh, the, 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 sh the sheets that come with the product where it's, where it's actually been produced? 
I don't think so. I don't believe so. No, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was made in New Jersey or, you know, New Amsterdam, <laughs> whatever. I don't think so. The company will know uh, because there will be this um, identifying code and they damn well better know not just where it was manufactured. They better know where all the raw ingredients came in and who signed off step three. Seriously, if they don't know that stuff, they're breaking the law. Because in order to do um, you know, a good good manufacturing practice, you need to know the answer to that question. If, if, an, if a, a skilled in, investigator said, I want to know, you know everything about that, that particular batch, you know, I want to know what was the starting material three months ago, and what did you do to warrant that the supplier that sold it to you uh, had the right quality and purity and, and safety and so on? That all, every part of that needs to be demonstrated. So, I, you know, and that's why I think it's not, it cannot be an accident because the, the, the normal discipline, which is incredibly, it's almost obsessive and rightly so, uh, means that you, you can't end up with products with performance variability like this because that implies different stuff in the vial uh, and that, that just can't happen by accident so but how many yeah how many actors are involved it, it could be lots or a few so again if we were thinking of um how could a you know how could something illegal be hidden one would think it's not as hard as one might think it really isn't um just uh, yeah. just let us let us think where should i send the state attorney to find out where shall i <laughs> where should <laughs> Should we look for for the files? Is it the clinical research? One question, because you always said that, the, for instance, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, that they would need to have kept some of the vials for like uh, retesting or like as a, I don't know what the hmm. term is, is for that. But um, so would they know where these, these products uh, were produced? I think they just rely they rely on the data they get from yeah. the users. That's yeah, what that's they it. said. They said we have a contract with them and they yes. have conditions they have to fulfill and they have to give us a report and we rely on the report of the producers. This is they don't do it themselves, I think. But I don't no, know it. Yeah, no, that is it. That's exactly right. You you rely on the assurances that are made. Uh, and the internal sort of quality control processes of your of your supplier or your client, whatever it is, as it passes down the chain, because clearly it's not possible to uh, you know personally warrant that the start all the starting materials are exactly what you say. So you have a series of like nested quality control and audit. So you know audit is is the most appropriate way because when you do an audit, you can you can take a cross section through every any part of the research, development, commercialization of a product. And, and they would do that, experience people. Who pays, that, who pays that? He has a lot to say. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. So, if you, um, yeah, if you end up with the regulators being funded by the drug companies, yes. which I think is true, actually. It's called PDUFA, the Pre Prescription Drug User Fee Act. I, I asked yeah, ask some people who make the control, the pharmaceutical controls in the, in the countries, in German Länder, they had they have pharmacists who, who normally control whether what is written on the label is in the drug and mm -hmm. they but they are they are not able to to do it now with this new drugs they are not able to have, you have to sequence or you have to you yeah. have special techniques so it's not possible to control it by that it is done by those uh, institutions that are normally protecting us from such a thing yeah they are not able to do it 
No, no, I agree. It, yes, the, anal the analysis is not straightforward as it would be for you know, in the sake of a uh, in the case of a pill that contains say 50 milligrams of whatever some new antiviral yeah. the, the the chemical structure would be declared and therefore the uh the analytical performance that the, the wavelengths you know of absorption of light and uh, the molecular sizes of the fragment of it in a mass spectrometer yeah all of those things uh we would know how to uh, confirm that it I mean, it is what what they say, but but these um, I think some of the genetic bases RNA and DNA are non-natural. I think they've they've modified them. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you declare it. But it, what it means is that in order to stabilize the product, some of the bases are non-natural, so they're not found in nature, and some of the analytical techniques won't pick them up. You know, you may need to develop a new methodology even to check the product. So it's tricky, really tricky. Yeah. If they if they would be forced to 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 tell the the sequences exact sequences, you could make a PCR to yeah. find the sequences. Yes, and the PCR could be spread, and the, on all the control institutions could use the PCR and yeah. use it with the drug, yeah. and they could see whether the sequences are in or not, but they would not find those sequences they don't know. No, they only won't find those sequences. Which are which are labelled, and so this doesn't help us. No. Yes, that, that's right. If if you even if you had a pure sample, just a solution, and you wanted to establish what was in it, if you don't know which non-natural nucleic acids are in DNA, if you don't know which ones they've used, you cannot then design an analytical system to to sequence it because you know you'll get it'll be wrong if you. You know, it's, it's a serious problem. It really is. It's it's no good just seizing a sample. You, know, you couldn't have the police go in and seize the samples, and then a week later we'd know what it is. So you don't even you can't measure that which you are not even knowing to look for. Uh, it's it's an again that's something I learned in, in my forensic science um, uh, you know, placement. It's it's incredibly difficult to work out what's what's in a person if they've died or in a vial in this case. Unless you, you have, if you start by, you have some presumptions, then you can confirm those or show that it's not true. That's that's yeah. the routine technique. If you don't know, for example, what's killed a person, and you suspect you have a suspected death, if you don't know what to look for, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> you know, and the same is true here. We we don't. I, I mean, I could imagine many different schema that would produce the effect that we've got, but you know, but there could be a hundred others and might be none of the above so unless someone unless somebody um, leaks this information uh all we can do is present both the public the professionals like doctors wolfgang as you said uh, and uh the companies themselves if someone will hold them legally to account then uh yeah then they would have to answer questions as to well how are these erratic performing uh batches how has that come about that would be my first question yeah. I think if you agree that that's that's the record, how did that happen? We have enough information with this variation of toxicity. Yeah. We have enough information to stop all of them. Yes. Normally, we should just we have the, uh, concerning the legal framework of, of yeah. pharmaceutics. We could now say no, not one single jab anymore because yes. we we have this findings. This is enough normally. For the yes, that's a very good point, actually. I, one I'm, uh, I should have made and will will make again. Yes, that the 
in view of the fact that, that a team has established and these are independent people, we came together because we had this common interest, we didn't come together and then do the work. So these are people who've come from very different skill sets. Um, but we, we all agree that there is extreme variation in the uh, toxicity profile, that we all agree that there's, there's, there's some, there are some other nuances that, that uh, if they're true, it, some some of there is there is some emerging data that suggests there's you may have seen a film called Death by Alphabet and at least for one manufacturer it does horribly it looks like the ordering of toxicity does relate to the alphabetical sequencing of a middle letter in the code but I'm I'm not in a position to say whether that's true or not but I can assure you we're doing additional work additional work is going on so um, Rhino if that were to turn out to be the case that that clearly can't be chance, I don't think. Um, so, you know, if that's true, that would greatly augment augment the case. But, but yes, Wolfgang, um, personally, I, I would have been satisfied. Uh, well, as you and I know, back in December twenty, we, we we thought it was inappropriate to use these at all. That the um, it would have been better to have allowed early treatment um, to have been used, and I think that would have been it. Would have meant only the people who needed intervention would have received it and everyone else be left alone whereas this mass vaccination is introducing dangerous poorly characterized materials that are also now being manufactured in a very suspicious way uh, are being given to a very high per percentage of the population and uh, as i've said as i've said before there's already so there's very clear evidence of heavy duty uh, deception censoring and control of narrative that when you then take that together with these observations of the vaccines uh could easily be at the worst end of people's worries you know like depopulation um you certainly anyone who's heard this now i think um i think they would be foolish to dismiss the idea that there's a takeover and that they might want to you know kill quite a percentage of the world's population that's, that's absolutely possible can't, I can't know that that's what they're doing because not my crime, as I've said before. But um, if you just look at the, the creeping authoritarianism, uh, vaccine passports. Um, I, I don't know if you've had any other speakers talking about it. I think you had Robert Malone. But uh, but just to say again, just to anyone who doubts it, um, if you've been vaccinated, you've received double jabs, whatever it is, of one of the products, you're not safer to be next to than I am. You're not. The evidence is they don't stop you acquiring the infection, so it doesn't do you any good, and it does not stop you transmitting it, for example, to me. Um, I, I, by sheer luck, actually uh, was ill uh, for a few weeks in the summer, and I had a test, and I was positive, so maybe I've had it. And if that's true, I've got good immunity. Um, so I ought to be someone you would say, well, I, I, can't, I can't give it to anyone because I can't now get clinically ill with it. Uh, so it's just nonsense all that vaccine passports, only people they benefit are the people who are pushing them, like Gates and Blair and Schwab and other people. It's they, they do not make you safer. And it's very important that I say that because I am very worried that I don't know, I don't know what it is. Uh, Professor Matthias Desmet said that there's this mass formation of people 
in greater fear than they should, but they, it's been pushed for that reason. If those people think vaccine passports and people who've been vaccinated are safe to be around or safer, and you know, I'm a dirty individual who's not been vaccinated, that's not true. But if they believe it, if I try and say, look, these vaccine passports are really digital ID and they're, they're going to remove your human liberties, they'll fight me yeah. because they'll think I'm trying to remove something that's essential to their safety. Uh, so it's it, this is it's literally a diabolical scheme because I can see how much resistance there will be to removing it, vac vaccine passports, if they're introduced into a society. And so uh, yeah. and it's easier said than done, but my, my, my most like earnest all, hope is, is that we stop to... them being introduced in the first place, if you possibly can. It's so much easier to prevent them being installed than to remove them afterwards. I don't don't know how to get rid of them. Sorry, Wolfgang. Mike, they also they also try to make us get lost in details. Yeah. It's yeah. such a big crime, it's so obvious now. Don't discuss all those details they offer us to discuss. No. We no, have so right. many yeah. things they can they send us other specialists and they speak about details and variants yeah. and area yeah, yeah. test and new test. It's a nonsense. It's a big, yeah. big crime. And it's so obvious now. And it is. what we have to do is to wake up the doctors and to wake up the pharmacists and to wake up the people that they are just victims of of criminals. And yes, no, they are. Exactly. I, I think the people, Maybe, are going, the people now running on the street in all German towns and everywhere in Europe and all over the world. They know it already. They know it, and they are aware. And we have to we have to strengthen them and yeah. give them all the arguments and to to persuade those the other people to follow them on the street and to be on the street too and not to, and to say no to this crime to this very yeah. very big crime. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I made a short speech for for the so-called Spaziergänger, the walkers. That, that stroll around the streets in Germany. Uh -huh. I made a short speech of 15 minutes where I tried to explain all this. We speak about now more than one hour. And uh, I tried to explain it because it's so important that we give it, that give those informations and to, to yes, to, to, to give them the arguments to convince yes. them to all the neighbors, come out, come out, don't tolerate this anymore. Well, look, yeah. here's, the, here's the thing. Uh, at this point in time, I think this is really, this must be considered the missing link. This is the smoking gun. If you look at the totality of the evidence, if you look at what we've been talking about, the fact that these vaccinations are not vaccinations, because what is a vaccine? It's something that makes you immune. Now, these shots do not make you immune. Even the makers of the vaccines admit that. They don't make you immune. They don't protect you in any way. Secondly, we've been lied to. We all know we've been lied to right from the start. Third, starting with the PCR tests and asymptomatic infections. That's what they needed in order to start this whole thing, in order to get the uh, public health emergency of international concern, which ultimately led us to the so-called vaccinations. And there's lots of censoring going on, lots of censoring. Why is that? Well, if you look at this, Piece, even without knowing any more, any of the details that, that we've been speculating about. It is enough to show us that what is happening is their experiment, this is within this gigantic experiment, they're experimenting with lethal dosages. For what purpose? For what purpose? It can only be done 
because they want to reduce the population without us understanding this. That's why they're experimenting with lethal dosages, because if they killed everyone in one uh, at the first shot, uh, it would be very obvious. So yeah. that is what's happening. I, that's enough for me. That's way more than enough for me and should be way more enough for any prosecutor. We're going to get them. We're yeah, no, I hope so. I mean, the, the, the reason, one of the reasons I also thought depopulation was likely was that early on, we had people like Bill Gates. Yes, he's a rich man, he's influential, but he's not a, he's not a biologist or a doctor of any kind. Yeah. And he was on the TV saying, the world won't return to normal until pretty much everyone's been vaccinated. And I thought, that's just the most stupid nonsense I've ever heard. You, you only need to, even you, 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 vaccines have never been used to extinguish a pandemic in human history. So this would be, this would be novel. So, yeah, and then next, you only vaccinate people who are themselves at severe risk of adverse effects, including death if infected. That's it. So I, I knew he was lying when he said that. He was not competent to say it, so he must have another reason for saying it. Who that gave him the authority? You know, exactly. And he said it repeatedly, but then I'll yes. tell you what, then I heard Blair, another well-known biologist, talking about this, the necessity to have these vaccine passports to, to reopen society. It's just, yeah. hold on, is this the same Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister, who tried unsuccessfully to introduce digital ID into the British system? Yeah, it's the same guy. That's, and that, so it was obvious that's what it was, even though we didn't yet know what the performance of the vaccines were, but we did know that the trials didn't include transmission. They were not looking to see whether transmission was reduced. That's the, that would be the only possible argument, I think, for vaccine passports, or basically insisting that to protect society, you, you should be vaccinated. Uh, I, I would have a problem with it anyway. And I think I heard Jordan Peterson speaking about this. And he said that he thought that the measures that were being introduced, quotes, to make us safer, were likely to have a much more dangerous effect on the population uh, and civil society than the effect of the virus. And he said they're just they're not comparing what's the impact of these imposed measures on civil society and the rule of law and so on uh, compared with the unmitigated effects of the of the virus. And he said you clearly you need to weigh these things up. And he said in my mind the responses to the virus are much more dangerous to to the alleged stability of society than the virus. And and he's right. And it needs it needs clever people like that just to sort of look at it from a philosophical point of view not just science because then you get the the high priest syndrome where you know if Sir chris witty this or Sir patrick balance that that then becomes uh that becomes law almost and and people like you know wolfgang or myself don't get to to contribute to it and so i know robin has been spending a lot of time talking about um bodily integrity you know these are not rights that your governments can give away they're yours. We've we've agreed them between us as human beings yeah. through the agency of our governments over the years. We're signed up to these UN bioethics agreements that says, you know, we're not going to allow human beings to be coerced into medical experiments. Not going to allow it. But that's what's happening in your country. They're saying you can't go to work or to a shop or to a social event unless you take this jab. That's the same as being forced to take part in a medical experiment. That's something we've decided is never going to happen. It's, you know, it's in breach of half a dozen 
uh, you know, agreements and compacts physicians have with each other and their patients between lawmakers of different countries and their citizens. They don't have the bloody right to take that away. No. So you, we've got to come out on the streets and just say, hold up the sign that says, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. We do yeah. not consent because this do not is consent, what this not going to comply. What uh, I want to say is that I agree that, that Mike's presentation is um, from, from the work of the virus is, is a very convincing smoking gun. But I think we've got at least two smoking guns. The other one is, as, as you were mentioning, to do with uh, very blatant violations of human rights. That the problem is that people don't seem to know about these, uh, these rights. So we have two smoking guns. Uh, inevitably, at the stage we are at now, where divisiveness is encouraged by the authorities, uh, we have a very divided population and some of them will refuse to see either one or the other if not both smoking guns and in that case um, the, the it's very important to get this information that you presented today out inevitably some people will reject it as they have rejected other evidence so far for those people we also have to try and show them the smoking gun of of um, leaders, very obvious leaders, including, as mentioned before, Bill Gates and Macron, who are actively uh, using words which are in, in complete violation uh, with our human rights. And that is, in my view, an, a, an incredible smoking gun. If we use their, their words and we, we compare them to what our rights are, that is a, a smoking gun of, of human rights violations amounting uh, arguably to crimes against humanity. So we have at least two. One yeah. is medical scientific um, um, injection and toxicity and adverse events level. And the other one is, is for people who maybe are less versed with the, even, you know, for some people might, may find difficult to even understand what, what theirs is. I mean, we yeah. deal with it. So for those people, I think it's very important to show them an, another level of smoking gun, which is entirely to do hu with human rights. And as you said, bodily autonomy is something that people uh, tend to understand and that there's a huge push now to use the Together group in the UK to, to sort of to show and, and mm -hmm. talk about that aspect. So, uh, so I think that there's, some people may have a different vision of smoking guns. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, no, it's very, that's very important. I think there's, there's not been that many people... Uh, with, with tremendous reach, I mean, I, I'm kind of on the lower margins, but certainly people like Malone and, and McCulloch and so on, and, and a handful of others. Uh, in a sense, I think you're, you're alerting me, Robin, to the idea that I'm seeing this through the sort of medical scientific lens, because that's the kind of person I am. Uh, but that can't be the only, that cannot be the only way of trying to communicate with people, because most people don't see the world through those lenses. And in fact, in a pissing competition, they're more likely to give the government the benefit of the doubt. Right? And that's why, I, that's why I've not been comparing their opinion with my opinion. I'm saying that it's a matter of fact that they're telling you something that's not true. Because now you're, I know it's a different question. Although the matter is scientific, I'm asking them to judge whether my assertion that they're being lied to is correct. Right? And if you think, if you think I sound competent and honest, and you can go and check some of the things I say and think, oh my God, you know, that he's right that they are telling us lies. That's a completely different uh, category of decision. 
for the members of the public. And so I, I've been exhorting my medical and scientific colleagues for about a year to say, stop engaging in pissing competitions by showing your analysis of the cases data. No one gives a shit. They're, they're always going to ascribe a little bit more trust to government scientists because oh, than people who are knights of the realm and lord this and so on. That's what will happen. We know this from Milgram experiment. They're always going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So luckily for me, they are lying and I can use the L word all the time. If they want to come and sue me, <laughs> do you know what? I would welcome it. You, you will lose, you guys. You will lose. So by all means, put me in my place and sue me. I look forward to seeing you in court. You I, I have no doubt that if we talk to all of the experts who we've spoken to, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the epidemiologists, immunologists, the lawyers, the economists, they will all come to the same conclusion. This is intentional, premeditated mass murder. There's yeah. absolutely no doubt about it because nothing else makes any sense. And uh, just by coincidence, you mentioned uh, Bill Gates. There's two more smoking guns we have here. Uh, we have two short videos, very short videos, clips. Uh, one of them shows, you, you, you know them, but uh, one of them shows him explaining about the, uh, I think it's about 15 years old, um, explaining about the return on investment that you yeah. get from investing in pharmaceutical, in, in vaccine, in vaccine uh, makers rather than uh, tech, the tech industry. And the other one uh, shows him, he, he looks like a complete imbecile. He's being interviewed by the CIA, I think. Yes. He looks and acts like a complete imbecile. He, he it is, it is inevitable. You, you must come to the conclusion that this is a psychopath. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yes, I think that that's, I think that's the video. Well, I think he's about 40 years old and he's being investigated for, I don't know, um, inappropriate competition, something like that. Yeah. And he's rocking, just sort of rocking yes. like a nutcase. Yeah. And basically. Yeah. He's asked the same question several times, and then he starts to dispute the meaning of the words in the question. Yes. Like, I yeah. think it said, what other browsers were you concerned with yeah. in the year 1990, whatever it was? He said, I don't understand what you mean by the word concern. And yeah. it's like, yeah, you really, yeah, you definitely are. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you, you do know what he was getting at, but he was going to not answer by just yes. pretending. Or maybe he didn't, maybe he genuinely didn't understand what was meant on this occasion. Oh, he did. So, yeah, he's, it's, do you know what? Um, I, I don't get into the who's done it, because I genuinely don't know. All I know is that there are a handful of people who are part of the perpetrators. So... I mean, honestly, you couldn't come up with a more Bond villain person than Klaus Schwab. It's just, he's yeah. wonderful, isn't he? Honestly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Tony Blair, come on, is, you know, and then Gates. Um, and uh, Great Edward, Fred Ross. And this, but, but there were, you know, honestly, I think the, even these people are, they're very wealthy puppets, but they're still puppets. I think it's the, the people above them. We're never going to see them. We don't probably even know their names. Uh, but, and I think they're the, the super capitalists. These are like, uh, the, the what central banking class, Catherine Austin Fitz calls them. So I, I there's no point. We, I know we eventually we have to accuse certain people, and they definitely are guilty of the things that we're saying. Yeah. But I don't know how you get at the people behind them. I mean, Ronnie, you probably have a better, at least a better idea of how hard it is. But when people say who's doing this, I go, do you know, I don't know. It doesn't make any difference. Am I going to, am I going to do something different if it's person X or person Y? Not really. All I can do is 
tell you that you're not being told the truth and these bloody products are dangerous and they're lying to you and it cannot be accidental so that's bad enough and just stop cooperating masks don't work they they can make you ill at least they'll make you frightened you'll look around and notice that everyone's wearing masks surely your hind brain your lizard brain is telling you that means it must be a hazard it's all about maintenance of fear uh so that you never can relax back into a normal life but stop wearing the mask stop submitting to testing don't let them vaccinate you you know if you unless you whatever you don't need them anyway they're not they're not safe enough these bloody things and it was not likely really warp speed come on you, you can't invent a new class of medicine at warp speed and expect things to be all right that's not how biology works god and nature don't let you do that um and so yeah we just need to take back our power as they say and you know i think some of robin's points are really important you are being abused we are all being abused by these people the narrative that the censorship you know the lying you know it's ghastly it's it's worse than anything that we would have said you know those people in the oppressive states over there you know, in the east or whatever uh south you know whatever we're worse we are now i think we're worse than people we've criticized in the past i've said to people that um, um you know if you think you're going to get another chance to as it were vote this lot out you know whistle for it at the moment democracy is dead uh, and all the institutions that would normally defend us are malfunctioning or corrupt so you know and i've mentioned the royal college is just absolutely appalling the royal college of obstetrics and gynecology isn't protecting you know pregnant women you know they're not they're actually throwing them under the bus they're saying go and get these not tested vaccines and that's it's literally criminal you should be ashamed of yourself and i've said to people who are working in any of these big companies if you've got any self-respect you you should do at least two things one is go through the complaint process go and see your boss and if they won't talk to you the boss's boss till you're at evp level board member and you know if you don't get good answers and not yeah, then you need to <clears throat> resign publicly come on some of you are in your late 50s you can you can afford to stop earning you know look yourself in the mirror and be able to say i did something to try and save my children and grandchildren resign for christ's sake imagine if hundreds of you senior people in your 50s resign all at the same time that would be unhideable you could do that you should do that well i mean do you know, like what professor desmet said that yeah. you know if it's like uh, the hypnosis can be like kind of poked open by like a, a large enough shock and you know yeah. this like what you what we discussed today shock. i find this so absolutely shocking and it absolutely grosses me out if this if this turns out to be correct because i mean just imagine this sort of brain or like person or like you know this this uh, constellation that you do something like this i mean you can maybe yes. you know pick measures that are exaggerated or like that are you know um, maybe maybe you have political um, ideas, uh, you know, that are maybe not not adequate or something. But like this thing, you know, that you'd actually do this kind of experimenting with like toxicity levels. I think this. I mean, this is is really going to give me a very, uh, I don't know, very tough night. You know, it's it's really it's yeah. nightmare inducing. No, it is it is very bad. I uh, one of the reasons I I came. I'm in America now, uh, legally. I'm <laughs> properly visaed. One of the reasons I came here is not not just to escape what might happen in the UK, and I'm very worried about that. I mean, I have been I have been very vocal as a critic of the government 
And it occurs to me that at some point they might decide censorship is not enough and they'll just come and pick me up in a dark windowed van. I don't fancy that. Uh, but the other reason I came to America is, um, I mean, in the south, southern half of America, I, I realized that people don't recognize evil anymore. Um, they think that there's a like a, a continuity of like good to not really good, maybe maybe a bit bad. But I think you've just made the point. This is this is like you know orders of magnitude worse. This, this is this is something none of us who are not psychopaths could possibly do and still survive, still sleep. And but some people are able to do this now. I don't know whether they've got some sort of internal justification, like uh, you know the world will they the environment will be destroyed if we don't reduce the population so this is a tough job i've got to do it um, i think that's bullshit by the way but you can imagine someone kind of deciding to fill themselves uh like this but uh, like i said i think um we've come to rely and i'm i'm afraid i'm the most guilty of all of us i've relied all of my life as it were on the scientific method that can be done publicly as as the way of deciding things that can be that are objective obviously everything else is a matter of opinion but anything that's kind of objectively measurable the scientific method will do but it doesn't it, it doesn't when you when you come to matters of of the heart and of the mind where it's not you're not trying hard or maybe sometimes falling short you're doing something that's evil scientific methods are useless it, you need other tools and i don't really know what they are but they include religious faith or uh you know whatever what you think is the right conduct for a human being and you know that's that can't be found through science and you are right. Uh, I don't want to give you a bad night, but if if that is the effect of what I've said for people hearing this the first time, then I'm glad because it's hitting home. Uh, when I first, I can't tell you exactly when it was, but when I when it first occurred to me that oh my god, the the, the bits only fit together if this is about control and potentially population. I, I can assure you, I didn't sleep well. I didn't sleep properly for weeks. You know, two hours at a time, and I would wake up, I would open my eyes, and I'd see evil just out in the dark. It's just whatever's going on, whatever's driving this is, you know, it's darker than anything that's happened this century. Yeah. But unfortunately, there are numerous examples in the last century of, of people who are able to do this. I, I remember famously um, one of the statements of, I think, Stalin or attributed to him was that a single death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. And I, I think there are plenty of people involved in this crime that think that way you know it, it probably if they injured a person or someone close to them suffered and died they'd cry just like you and i but they have no problem in, in giving an order that will result in you know 10 to the 6 10 to the 7 people dying i think they have no problem with it and that's uh, mike it's the same yeah. people it's the same people who have been responsible for all of these horrific things that happened over the centuries. I remember Vera Sharaf telling me that she couldn't believe, she's a Holocaust survivor, yeah. she couldn't believe she's still fighting the same people or at least the same system that she fought 80 years ago. So we're dealing with the same structures, we're still dealing with the same evil-minded people, but this time we're gonna do them in. This Absolutely. time is different. We're definitely <laughs> going to do that. Yeah, we won't. We won't stop. And there are too many of us um, yeah. who, who have woken up and, and more all the time. So yeah, you, you'll see. I hopefully like a relay. I say to people, I describe it as a resistance relay. Do what you can. Don't be me. I, I don't. You know, it's hard being me. But there, and each expert brings their own uh, expertise, their own style. 
uh, things they say. But if you know that this is wrong, if you've accepted that this is wrong, then you don't you, you don't need to stay quiet because you're not a scientist. It's absurd. You know, Robbins pointed out that our human rights that we have agreed, uh, things post-war and so on, that we've decided we're never going to do again, they're being transgressed. You can stand up and say that. And, um, you know, we're not taking this anymore. So the resistance relay is, is a, an idea. You, it doesn't, you don't need to have any specialty at all other than, I guess, a backbone. You know, if you've got a backbone and you think this is not right, that's your minimum qualification. Don't need to be, don't need to have any special qualifications. Just be a human being and say, we're not having this. That's all. Okay. Michael, okay. thank you so much. This, is, this makes a huge difference. This is, in my view, as I said, the first thing that got me when, when uh, Wolfgang and I were riding the subway in Berlin uh, over a year ago, uh, he casually mentioned that, uh, he asked me, you, you, you know, of course, that the PCR test cannot, cannot tell us anything about infection. I pulled him back into the car and asked him, what? <laughs> so that was the first, that was the first um, uh, a smoking gun, but this is much more important because this is going to wake up so many yeah. people. This no, I, I, I think they're both, I hope that's, I hope that's true and it should wake up people because it's yeah. shocking, but you are, you are right. I think the Wolfgang, the, uh, the inappropriate use of PCR uh, and plus the lies, including asymptomatic transmission. I think that was absolutely required to establish the yeah. sort of the mass formations, get people frightened. The, the irony is now that uh, we, we can, you know, the leaders can, are even telling us now that the masks don't work. There's question marks, um, you know, being asked uh, or statements being made even by senior leaders saying, well, these cloth masks don't work, you know, new data. Uh, and they, I think, uh, Wolfgang, they've changed the, or with, withdrawn the approval for certain PCR tests. So now if I, and then we, I, I would like to attach, you know, Corbin, um, the two interviews I've got, the uh, one with the high Wardell big tree, but also this um, accumulation of 16 minutes of film, which has Fauci and uh, Kukov telling you that asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of respiratory viral epidemics. Yeah. That's the exact quote. That's all I'm saying. So I don't know why you think I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm saying what he has said. It's just he's changed his tune. Every few weeks he says something different. And then suddenly he is the science. It's just nonsense. He's a, he's a liar. And he's, you know, anyone who follows him, um, given, given the evidence of his repeated lies, you know, I'm afraid he's a bit foolish. And I asked them to, you know, look at this in the round. It, it's not normal what's going on, is it? No. And, um, it's no one, uh, you know, I've been told no one's coming to save us. I know there are some people, I know some people who know it's not right, but they're kind of sitting tight, they don't know what to do, and they said, if I speak out, I'll lose my job. I say, if you don't speak out, you will lose your liberty permanently. And your life. And, you, and possibly your life, certainly you will lose your liberty permanently. Mm. You know, uh, so I don't understand that, that people are choosing, they can get another bloody job, even if you do get fired, you know, yeah. take a holiday. You know, say to yourself, I'm going to speak out because it's the right thing to do. And if I get fired, I'll be jobless for a year. You know, the people who are professionals that are earning big salaries can easily cope with a year of not having any income. It's different if you're like 30 something and you're the sole breadwinner. I understand, you know, you're paying, you're looking after three or four people. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your job. That's crazy. But honestly, you senior consultants, people in your 50s and 60s, get off your butt, you know, make public statements, make them fire you, you know, take them to court. You're strong enough to do that. And you've got the resources to do that. 
If you don't do that, you've allowed your children and grandchildren just to be ground underneath the tracks of this monster. That's what you're doing. So stop it. We can do it. All right, I'm gonna, we will do it. These are, crimes, these are crimes against humanity. humanity. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But we do have a few friends of humanity amongst us as well. <laughs> good stuff. All right, well, good afternoon, good evening. And uh, to anyone who's spent all the time watching, thank, thank you for your patience. I, I wish I could do the short form, but sometimes you have to have the long form in order to then you know, take, the, take the skinny from it. So thank you very much for watching and um, you know, do something with what you've heard today, please. Thank you, Mike. Okay. And thank you for sticking with us, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Ja, also, jetzt sind wir, glaube ich, am Ende der Sitzung angekommen. Und ich muss auch ehrlich sagen, ich bin wirklich... And I'm flashed. I'm shocked. If uh, you recall what we've just heard today, I think we've said that needs to be said, but it's gruesome. So... I think, well, for some way, we'll find our Friday night and the weekend. And I thank everybody for sticking with us for so long and uh, spend a thought on this and that we make the best of it uh, to reach out to more people that the protests evolve and you don't fall asleep and uh, look clearly. And I think we're going to ask the press uh, inquiries uh, try to find out what's going on it's quite clear this has to stop and um, it's madness pure madness yes sheer madness you're perfectly right but i think today we saw one of the most important meetings ever <clears throat> so not just because mike uh, really knew what it was about technically the, but uh, not just this important aspect but also he gave us an overall view so he's very authentic and you really believe him and there's not that many authoritative and authentic authentic and empathetic people so he's one of the most important fighters in this fight well in the next couple of days we'll be busy talking to some vaccination victims against the background what we've heard today i think that is very very stressful thinking that this wouldn't have been necessary anyway so to finish off with again the requests to support us in our work we don't get any of the money but of course we depend on the funding of our work in the committee here and we'll ha be happy to um, receive the donations and as well over media um, need support to do the technical production um, thank you very much and i hope that uh, lots of you think of what you can do to reach others who may be having to take the decision uh, to get the jab no. Well, I take my cue from Mike, and uh, I would like to repeat, uh, take, get off your butts. And the only qualification you need is backbone. That is uh, yes, important very to know. important. Okay, anyway, still have a nice evening and a nice weekend. We'll be back next week. Yes, have a wonderful weekend. And maybe you can have a look at the two videos. They're so uh, instructive. Okay. Okay, bye-bye.
a lot to talk about about what he's been working on. And, and Mr. Gates, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your approach to vaccinations. You wrote something recently, and, and like you always do, you kind of looked at the problem from a scientific and business perspective on things. You've invested $10 billion in vaccinations over the last two decades, and you figured out the return on investment for that. And it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math? Well, it's pretty impressive that when you take these vaccines, uh, get them to be very inexpensive by making big volume commitments, have that right relationship with the private sector, uh, get the delivery system so they're really getting the coverage out there, you literally save millions of lives. And 20 years ago when we created these new multilateral organizations, Gavi for the vaccines, uh, Global Fund uh, for HIV, uh, TB and malaria, we didn't know they'd be successful. They've gone through lots of challenges about making sure the money gets there, making sure the efficiency is right. But as we look at upcoming replenishments for those, and we've got so much distraction uh, politically that the international uh, needs like this could uh, get eclipsed if we're not careful. You know, we see a, a phenomenal track record. It's been 100 billion overall that the world's put in. Our foundation uh, is a bit more than 10 billion, uh, but we feel there's been over a 20 to one return. So if you just look at the economic benefits, uh, that's a pretty strong number compared to anything else. Gates' business strategies came under fire in 1998 when the United States Department of Justice sued Microsoft for antitrust violations. This is take three of the videotape deposition of Bill Gates. During the 18-month trial, Gates gave hours of videotape testimony. What were the non-Microsoft browsers that you were concerned about in January of 1996? That month. Yes, sir. And what about it? What non-Microsoft browsers were you concerned about in January of 1996? I don't know what you mean, concerned. Um, what is it about the word concerned that you don't understand? I'm not sure what you mean by it. The Justice Department has charged Microsoft with engaging in anti-competitive and exclusionary practices designed to maintain its monopoly in personal computer operating systems. 